Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This was the show which aired on February 16th and 17th, 2024. We split it into two parts because it was very long. In fact, it was over 10 hours when it was broadcasted live. I edited the breaks out, so it will not be as long as that when you combine the two parts, but it is still very long and still made two healthily sized radio shows even split up. So this is the part two. If you haven't heard part one already, you can go find it. It's in the same places that you found this one. And you're going to hear the descriptions of the topics that we're going to cover today. I cut them out of part one. I moved them over here. So those descriptions are coming up right now. Jason Kuhn surprisingly quit GG Poker as an ambassador And he quit under mysterious circumstances. It doesn't seem like it was just his contract was up and it was time for him to go do other things. This didn't seem very amicable, but he also didn't say it wasn't amicable. Just reading between the lines, it seems like it wasn't amicable. And then Fedora Holtz took on a player integrity role. And now he's the ambassador in charge of player integrity. So we'll discuss that too. And I've had some interactions with him. And I think he believes I'm a pain in the ass, which I kind of am. Then we will talk about the GG Poker skin, or I guess now it's the former skin, to win for bet. Now, I had some incorrect information, which I will put out correctly on this show because it's since been corrected for me by Fedora himself, and I believe him. But at the time I put out that it's a skin of GG Poker where it was run through an agent model, meaning that GG Poker does not verify players on this two-win-four-bet skin, nor handle the deposits or cash-outs. So basically, if that skin signs you up, then it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, that GG Poker basically washes their hands of any of that. And that, of course, can allow people to come on there who are either banned players or bots or people playing from locations where they shouldn't be. Now, I've since learned that this skin shut down. Fedora said it was two years ago. Others said it was more recently, but whatever, it seems to be gone now. So that was the part I didn't have correct, and I'm going to be correct on this show. However, it's still worth discussing because from what I'm hearing, there are others very much like this. Maybe not other skins, but there are other ways you can get on GG Poker through the agent model, which really shouldn't exist anymore. So I'm going to explain the whole agent model when we get to that segment and why it's a big problem and why GG needs to eliminate it. Third GG topic is about the mystery bounty jackpot. Now, mystery bounties have become a big deal. The first one I saw was at the Win series. I don't know if Matt Savage invented this or if it was invented elsewhere, and that was the first major series to have it. But it was at least the first major series where I noticed it. And that is where there are bounties for knocking out players. And then there's kind of like a drawing every time you get a bounty that will possibly give you a gigantic prize. And they did this at the World Series, and it was a very, very popular event. In fact, a regular Poker Fraud Alert listener, Matt Glantz, was the winner of the first million-dollar bounty in 2022. So it was a very, very popular event, and it came back in 2023, and of course it's back in 2024. So GG Poker had its own mystery bounty that was a million dollars guaranteed for the top one, and the guy who won it claimed that he was only paid 780k. So we will discuss that situation and how 
GG Poker screwed it up. And it looks like they didn't steal 220k from him. It just looks like the 220k went where it shouldn't. That'll be our next topic. Matt Berkey has been mocking Jonathan Little, who, by the way, is a listener to this show as well. Not Berkey, but Jonathan Little. And then Jonathan Little, who doesn't like fighting online. You'll never see Jonathan Little fighting with anyone online. He just doesn't do it. But he responded with action rather than words. He went on to win tournaments, like two of them, for for pretty big money. So that was a pretty good response to just quietly win tournaments while Berkey was bashing him. Then Daniel Negranu, who already had some issues with Berkey prior to that, took up on Jonathan Little's side, and then that started a whole feud between him and Berkey. The whole thing became a big mess, and a lot of people didn't like to see it. Anyway, I'll break the whole thing down for you so you can understand. The whole thing's over by now, but I will break all that down for you. I'll maybe even play a little bit of Matt Berkey's show where he discusses it. There's some controversy involving Party Poker where a player claims that they stole $707,000 from this person and that Party has closed their account and will not give it back. Now that sounds pretty bad that Party stole over 700 k from a player. But was he really a victim here? Or was the account closure and money seizure justified? I'll tell you what I know about it, and I'll give you my opinion. Ryan Feldman of Hustler Casino Live, one of the co-owners, and Garrett Adelstein, who was once a very active player on there, but since has fallen out with the show, they had a tense argument about this whole thing on Twitter spaces. And boy, they really went at each other. And someone saved a clip of it that I'm going to play you guys. Pretty interesting stuff. I usually don't get into all the spaces drama, but this was pretty damn interesting. I didn't hear it when it went live, but I heard the recorded version of it. And yeah, there was some pretty heated arguing, especially towards the end of that clip. So I'm going to play it to you. I think you'll find it interesting, too. I have an update on the Jacksonville Jaguars story involving embezzler Amit Patel, who worked for them and embezzled $20 million and chunked most of it off on FanDuel, playing high-stakes daily fantasy sports. The Jaguars want the money back from FanDuel, and FanDuel doesn't want to give it. So who is legally in the right here, and who is morally in the right here? I will discuss that. Whataburger. Do you know what Whataburger is? If you're on the West Coast, you may not. If you're in Texas, you definitely do. Whataburger is based out of Texas, and I don't know which states it operates, but I do know that Texas is the main state, and then I think some surrounding states it operates as well. But it's a big fast food chain over there, and it really had no presence in the West, but that has changed because Whataburger has come to the Las Vegas Strip. And I'm not just going to talk about Whataburger coming to the Las Vegas Strip, I decided to do some personal research. So on Super Bowl Sunday, not during the Super Bowl, it was about 6 a.m., but 6 a.m. Super Bowl Sunday, I went down to Whataburger on the Las Vegas Strip, and I ordered a burger and fries and a drink there, and I consumed them. So I will tell you exactly my impression of the place. And I didn't do takeout. I ate it right there in the restaurant, so I can get the full Whataburger experience, and I can relay it to you guys. So I will give you my review on Whataburger. Finally, a judge in a case involving the 
Borgata has ruled that casinos have no duty to stop compulsive gamblers from betting. This has been a longstanding controversy. And that is if somebody has a gambling problem and they chunk off their entire fortune in the casino and the casino is pretty aware that they have a gambling problem, is the casino liable in any way? This was most prominently discussed in 2007 when mega whale Terrence Watanabe chunked off $60 million in a single year at Caesars Properties. And it was very clear that he was a compulsive gambler. Not only was he compulsive, he also had very little skill gambling-wise. So not only was he playing negative expectation games, it became way more negative expectation because he wasn't even playing them right. And he just chunked off money at amazing rates. And obviously that will happen (laughs) if you're losing $60 million. You're probably losing pretty fast. So there was a discussion then, especially because he took out a marker that he couldn't pay after losing his fortune and they didn't realize he was broke. Who should be responsible? Should he be responsible for the rest of the marker? Should they give some of the money back that he lost because they knew he was both a compulsive gambler and inebriated through most of it? Or is this just something where it's his responsibility? So that debate came up at the time, and now this is being heard in court, not about him, but about a different matter involving the Borgata. So that'll be our last topic, and I'll give you my opinion on it too. All right, let's move on and talk about some GG Poker stuff. Jason Kuhn has made an unexpected announcement. I didn't see this coming. Jesse Martin said he saw it coming. Jesse Martin's a pretty bright guy, but I didn't see it coming. Now, to be fair, Jesse Martin didn't announce he saw it coming beforehand, but he said that he saw it coming. Jason Kuhn posted on February 7th, GG Poker and I have gone our separate ways. I wish them continued success at GG Poker. That's the entire tweet. GG Poker and I have gone our separate ways. He was an ambassador there. He was one of the faces of the site. The main face was Daniel Negroni, which still is. But Jason Kuhn was very prominent. And he's a high-stakes tournament player. Very well-known, very respected in poker. But he was taking a lot of heat for the GG Poker scandals, especially the super user scandal recently. He was taking a lot of heat for being too easy on them and for basically being their mouthpiece. They're saying, hey, Jason, you have such a good reputation. Why are you sullying your stellar reputation in the poker room by being associated with all this shit? He kept getting this from people. And in fact, I saw some people being very, very aggressive towards him. Some saying that they're going to go track him down in person and confront him about everything on GG Poker and what they've been doing wrong and how they've been screwing people, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, that's kind of uh, disturbing for him to have to think about that he'll be at the World Series and some angry dude's going to get in his face and confront him about GG Poker issues when he's just an ambassador for it. So I saw some of those tweets. But anyway, he just announced in a very terse fashion here that he's just leaving. He didn't thank them. He said nothing positive about them. He just said, GG Poker and I have gone our separate ways. I wish them continued success. Now, maybe you'll say, well, that's nice. He's wishing them continued success. But that sounds 
not very sincere. You have to look at what he doesn't say rather than what he did say. Because it's unlikely he's going to show up there and say, GG Poker is a piece of shit site. They're unethical. I am so bothered by everything going on there and the way they're handling it that I'm leaving. Don't play here. The site sucks. You can't trust them. Goodbye. He's not going to write that for various reasons. One, it could be violating something he signed in the contract about non-disparagement. Number two, it can make him look bad for promoting them for as long as he has. And number three, this is going to be the end of any other sponsorships he'll get in the future. Because any company that sees that's the way he ended the partnership with them, they're going to be afraid to touch him in the future. So for those reasons, he's not going to just come out and bash them. But that doesn't mean he's going to leave and say nice things. So if he's leaving amicably, let's say he's just tired of being an ambassador. Let's say he feels he just doesn't need the money because he's doing well enough in poker and playing high stakes. The money just isn't worth it. Let's say he doesn't want to deal with psychos harassing him who lose on GG and somehow blame it on him. But at the same time, he feels very warmly about GG and really likes them and likes the ownership, likes the management. He just doesn't want to do it anymore. Well, at that point, you leave with a very warm statement because it's not GG's fault that you're leaving. You just don't want to be there anymore. So in that case, he would say something like, I've decided to move on from my time at GG Poker. I really want to thank them for hiring me as an ambassador. It's been a great experience. I really think it's a great site with great software. I love the people I worked with here. I had a great time being an ambassador of GG Poker, and I'm very happy I did it. It's just time for a new chapter in my life. So that's the reason I'm not going to continue. But thank you to everybody at GG for having faith in me as your ambassador I hope to see you all at the tables in the future. I just made that up off the top of my head. But that's the type of typical statement someone would release if they're leaving on good terms. And then GG Poker would respond and say something like, Jason, we loved having you as ambassador. You're a very good representative of the game. You're a very well-respected member of the poker community. Having you in poker makes the game better. You're a great ambassador, not just for GG Poker when you were here, but for the entire game in general. So thank you for your time here and good luck for what you're doing. That's the exchange you would see if this were an amicable party. But that's not what we saw. We didn't see GG Poker saying anything. And Jason Kuhn made a two-sentence statement. GG Poker and I have gone our separate ways, which already is kind of harsh. He didn't say... I've chosen to end my time as an ambassador with GG Poker. It's we've gone our separate ways. Going our separate ways usually is not a positive statement about anyone or anything. If someone went up to me and said, Hey, Todd, weren't you doing a radio show with Brian Mikon at some point? If I said, yeah, we've gone our separate ways. Would you take that to mean that we have warm feelings toward one another, that everything ended well. No, you'd figure something happened and you'd be right. So that's what going our separate ways means. It doesn't mean you absolutely despise the person or the entity that you've separated from, but it means that you've separated from them and want everyone to know it. It means that there's a lot of 
issues you had with them and that you've completely separated yourself due to these issues. That's what gone our separate ways tends to mean rather than I've moved on to do some other things or I chose to leave for other challenges in my life, which sometimes also is bullshit. And it's just code for I had a problem and I left or they fired me. But at least sometimes that's true. But gone our separate ways, while I guess technically true, rarely has a positive connotation. And especially when it's not followed up with anything warm about his time there and with Gigi Poker not addressing it at all. This looks like it was a pretty harsh ending. But he did not want to put out a harsh statement. He just wanted to really let everybody know that he's leaving and that he's not very happy with them without directly saying it. So that was interesting to me. That was very interesting. We haven't heard anything more, but it was very interesting. Someone named Ben on on uh, Twitter said, I'm sure there's a backstory I don't know, but good on you. At this point, I'm not comfortable trusting any of the online sites. Now, he was part of what was known as the Integrity Council there, which was a group of people that was supposed to be ensuring game integrity. Now, this was originally started for a different purpose. This was originally more than just GG. There was a point right around, I think, when the Ali Imstravik scandal was hitting, the Ali Imstravik, Jake Schindler thing was happening. There was a point where people were really getting fed up with some of these bad actors in poker. And there was some talk about maybe putting together a council of respected people who would essentially blackball the worst offenders in poker and just encourage all sites and all tournament venues to just keep them out. And GG Poker was trying to put together something like this that would, at the very least, review the history of a lot of these players. And they were even considering taking on outsiders who weren't part of GG Poker to be part of this council. In fact, some people were recommending me for this and Jason Kuhn even messaged me at one point. This is a few years ago. But it never ended up happening. This was in uh, 2022. He DM'd me on July 2nd, 2022. said, Hi, Todd. I appreciate your work over the years. I'm messaging GG to see if there's anything we could potentially collaborate on. I agree you could make a good partner. And I thanked him. And I said, appreciate the gesture. Let me know if there's any interest. And they never got back to me. By the way, this is like a few weeks after Gigi had invited me to their party out of nowhere, which I I still don't understand, but I was invited to their party and I went and I met the owner and everything. I've told you guys about that. I don't think after everything I've been doing recently, I'm coming to any of their parties in the future by them not inviting me, that is. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever be invited to another Gigi poker function ever again. I'm sure they're very annoyed with me right now. But back then, I hadn't talked much about them. So I guess they felt more comfortable inviting me. They didn't invite me in 23. So maybe by then they already soured on me some. But they were considering adding me to do something along those lines. Not as like an ambassador or anything, but to help with some sort of uh, evaluation of cheating or players with bad reps or whatever it might be. But it never ended up happening. There was never any kind of discussion aside from that one DM exchange. 
By the way, he just DM'd me like that. I hadn't talked to him at all about this. Jason Kuhn is well-respected. People think he's a good guy. Some people were questioning, why are you staining your otherwise stellar reputation with continued association with this site that is having increasing scandals? Now, GG Poker is the biggest poker site in the world at the moment. They've passed PokerStars a while ago. They do still pay people, so they're not a no-pay site or anything like that. If you win money on GG and cash it out, they will pay you. But they've had a lot of scandals and issues recently. And I think Jason Kuhn just got tired of it. And I think it wasn't just a matter of getting tired of the drama and leaving, though that had to be part of it too. I have a feeling that he went to them and said he wasn't happy with a lot of this and the way they were handling this, and they probably told him too bad. This isn't your decision. You're just an ambassador, so we're doing it our way. If you don't like it, too bad. I'm just guessing here. Maybe that's not what happened. But there's something that pissed him off, and there's no way that it's independent of all the recent drama going on and all the recent scandals that have been going on involving GG Poker. There's no way those two are separate when he leaves in this fashion with this terse tweet that seems to indicate that he's pissed off. So I really think that he went to them and said, hey, we've got to change some things here. You've got to be more transparent with the people. I'm tired of taking heat because you guys are being opaque about so many of these scandals. And they probably said, nope, not your decision. Thank you for the suggestion, but no. And then he probably got tired of taking the brunt of this on Twitter as one of the representatives and quit. Maybe it's not too different from the way that Perry Friedman left full tilt and quit the board when he didn't like the way that Ray Bittar was running things and felt that they were headed for disaster. And basically they told him to shut up and that they were not going to change course. So he quit. He tried to oust Ray Bittar. He failed and he quit. So this may be similar, except Jason Kuhn does not own any part of GG, whereas Perry Friedman, who's one of the originals there at Full Tilt, did own part of Full Tilt. So he couldn't completely leave, but he quit the board and basically had no say from that point forward. This is in late 06. We talked about that recently on the show when it was revealed that Perry Friedman had passed away. So Jason Kuhn's not going to pass away anytime soon. He seems alive and well, and he's also not that old. But he has terminated his association with GG Poker. It's not clear to me if his contract was up or if he just outright quit in the middle of it. It's possible that his contract was coming up for renewal and he said, if I'm going to renew, A, B, and C needs to change. And they said, forget it. And he said, okay, I'm quitting. That could have been the situation. I don't know. It's possible that he was still on contract but had such a big argument with them that they mutually agreed to terminate it. And they did, and then he just made this terse announcement that he's leaving. Whatever happened, it wasn't good. Jason Kuhn joined GG Poker in 2021, and I don't think his contract was up. According to this article from Haley Hintz, who of course is a very reliable poker journalist, Jason Kuhn signed with GG Poker in October of 2021. This article from Haley was dated October 4th, 2021. 
It says, Kuhn was welcomed to the GG Poker team on Sunday, whatever that was, you know, sometime that week of October 4th, 2021, by GG Poker's most famed brand rep, Daniel Negreanu. So Negreanu basically introduced him to the world as a new GG Poker rep. Of course, Kuhn was well-known by that point, but that's when he joined GG. So for him to leave in February is not an even amount of time. February 2024 is two years and four months after October 2021. So no one's signing a contract for two years and four months. No one's going to sign a contract in October 2021 to end February 2024. It's just not going to happen that way. I could believe if it were on the half-year mark or the year mark. So let's say he had signed in February. And then he quits in February. Well, that would make sense. The contract's up. He doesn't want to continue. I could even believe if it's on a half-year mark. So if he had signed in August and then he quits in February. That's less common, but at least you can say, okay, it looks like just about exactly half a year. Four months is weird. So two years and four months is a weird point. This really just looks like he walked away. I don't think he broke a contract necessarily. I think he probably had so many arguments with them they just mutually agreed to, quote, go their separate ways. I mean, that's probably accurate. <laughs> it's probably, it wasn't a non-renewal. It was, let's go our separate ways. Maybe that's more accurate than we think. Because if you're on a contract, you can't just walk off or you're breaching the contract. Just like they can't stop paying you unless you've done something to break the terms. So if nobody's broken the terms, which I don't think either side had, then the only way to end it in the middle is by mutual agreement to go your separate ways. So that's that's what happened. He's telling the truth. So, wow, that's interesting. Seems like right in the middle of the contract, he just leaves. Again, probably with their agreement. But hmm, that's got to be pretty non-amicable, to say the least. And it's got to be about all this stuff. It's got to be about the heat he's been taking recently. This might have something to do with me. I'm not saying that I can take credit for this, but I was one of the people who was asking Jason Kuhn the same question I keep asking everybody at GG Poker and which they will not answer. It's a very simple question. Why was super user MoneyTaker69 caught cheating on December 16th and allowed to play for another week before he was banned? Why would you not ban a cheater right when you catch him cheating? Why could he continue to play for another week and continue cheating for another week? They claimed that they didn't know he could continue cheating. They thought they had closed the cheating loophole he was using. But why would he still allow... Why, why, why would you still let him play? <laughs> why? Why would you not ban him forever after catching up cheating? I don't care if you can stop the cheating. Why could he still play normally after being caught cheating? Why was he not banned? They admitted in their own statement that they caught him on December 16th, but there is very reliable data from hand histories showing that he played another full week. So I think the truth that they don't want to tell you is that there is more than one super user on there. That Money Taker was the one they caught on the 23rd, but they caught a different super user doing the same thing on December 16th. But they don't want to admit that because then it'll raise the questions of how many of them were there. 
They just don't want to discuss that. So they won't answer. Every time I ask this question, they won't answer. I asked Jason Kuhn that question multiple times, and he did not answer. So I think he got tired of it. Like he's not a dumb guy, obviously. So he probably knew I was asking a good question. He probably got tired of questions like that being thrown at him, and he couldn't answer them. Maybe they wouldn't even tell him. Maybe he went and asked that question to them. Maybe he said, hey, why did you let Money Taker keep playing for another week after being caught looking at everybody's equities while they were in the hand and basing his decisions on that, almost being like a super user? Why was he able to play for another week? Can you explain that? What can I tell the people? And if they said, well, we're not commenting on that, Jason, sorry, it's confidential. That might have pissed him off, especially being that he was on the Integrity Council. So he left. Well, that kind of leaves a hole, though. With Jason Kuhn leaving, that leaves a hole that there's another person leaving the Integrity Council. So GG Poker decided it was time to appoint someone who would be the official Poker Integrity Ambassador for GG Poker. Now, who could they appoint? They wanted it to be an existing site pro. They wanted it to be someone who would be willing to take that job and the scrutiny that comes with it. And they wanted to take someone who's been a good company man so far and stuck by them and not asked too many questions and not gotten too irritated when GG Poker has been opaque about their various scandals. So who's a good company man to do this? Someone who has been successful, especially in the last several years, and has just always been on the company side, and also seems less likely to kind of go rogue on them. Someone who's pretty likely to go along with what they say. What about Negranu? Would he be a good choice for that? Well, not really, because Negranu is now getting near 50 years old. He's very opinionated. He's his own man. He does take these lucrative sponsorships. And some people get mad when he won't comment about situations like these. But at the same time, it might be hard to just have Negranu constantly feed everybody the company line, especially in situations like these. It's one thing for Negranu just to not talk about it. It's another thing for him to just feed whatever GG Poker wants the public to hear. That's a whole additional level of dedication to the company that DeGranu at this point in his life and career probably does not want to do. But who might want to do that? Who might be willing to do that? What about Fedor Holtz? Could you see him doing that? I could see him doing that. Well, he's doing it. Fedor Holtz, of course, a young guy who burst onto the poker scene not too long ago, you know, several years ago, just kicking ass at everything. Still pretty young. I think he's like late 20s now. This is what he tweeted on February 7th. I'm excited to announce my new role as Poker Integrity Ambassador for GG Poker. Now, notice it's the same day that Jason Kuhn said he's leaving. Ensuring fair play and security will be my top priority. I am in direct contact with the security team and will involve myself more in the processes and directly contribute to enhance the security of games on GG. Let me stop right here. So he's not part of the security team. He's just in direct contact with them. 
but he's going to involve himself more in the processes and directly contribute to enhance the security of games on GG. I've got a question for you. Do you think that Fedora Holtz has any expertise in this type of security? Do you think he can help keep the games more secure? What does he bring to the table here, aside from just being a good player? The answer is nothing. I mean, really nothing. He doesn't bring very much to the table at all regarding that. He's young, so he doesn't have much life experience or maturity. He does not have any experience in any kind of online security field. He hasn't gotten involved in any online poker security matters. It's not like he's even been an amateur who's analyzed past scandals or anything. He just hasn't gotten involved in that. Really, all he's done is played poker and won. That's been his entire lifespan in the poker community, has been playing and winning, which is great for him, but that does not give him any qualifications to do this. So that's already a problem. You don't need a great player to do this. You don't even need a good player to do this. You just need someone who's good at this particular job. He went on to write, I understand the current environment comes with a lot of challenges in that regard with advancing technology, but I believe it's of the utmost importance to continuously improve security on online poker sites. I'll do my best to support and further that cause. Okay, that's a lot of lip service, but that doesn't mean anything. This reminds me somewhat of Nananoko's promotion to be the security liaison or whatever his position was at ACR. And people thought, oh, good, you know, Nananoko, he used to play so many tables at once. He was just a machine with playing all these hands together and winning money, just 18 tabling and really smart Asian guy. Okay, yeah, he'd be a good security guy. And I thought, no, he has no experience in security here. If I wanted a course on how to play 18 tables at once and win, yeah, he'd be a great guy to teach me that, but not security. I wouldn't put him on security. Where's his expertise in security? So, of course, when a situation came up on ACR where money was just disappearing out of people's accounts, when phantom withdrawals were happening, where withdrawals were being made out of people's accounts to crypto wallets that the owners of the accounts did not own, and did not request these withdrawals, that just phantom withdrawals were made and their money was being stolen, and it was mostly happening to unknown people. So these weren't even people with a big Twitter following where they could raise issue because no one would see it. So all these kind of nobody recreational players or grinders that just weren't known on social media, they were being victimized and not any kind of known player. So this was happening for, I think, like two months or something. And then finally... It was brought to me, and I amplified it. And so Nana Noko, he had been consulted prior to my involvement, and he just shooed everybody away. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll look into it, he'd say. And then nothing would happen. And people would keep asking him, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah, I don't really have any info. So the person who solved the whole thing was me, a non-employee of ACR who had no access to their systems. I'm the one who solved what was happening. And then they closed the loophole gave an explanation, which I kind of half-believed, and that was that, and that was fixed. But had I not gotten involved, who knows how long that would have happened. And I put out an angry tweet to Nanonoko at the time that basically I did his job, which I did. And I was not in contact with the security team, and I did not have any 
inside connection there to find out or see what was going on. I did all this from the outside. Why? Because I would be good to do this for several reasons. But Nananoko, for all his intelligence and ability to play 18 tables at once and win, was not someone who was qualified to do this. Nor do I think Fedor Holtz is. So just putting a good player in that role is not what you want. That's not what they should be doing. So Fedor Holtz kind of seems to me like a company stooge. And it's easier to get a company stooge who's young than someone who's older. It's always easier to get younger people to do what you want. Easier to control them. Easier to influence them. Even young people who have money, like Fedor Holtz. Young people who are attached to companies are just more likely to do what they're told. Not just in poker. With all corporations, it's the way it is. If you want some company stooge to say whatever you want them to say, you're going to have a lot better shot with someone who's young and hungry and trying to move up than someone who's kind of older and established and has less incentive to want to do such a thing. Also, older people start to think more about, you know, is this right? Do I want my reputation to be defined this way? Or do I feel good about this? You you have more feelings about this as you get older. I don't mean like super old, but I mean, yeah, you get into middle age, you start to think more about this stuff as you get more mature. In fact, remember during the absolute poker scandal that they invited one of the big critics of the site to come tour their facilities and then have that person come back with a clean report. So they invited one person. There were a number of people who were very loud about them at the time. There was me. There was Serge Rudinsky. There was Nat Aram. And there were some others. But who did they pick? They picked Nat Aram. Because even though Nat Aram was a very smart guy, Nat Aram was the young one. I was 35. I think Serge was around the same age. They didn't want one of us older guys. Yeah, 35 wasn't old, but it wasn't that young either. They wanted to bring in the kid. They felt they could influence him. They didn't want to have to turn the head of someone who's older and more experienced in life. So that's why they chose him. So Fedor is uh, a young guy. And I think they realize that he's not going to be a Jason Kuhn. I think they realize that he will say what they'd like him to say. Yeah, within reason. If they're just like outright stealing from people or cheating people, I don't think he'll run defense for them on that. But uh, they're not doing that. They're not a scam site. I want to be clear about that. They're not a scam site. They're paying people out. And generally, you can go on GG Poker and play a fair poker game and get paid. But they have some problems. And they need someone who's willing to cover up these problems and make it look like that he cares about game integrity. And and Fedor has been selected for that role. So when he says, I'll do my best to support and further that cause, okay, you may say that I'm being too critical here. I'm being too negative. I'm too skeptical. I'm just making too many assumptions about the guy. Who cares if he's young? Maybe he really cares. Maybe he really is going to do his best to support and further the cause of poker integrity on GG. So I gave him a task. (laughs) I put him to the test. 
I said, okay, first task. This was my response on that same day, February 7th. GG Poker said it caught Money Taker 69 cheating on December 16th. I tweeted to him. He continued playing until December 23rd. Explain why he was allowed to play for a week after being caught cheating. I await your response. That was my tweet to him. That was on February 7th, the same day that he announced that he was now the new integrity ambassador, and he was going to do his best to further the cause of game integrity. Here's the response I got from him. Yeah, crickets. No response. And I asked him this a few days beforehand, too, before he became the ambassador. Again, crickets. He won't answer. He won't answer because he can't answer. Because if he answers, it's going to open up a new can of worms that they don't want to open. So that can of worms is going to stay closed. Now you might say, hold on a second, hold on. Maybe Fedor Holtz just does not want to dignify you with a response. Maybe he doesn't like you. Maybe he thinks you're just constantly nitpicking and he's tired of them dealing with you. Oh, but you'd be wrong. Because I got a response from Fedor today, but not about this. And I'll get to what that is very shortly. But you see, if Fedor has an answer, especially one that can make him look good or make GG look good, then I'll get an answer. If he does not have a good answer or one that will make GG Poker look good, then he will ignore you. And you can't really do that if you're the Poker Integrity Ambassador. If you want to call yourself a Poker Integrity Ambassador, you have to try to keep the game's integrity, which means answering all reasonable questions. And I think that question is extremely reasonable about their own statement. These are not guesses on my part. I'm going by their own statement, and I'm going by verified hand histories. Their own statement said they caught him on December 16th cheating, and the hand histories show he played till December 23rd. That's what everything shows here. So that's a great question that they will not answer. I'm not trying to be a GG hater. I don't have a problem with GG. If I did, I wouldn't have gone to their party back in 2022. And really nothing between me and them has changed since 2022 other than me being critical of their recent scandals. But it's not like something happened which pissed me off, nor do I have any kind of personal issue with any of their pros. I think highly of Jason Kuhn, though I don't really know him very well. I had no issue with Fedor. Uh, me and Negranu get along fine. So it's not any issue with any of these people that represent GG. I met the owner of GG. He seemed like a nice guy. Didn't get to know him well, of course, but in the interaction I had with him, he seemed nice. I appreciated they invited me to that party. So, you know, I... I'm not doing this out of any kind of axe to grind. I'm not trying to ruin their business. They've just got to be honest. Just be honest with us. That's all I want. Just be transparent and honest. This is a big scandal. This is a guy who is from the outside who was able to look at the hand equities of everybody at the table whenever he wanted, and he crushed. That's a pretty big deal. And they didn't ban him for a week after catching him. That's a pretty big deal, too. So they've got to be more transparent about what happened there, even if it doesn't make them look good. So that's my issue here. If you're going to be the biggest site in the world, which you are, it comes with some responsibility to act completely responsibly. And I don't think they are in all ways. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. 
That's my problem. They fix these things. They become transparent. I will give them props, and I will give it a big thumbs up and move on. But when they avoid answering me, yeah, I'll keep pressing, you know? I don't represent another site. I'm not looking for them to fail. I have no love of their competition. And if you don't believe me, look it up. You'll find no evidence, because there is no evidence, that I have any connection to any other site or any issue with them. But this stuff just doesn't make sense. But you can't call yourself a poker integrity ambassador and avoid questions like this and only answer the questions that you think you've got a good response for. So some people were already giving it to Fedor and telling him he's a sellout and telling him they once respected him, they can't believe he's taking on this role, and they think he's not going to really do anything seriously and that he doesn't have any qualifications. There's been a lot of hate on Fedor since then. He did make a tweet recently addressing some of the hate he's been getting. He said, there's resentment coming my way from some players for the new role I've taken. I understand. My intention is to increase the health and security of the ecosystem on GG and beyond. I believe this position is a unique chance to have a positive impact and channel the valuable feedback some community members are giving. There will always be bad actors in the game trying to exploit the system. We have to focus on solutions, not problems, making it as hard for them as possible. Maybe it was unclear from the last post. My main focus and time spent on will be RTA, collusion, and bots. Detection methods are improving already, and there will be lots of progress being made this year. I'll keep posting about progress. So now he's kind of narrowed his focus, saying that really what he's going to be doing is looking into stopping real-time assistance, collusion, and bots. Now, bots are very important to stop, as we've discussed recently with the ACR matter. So that's fine to spend time on detecting and destroying bots. Collusion, eh, you know, collusion something that's not rampant. Obviously, very obvious versions of collusion, blatant versions, need to be taken care of, but that's not a huge stain on the online poker landscape. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's just not a big percentage of the cheating, nor money illicitly gained. So that is something that really shouldn't be a main focus. And RTA, which is known as real-time assistance, yeah, it's, it's good to clamp down on that too, but this is not high up in the hierarchy of things you got to take care of. Number one importance is to stop any kind of blatant cheating like what happened with Money Taker 69, where people just blatantly cheat through the system, where they can either see whole cards or get an idea of what people's whole cards are through exploiting problems with the system. That's number one. That's the number one priority. Now, I agree that not being on the security team directly and not having a technical skill set that he can't really focus on that. But uh, that should be number one priority. And number two should be bots. And along with bots comes verification. Because if you can't verify who's signing up for your site, then that makes it much easier for bots to be there. So bots really should be kind of the number two focus after just preventing outright cheating from a security standpoint. And then there's all the other stuff behind that. RTA really shouldn't be a main focus, and collusion especially shouldn't be. But I think he might be posting that so he doesn't have to answer questions about what happened with Money Taker. In fact, maybe that's what they told him. 
He posted this eight days after his first post, so he had some time to think about it and consult with GG, and maybe he was going to them and say, hey, you know, some guys like Todd are trying to demand more info about what happened in December with Money Taker, and I don't know what to tell him. How do I avoid dealing with these type of topics when they're demanding an answer out of me? And maybe the answer was, okay, well, just tell everybody this isn't your department. Tell them that you're focusing on RTA collusion and bots. So he posted that. He got a mixed response to this. Some people were saying, you're always going to get haters. Don't worry about it. You had others saying you're not qualified. You had others saying that he's not going to really do anything, that he's going to just give lip service and not really accomplish anything. Someone even made reference to that thing I talked about, that integrity council from back in 2022 that they even considered adding me to, where... That never happened. Someone wrote, hopefully you follow through with your word, unlike what happened with the poker integrity group that was made at WSOP 2022. Another person wrote, come on, you're on the wrong side of history. Some positive comments like, good on you, Fedor, all the best, or congratulations on the new role. Great to see you're going to change things for the better. And someone wrote, you say your focus is collusion and bots, yet your only tweets and GG's new policy regarding shark scope and hand histories only limit the ability for the public to catch collusion and bots. And yet you've responded to none of these concerns. Now, let me get to that. That was from a guy named uh, ASG. And ASG is right. And this is a concern. See, how was Money Taker 69 caught? He was caught by data mining. He was caught by keeping track of all the hands he was playing and seeing how much he was winning and his stats and the way he played the hands. And the conclusion was that it was impossible for him to have the win rate he did, which was a tremendous win rate, with the way he was playing. He was playing a style where he was entering way too many hands and staying in them way too long and way too much aggression, and there's no way with the number of hands he played that he could have had the success he did. He should have lost a ton. In fact, it was shown that the way he was playing, if he didn't have additional info on his opponent's whole cards, that he should have not even broken even. It was shown that in the luckiest streak that you'd expect him to have in that sample space, he would still lose. He wouldn't even break even. And yet, he crushed. So it wasn't even that he finished even with a terrible play style. He took that terrible play style and crushed, and that was because he had additional info on what people thought were the whole cards, but it was pretty close. It was the hand, the equities of each hand, where you can deduce the whole cards, and you can see where you are at all times, whether you were ahead or behind of your opponents. So... That was verified. Even GG Poker admitted that's what happened. But this was caught not by GG Poker. It was caught by the players. It was players reporting Money Taker that eventually had him shut down on the 23rd of December. Even though they claimed they caught him on the 16th, that doesn't make any sense because he kept playing through the 23rd of December. And he was cheating through the 23rd of December. So he was caught by data mining. So some people say, oh, data mining is awful. Data mining allows people to analyze everyone's play styles and develop the perfect strategy against everybody. And it allows them to bum hunt the bad players and uh, only sit when they're sitting. That these are bad things. All, all these minings of player data and player hands that we have to put a stop to this. And people are saying back, no, it's good to have this stuff because this allows the community to police the games and to catch people like Money Taker 69 and to prove that they're winning at a rate that is unrealistic, that doesn't make sense unless they're cheating. 
So while GG Poker has not said that they're eliminating hand histories or completely doing away with any kind of ability to data mine them, it's already kind of implied that they might do this. So here's what Fedor said on February 13th. I believe we all cherish poker in its purest form, mind versus mind. That's why my first security priority is the strict limitation of usage of mind data with HUDs. It's more than unfair. It's predatory. Heads is, uh, HUDs is heads up displays, so you can see stats on each player. GG Poker will be stepping up enforcement against harmful third-party software. There's lots of other big challenges ahead, but I think this is an important step in the right direction for fair play online. So somebody pointed out in response to this, Fedora, have you ever seen how these studies are made? It needs billions of hands to see details properly. No one needs 50K of a specific player to understand how he plays. This, this would even be a low sample. This is more about GG not giving the proof of safety of the games. So then Fedora Hall said back, the points you make are flawed. There's a big difference between analyzing your own played hands and illegally sourcing hands from other players. So then this guy wrote back, yeah, these, quote, illegal sourcings caught your super user. You don't say what's legal or not. You're not the law, which is true. You know, with Fedora Hall saying it's illegal to take other people's hand histories. That's not true. It's not illegal. You don't say what's legal or not. You're not the law. You can say what is against your terms of service because you don't trust in the security of your games and don't want to provide the proof for your customers. Ouch. <laughs> He's right, though. He's right. It is not making GG Poker more secure to stop data mining. You've got to allow data mining if you want a site that's secure. Let everybody see the stats of these players, and this way the community can catch anybody who is an extreme outlier. And then they can report it to GG, who of course can see a lot more. They can see all the whole cards, GG Poker. And then they can analyze whether this person's cheating. But to take this ability away is crazy. And it really sounds like that's the direction they're going, because he said there's a big difference between analyzing your own played hands and illegally sourcing hands from other players. So first of all, it's not illegal, as this opponent of Fedora's called out. But also, they're basically saying you're going to see your own hand histories, but you're not going to be able to look at others. So it sounds like the direction they're going is that all hands you're involved with, that they'll still provide that to you. But they're going to make it difficult or impossible to just get hands of running games from the outside. So in this, you're involved in the hand, you're not going to be able to get the history. They'll give you all your hand histories, but you're not going to see any hand histories that you're not involved with. Maybe they'll show them to you if you're at the table and sitting out or something. But maybe not even then. Maybe you have to be dealt into the hand to get the hand history. I think that's the direction they're going. And that makes it very tough to data mine, very tough to draw any conclusions, because you're not there enough to get a proper sample for other players. So yes, of course there's a downside to allowing too much data mining, is that they can start creating profiles on players, they can start looking at who's winning and who's losing and publish that. There's a lot of different downsides to data mining from a privacy standpoint. But as far as keeping the games clean, you can't have anything better. So the fact that they did not catch the super users, that it was the users catching it through data mining, shows that 
this is necessary to still be there. Obviously, the GG security team's not very good. It wasn't just that the software had this flaw. It was that the security team didn't catch it when these outlandish win rates were showing up with play styles that just couldn't manage to do it. So that's a big thing if they're going to be removing that stuff. They haven't done it yet, but they're talking about it. That's not a good thing. Then something was brought to me. Now, this is where I'm going to have to tell you that what was brought to me was not inaccurate info, but it was old info. So Fedor responded to this one, which I'll get to after I tell you what I brought to them. It was responded because I was partially wrong here. And I was wrong in the way that the info I was bringing wasn't current. But I think it's more current than they're letting on, just not with the exact same details. So let me tell you what this is about. A player on GG came to me and told me that there was a skin of GG Poker, meaning you could access their network and play all the same games, called 2Play4Win. That's number two, the word play, the number four, and then win. 2Play4Win. And that 2Play4Win, in addition to being a regular skin, also was allowing people to get onto GG with basically no verification. That it had the agent model. Now, let me explain what an agent model is and how that differs from an affiliate. An affiliate is just someone who advertises for the site. So, like, hypothetically, Poker Fraud Alert could be an affiliate for GG Poker, where I would have really no connection to GG Poker. I'd have no access to any of their accounts, anything like that. I would have a link on my site or a banner on my site that people would click on and then sign up. And then I would get a piece of the profits, either the rake they generate or I'd get a flat rate for when they sign up and deposit real money, something like that. That would make me an affiliate. But this isn't about affiliates. I'm talking about agents. Agents typically are ones who operate on these smaller apps like Poker Bros. And agents basically handle all of the administration on these poker apps. They do the deposits, they do the cash outs, and they do the player recruitment and management. And all the site or network or app does is provide the games themselves and keep track of who's winning and losing. The agent is the one who actually processes all the money gets people on there, and deals with them, where the network does not. That's the agent model. The agent model is also different from the skin model. The skin model is where there's another way to play on the same network and same game, same players, just through a different branded site. And usually in the skin model, all the verification and deposits and cash outs are done by the network. The skin is just another way in there with different branding. It's basically a different way to market it. And the skin takes some of the rake, and then the network takes some of the rake. That's the skin model, and that's existed for many, many years. That's not not just on GG. The agent model, though, really puts too much power in the hands of the agent and not enough power in the hands of the network actually providing the games. So in this case, the network, of course, is GG Poker, where you can access their site and their games and their network, everything you can access on GG. But the agent is the one who manages the players. So the agent can bring on whomever they want. And GG has no questions about it, typically. They can. They can technically challenge it, but apparently they don't, or it's not common. So an agent 
can bring on anyone. The agent is the one who's expected to do the verifications, and as long as he says he verified, then they trust him. And the agent also does all the deposits and withdrawals. So it's very easy to get money on and off GG through an agent. You may have heard me discuss agents and GG poker before, because that's when the whole Bryn Kenny scandal came to light. Remember all that? Remember that big scandal where Bryn Kenny was accused of multi-accounting and ghosting through the horses that he was backing? And this was mostly alleged to have occurred on GG Poker back when Bryn Kenny had a relationship with them, and he was an agent there, and he was bringing people on there, and he was processing all the deposits and withdrawals, and... There were also allegations that he was bringing on players to play from the U.S. where they're not allowed to play. Now, that's the least of the concerns here, but I'm just saying that's how much power the agents have. The agents can just bring on anybody, say he verified them, and Gigi won't get involved in verifying who that person really is. And the agent deposits and withdraws the money for that person. So the problem with the agent model is that it puts too much trust in this one person. And if that person goes rogue and decides to do their own thing, then the network security is compromised, basically. The games themselves aren't compromised directly. But for example, let's say an agent sells out to someone with a bot farm. So someone wants to get a thousand bot accounts on there. Well, it's hard to register a thousand bot accounts to a regular site and have to verify each of these people. You have to get a thousand different individuals to sign up for it, which isn't easy to come up with. Like, if I challenged you to get a thousand people to sign up for a poker site right now, I bet you'd have a hard time rounding up a thousand people to sign up. Even if you could play all the accounts yourself or have bots play on them and they'd never have to do much. But you'd have a hard time finding a thousand people you knew to agree to do this and send in their ID and all that. It's a hard thing to do. So let's say you want a thousand accounts on there and you have a bot farm. That's very hard to do with a traditional site. But the way that this can be done easily is through an agent, because you find a corrupt agent, and he's in cahoots with you, and he can allow you to sign up a thousand accounts, and he can tell GG Poker, hey, I verified all these thousand people. They're cool. They're good. The, the names they're putting down, the addresses they're putting down, it's all good. We checked. It's real. So those thousand bots would get right on there, and then... They could be instantly funded because the agent controls the deposits and withdrawals. And if any of them get banned, no problem. They could just create another one. Because again, the verification is all on the end of the agent. So listen to this ad that was sent to some people. It wasn't publicly on the web, but it was sent to some people directly regarding getting on GG Poker from the US. It says Play on GG from the U.S. with vouched balances. We are partnering directly with a skin owner, someone who owns and operates a skin of GG called 2Bet4Win. This deal for GG Network is directly from the owner of 2Bet4Win. It's the same player pool and software as the rest of GG, so it's an identical grinding experience to GG Poker and Natural 8. Natural 8 is the second biggest skin on GG behind GG itself. They've assured us that we can sign players up in restricted countries as long as they VPN to a neighboring unrestricted country such as Brazil. So basically they're saying 2Bet4Win has assured us. And the us here is, is some kind of agent of 2Bet4Win. So it's not the owner of 2Bet4Win, but it's an agent that 
is working with 2-bet-4-win. He's saying the 2-bet-4-win has assured the, them that uh, the verification can all be done on their side and GG won't get involved. And you can use a VPN and, and uh, it'll be fine if you're from a country you can't play, like the U.S. If the network requires the account to be verified, which will be uncommon, we'll handle that for you. Wow. So they're saying right there, we're doing the verification of the network interference, which is uncommon, but once in a while, the network will say, hey, prove who you are. We will handle that for you, which means that they'll either talk GG out of it or maybe that they'll send false documentation. I don't know, but we'll handle that for you. Wow. Since we have this deal directly from the owner, we have internal visibility to how they operate the skin and network. They have sent a large number of players from restricted countries via the system, and a don't ask, don't tell policy is the status quo for the network. GG Network is aware of what they're doing, and they allow it as long as you don't violate the rules listed below. Wow. So they're basically saying GG Poker is looking the other way. They're very aware that a lot of people are coming on from restricted countries. Just follow our rules. Don't make waves. And everybody's cool with it. So what are the rules? You have to use a VPN that has a kill switch and a dedicated IP. We recommend ExpressVPN, which has these features. You cannot bum hunt, meaning you can't try to only wait for players that are really bad and sit with them and then sit out as soon as they leave. Doing so will result in your account being banned. You cannot play play larger than 500 no limit or pot limit, meaning that any game that the default buy-in is 500 or more, or more than 500 you won't be able to play. You can't play high-profile tournaments. This deal is primarily for cash players that play small to mid-stakes and non-high-stakes tournament players. You cannot stream while playing these tables. So basically they're saying you can't be public that you're playing on GG. You can't stream. You can't play any tournaments that get a lot of visibility. We don't want you winning one of them and getting a lot of notice. You can't play high or even middle-high cash games. But if you want to grind small and middle stakes and not really big or prominent tournaments here, then our network is for you. The account balances are guaranteed not only by us, but also the skin owner directly, namely three multiple entities guaranteeing the funds, which is far superior to an agent vouching. Any issues related to the nature of the account playing on the VPN, etc. are covered by us. So basically they're saying... Don't panic if, if you're playing on a VPN and you're worried that you're going to win something and then GG's going to catch that you're on a VPN and take the funds. Don't worry. We're guaranteeing that if your funds get seized over these matters, that we're going to cover it. Wow. General risks of playing on GG, which all players in the network are exposed to, are not covered. This includes GG going out of business or other black swan events. In addition, our voucher does not cover cheating, collusion, or other site-wide restrictions. Prohibited software use such as HUDs will usually result in a warning and never a balance confiscation, but that's not covered either. So they're basically saying, if you get in trouble because you're playing through us with a VPN, we're going to cover it and pay your balance anyway. If you get in trouble for general reasons, such as cheating, collusion, stuff like that, there we're not covering it. So our guarantee is only for the VPNing, that if you get busted for that, will cover your funds. Funding your account. All deposits and withdrawals will be done through us via Bitcoin, not through the in-client cashier. Very important. They're saying here that they can put money in your account by you sending money to them directly, that you're not going to use the cashier within the GG network. Breakback. 
30% net revenue affiliate side rake back will be paid out through us. And this is in addition to any kind of house rewards. Most players on this end receive 50 to 65% total rake back. Links to download the 2Bet4 Win client are provided. Once you've made them, give us your email and screen name. For the location, leave a vague address, a city in Brazil. So you had to pretend you're from Brazil when you're playing here from the U.S. So that was 2Bet4 Win. This was sent to me. So I brought this up to Fedor. I confronted him there and said, here's something I'd like you to look at. I didn't send him what I just read you. I just made reference to it and summarized it. And I said that this allows banned players and bots to get on the network, because that's the problem here. I don't care so much that U.S. players get onto GG Poker. That's not my problem. You know, I don't really care about that. That's not threatening game integrity. The problem is when there's no verification of who gets on there. Then you can have bots. You can have cheaters. You can have previously banned players getting right back on the network if they're not managing who's getting on there and who's getting verified. So I explained all this, and Fedor did respond. He said, that's a factually false statement. The skin that you're referring to closed two years ago. Well, I had a little bit of egg on my face. This was today, by the way. A little bit of egg on my face. And I go, oh boy, I hate when people give me the wrong info. (laughs) Once in a while, this happens to me that someone very convincingly gives me info with convincing screenshots, and I trust it, and I publicize it, and it turns out that they were wrong. I haven't had it where someone maliciously gives me false info, but just sometimes they have the wrong or old info, and that's what happened here. Apparently, Fedora is correct that this site has already gone down, the skin this 2-bet-4 win. I wonder if they were just thrown off the network because GG Poker caught wind of what they were doing. I don't know if it's been two years. Some people are saying that they played on it more recently than two years, but it is generally agreed that 2-bet-4 win is gone. So does that mean I'm wrong? Does that mean this has already been handled and I'm hassling him over a problem which has been fixed? Not necessarily. Because... I have still been getting people telling me that while 2Bet4Win is indeed gone, that the agent model still exists in other ways. So I wrote back to him, I guess the example I was sent was old. Sorry about that. Can you state for the record that no agents capable of creating accounts and managing deposits or withdrawals exist on GG now? If so, then the problem's been solved, but I'm hearing such agents still exist. So all he has to say back at that point is, yes, we've completely done away with the agent model. So Bryn Kenny was once an agent. I know he's not anymore, but you know he could do all this, and this 2-bet-4-win, they could do it. And other people have said that they've had other agents. So all you have to say, Fedora, is yes, we've completely eliminated the agents. They don't exist anymore. All verifications go through us. All deposits, all withdrawals go through us. That's all they had to say. And then... I'll trust him and I'll drop it. But he's not saying it. He's not answering. So the one thing he answered, he wouldn't answer about Money Taker. I've asked him that twice. He's ignored that. And he's not answering me now about whether there's any agents. The only thing he answered is about 2Bet4Win. Because there he could say, that's false. 2Bet4Win has been gone. So notice he's quick to answer me when there's something he can refute. 
Jesse M., who goes by Jesse LM86 on Twitter, wrote, They exist, referring to agents. They get rakeback deals. They pass some rakeback to the players. They sign up and take a percentage of each player's rakeback for themselves. They process deposits and withdrawals, and that doesn't affect the rakeback received. Whereas the if the player deposits go through GG, that affects the rakeback. So basically he's saying, yeah, there's still agents out there. It's not with two bet four win, but there's still agents out there. There can't be agents if they want a secure site. You have to have control of who plays on there. And what's interesting is responding within this same thread is someone named VIP GG Poker, who I doubt really represents GG Poker, who wrote, you need a GG account? DM us. (laughs) They're not even hiding it. They're not even hiding it. Someone, I, I don't know, maybe it's a troll, maybe it's not true, but someone there is trying to advertise that they can get you a GG account. Just DM them. Why do they still have these agents? Why? They're a huge site. The agent thing is what you use when you're a small operation and you basically need these agents to bring players in for you. You need them to market for you. You need them to manage things for you. You're just a, a small-time thing. You, you can't handle all this on your own. You don't have the budget to handle this on your own. You can't hire staff on your own. You need the agents to do a lot of this work. And then they get a piece of the action. That's why you have the agent model. You don't have it when the freaking biggest site in the world. You get rid of it at that point. Even if you needed it seven years ago, you get rid of it now. You should go to all the agents and say to them, thank you for your service. We're converting you to affiliates. So you can still sign people up. You'll still get a piece of their rake. And anybody you've previously signed up, you'll still get a piece of their rake. That's not changing. But you cannot sign up anybody new. You have to just link to our sign-up process, and then we will verify them. And you cannot deposit or cash out for them. We will handle that as well through our cashier screen. So we're taking that ability away from all agents. You're now affiliates. That's all they need to do. Why do they still have agents? I don't know. It's very weird. It's very strange why they still have agents. As long as they have agents, they can't claim that they're a secure site because there's no control of who comes into the site and there's no verification of who's there. There's no point to even ban anyone if there's this agent system because anyone can come right back. No response on that, though. No response so far. I don't think I'll get a response. I think what I'm going to get from Fedora is... And this is why it's hard to be a player integrity ambassador. Because you've really got to have the strength of your convictions. You've really got to be able to answer all questions like these. It's one thing if you're going to ignore dumb or conspiratorial questions like, hey, how can you prove that this site isn't rigged? You know, because when I was on there two days ago, I got dealt aces and another guy got dealt kings and another guy got dealt eights and the board came king eight four and i'm like what's the chance that i'm going to be in third on that flop on a board like king eight four but yep i'm against kings and eights and a bunch of money went in and i got stacked and i think it was rigged can you prove it wasn't rigged like he doesn't have to answer that that's just typical rigging paranoia that people have whenever they take bad beats or go through a bad run in online poker. So I understand why he doesn't have to answer questions like that. But good questions like this about the agents, about the 
money taker 69 situation anything that's an intelligent question he needs to address and he's not he's only addressing things that he has a good answer to so he's not off to a good start as the player integrity ambassador so that's all bad news another thing that has been brought up this isn't really a scandal but it's interesting it has to do with gg patrick howard analyzed the most prolific 1-2 no-limit players on GG Poker and found something quite interesting, that most of these players with the highest volume of hands played are actually losing before rakeback. He did not show any screen names. He blocked those out. But he showed that the Number one prolific player, and this is all time on the site for each of these screen names, had 1.8 million hands. Now, this person was a winner. They won about 1.1 big blinds per 100 hands played. But then if you go down, for example, the number four most prolific player had slightly over a million hands and had lost... 4.1 big blinds per 100. The seventh most prolific player played 925,000 hands and lost 2.3 big blinds per 100. The eighth most, 921,000 hands, lost 0.4 big blinds per 100. Then the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th lost between 0.4 and 4.5 big blinds per 100, playing between 682,000 and 797,000 hands each. Going down the list, then, we also have the 17th most prolific player, 19th, 20th, 22nd, and 23rd, all being net losers before rakeback. Now, some of these people can keep playing without actually losing money because they play so many hands they get so much rakeback that they actually are pushed above even. But isn't that interesting? The best one I see on this list is the number 18 player who threw 648,000 hands is up 3.6 big blinds per 100. And he's only up 46,487 on the site before rakeback. So what he's showing here is that these games are actually pretty tough. That these very high-volume grinders that most of them are actually losing when you take out the rake and don't give them any rake back yet. Now, these two people get rake back, but he's just showing that these games have gotten very tough. And he's also suspicious that the reason it's so tough is because there's a lot of bots there. There's an unrelated scandal to all of this happening right now, and it seems like it's more of something out of stupidity than anything malicious. But this is another dumb thing on GG Poker. And, of course, Fedora is not commenting on this either. A player showed up on 2 Plus 2 under the name 6BetFold. And he wrote this. Good day, everyone. I'm the one who won the top bounty in the Mystery Million main event. You know, the World Series has Mystery Millions. Well, they do on GG, too. That's uh, where one of the bounties will be a million dollars. I received a letter from GG Poker... Natural 8, so this person's actually playing the Natural 8 skin, but it's the GG network, 
about the top bounty being 780k instead of the million that's guaranteed. Let me stop there. He's basically saying that he played an event with a guaranteed million dollar top bounty, just like at the World Series of Poker, and that instead the top bounty was 780k, which is short 220k. And he said that he got an email from GG Poker acknowledging that this was the case. So then he wrote, and their solution to keep the promise, that is the promise of the top bounty being a million dollars, their solution to keep the promise was to split the other 220,000 with everyone, which in my opinion is unfair. (laughs) You think? You think when they short this guy 220K and then emailing him and saying, okay, well, we know we shorted you 220K on that million dollar bounty, but to make up for it, we're going to give it to you and everybody else who played. So here's a few dollars. You think that's a bit unfair? Like, why is anyone else getting this? The promise is for 1 million top bounty, he writes. So the one who was affected is me, not the other 50,000 players or the 5,000 in the money because they have won more than they're supposed to. I'm the only one who lost this amount. This tournament is $1 million for the top bounty. Surely that's the main reason many play- players joined and hunted it. I think that is the promise they should keep of the guaranteed not splitting money. They said that it was due to a technical problem, server crash the day before the event, and their solution after the event finished was to split the 220 k among all 50,000 people who entered, giving them about $4 each. (laughs) But it should be going to the top bounty winner as they promised. Oh my gosh. They gave $4 each to every single registered player of the 50k that had entered that event. Not 50k cashing. Anyone who entered that event got four bucks. <laughs> that came from this guy. Oh my God. Now, now, how could they be that dumb? Well, I'm not sure how they can be that dumb, but there's a bit more to the story. This guy is not an English speaker, is his first language. So he didn't quite explain it right. But more came out later that clarified it somewhat, but still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. So here's what really happened. Notice he mentioned that there was a server crash the day before the event. Now, you may ask, what does that have to do with anything? If they got the server back up by the time it started, who cares? Well, apparently this server crash caused the million-dollar mystery bounty event to revert to have no guarantee. Or it, I guess it changed the setting to where it gave enough money for the guarantees but didn't... Uh, distribute it in the way that the guaranteed one would have. So I guess this million top bounty guarantee, the way it would work, is there would be a certain percentage of the prize pool that was for the bounties. They would take a million dollars off the top of that and give it to the one lucky winner of that bounty. And then the rest of it, they would split up proportionately with you know some other big prizes along the way. I don't know what they are. Yeah, you know, let's say they have 100,000, 50,000, 20,000, all the way down. So they kind of split up the rest among whatever money was remaining. So they weren't adding money here or anything. There was not going to be an overlay like in a regular guarantee event. They're just basically guaranteeing that the top bounty is going to be a million, and then they adjust everything else from there, depending upon how many people enter. So that got lost somehow when the server crashed and they brought the server back up. Somehow that guarantee part 
wasn't programmed in anymore. Maybe they restored an old version or old data, whatever it was. Once it came back up, it clobbered that guarantee that had been written into that particular event. So when the event went off, it didn't know about the 1 million guarantee, and it just set the bounties proportionately, and it picked 780K as the top bounty as it normally would, given the distribution that it would do from the number of people that entered. So it just didn't get to a million. If they had more entries, it would have gotten to a million, but it had 50,000 entries. So I guess that corresponded to the top bounty being 780K and down from there. It just didn't have the million guarantee programmed into it anymore. So that's why it happened. And I believe that. I think that's the truth. So then when it was over, they had to fix this, obviously. They guaranteed a million. They had to fix this. So the very easy fix would be give 220K to the winner of that top bounty. Because after all, he's the one who got screwed. All they were guaranteeing is the top bounty. They weren't guaranteeing the other bounties being any higher. They were just saying the top bounty we guarantee is a million. And because of this crash the day before, that got clobbered. So it no longer was a million. So the very simple solution, the obvious solution would be put 220K more on that guy's bounty. Give him 220K more into his account. Now, where did the 220K come from? Did it come from the prize pool? No, that came out of Gigi's pocket. So in one way, it was nice that they didn't try to worm out of this and actually made it right out of their own pocket. They could have just said, well, look, the proper amount was given away to everybody combined in in bounties. You guys didn't get screwed there because the other bounties that weren't the million were actually higher than they would have been otherwise. So it all worked out. Just the guy on top who already got 780K, which is a lot, he at least got a lot of money though not as much as a million. And overall, we gave away what we said we we're going to give away, so that should be fine. They didn't say that. They actually added 220K in there. But for whatever reason, and nobody can figure this out, instead of giving the 220K on top, they said, well, let's just distribute this to everybody. <laughs> so here's $4, guys. Enjoy your $4 each. Winners and losers. Everybody gets $4. Don't spend it all in one place. Go out to Starbucks and buy a coffee with it. Like, seriously. <laughs> they spent 220 k of their own money to put $4 in everybody's account. That's baffling. Isn't that strange? Why would they do that? And nobody really knows. Nobody understands why this mistake was made. And Fedora won't comment. Nobody will comment what happened here. So I guess after making this mistake, the right thing to do would be to give this guy the 220K. You know, spend another 220K out of their own pocket because they made this boneheaded mistake. They can't take the $4 away from everybody at this point, but they can give another 220 to where it should have gone. But isn't that crazy? Like it's being discussed on 2 plus 2 and people can't really wrap their heads around this. It's so weird. It's so weird. Maybe there's something I don't understand here, but that's... What I've understood so far is what happened. Why would you distribute this to everybody else? Everybody else actually did better. The people who didn't cash and didn't get a bounty wouldn't have anyway. They still would have gotten zero. The people who hit bounties actually got more than they would have otherwise had it been done right. So they don't need extra money. The people who didn't get bounties got paid the same. The only person who got paid less was the guy on top. The guy who won the top bounty. He's the only one who got paid less because of this error. So why refund everybody else $4? They don't deserve it. (laughs) Why? It doesn't make sense. Someone tell me why. 
Oh my God, what are they doing over there? What are they doing over there? They seem so competent, and now, just like every few weeks, we're seeing such weird stories out of that place. What is wrong with GG Poker? But I'm sure Fedor Holtz will ignore that too, because that's what he's paid to do. Matt Berkey and Jonathan Little had a flap that got a good deal of attention. Jonathan Little, by the way, listens to this show. I've mentioned that before. And I should give you some background on these guys. And, and by the way, Negranu got into it too. In fact, it ended up a Negranu versus Berkey thing. But Jonathan Little is a very non-confrontational guy. As you probably know, he is a prolific tournament player. And he also has a poker training company. So that's basically what he does. And when he tweets, most of this is promotional for his poker training company. And in fact, he has a team that helps him. He admitted this recently, that he's not always the one tweeting, that sometimes it's people with access to his account who work for him who are putting out tweets to try to bring attention to his poker training company. But the takeaway you need to get here is that Jonathan Little is a very non-confrontational person, at the very least on Twitter. I don't know in real life, but at least on Twitter, he doesn't like confrontation. And I've never heard of him being in confrontation outside of Twitter. Like, I haven't heard that on the tournament scene he's ever been in any kind of real confrontation. So, he's just a non-confrontational guy. So, he's not a troll. He's not someone who likes to get into controversy. He's not someone who's opinionated on Twitter. He's really not. He's just very, very gentle on Twitter. Now, Matt Berkey is different than that. Matt Berkey is very opinionated. And I'm not saying this in a nasty way, because I am too. I express my opinion on Twitter a lot. And like Matt Berkey, I also have a show where I express my opinion further. And like Matt Berkey, I sometimes will piss people off with the opinions that I state, and same with him. So this isn't even an attack on Berkey in any way, because uh, when you compare our Twitter personas, I'm much more like Matt Berkey than Jonathan Little. But I have noticed that over time that Matt Berkey will take little shots at Jonathan Little, and I don't quite understand that. It just seems like he doesn't like him. And I don't know if it's because Matt Berkey also has a poker training company, or if there's some other reason that just Berkey doesn't like him. But it does seem that Berkey has something against him. And I've just noticed this over the years. I've just kind of seen things that Berkey's written about him. It just seems like little jabs are being taken here and there. And Little never responds because he just doesn't do that. So this all sprung from something that Jonathan Little claimed was originally something written by one of his staff members rather than by himself. But it doesn't really matter because it came from his account. So this was a tweet on January 24th, actually, by Jonathan Little. And again, this was written by one of his staff members. But still, it came from his account, so it is technically from him. It says, A mistake many people make when approaching solvers. It's important to realize that when a solver says something is barely plus EV, expected value, it is often minus EV for us. 
For example, when holding ace-10 on a queen-9-4 board facing a quarter-pot bet, a solver may say that defending calling gains us a 0.6 big blind on average. But this is only because the solver will navigate the turn in river perfectly. A human cannot replicate this, and therefore the value of calling goes way down. Understand this and prosper. And then they show a little emoji of a graph of moving up, like a stock price graph. It's kind of showing prosper like you're making a lot of money and your graph's going up. So Berkey didn't like this. Berkey thought that this was a bad tweet. Now, I didn't think it was a bad tweet. I actually agree with most of that. But Berkey thought it was. Berkey wrote, Anyone who believes this to be true has an invite to any game I'm playing, plus a guaranteed 3% refund on your losses. Ouch. Now, apparently, the main issue Berkey had with this was that he was claiming you should fold when you have 0.6 big blinds in equity to call. That basically, if folding would be a 0.6 big blind mistake, that it's still correct to fold because if you're not going to play the turn in river correctly as well as the solver will, will so you're going to give up that 0.6 big blinds that you'd otherwise be uh, winning here. He thinks this is ridiculous, that anytime something's worth 0.6 big blinds, you always do it because that's a lot. And he's right, but... The only problem with Jonathan Little's tweet there is the 0.6 big blinds. And I think this assistant who posted it just pulled that number out of their ass. And then people were too focused on that number. So instead of thinking about, hey, Jonathan Little's telling us to fold on the flop, even though it's an 0.6 big blind mistake to fold, because this way you don't have to navigate a tough turn in river where you're going to make further mistakes... If you ignore that incorrect 0.6 big blind number and think of it as a much smaller number, which it actually is, it's not an 0.6 big blind mistake to fold that. But if you just look at this example and ignore how many big blinds it is to fold, as far as you know whether you're gaining or losing by folding there in the long run. So let's say you have ace-10 offsuit and the board comes queen-9-4 rainbow and you're on the big blind and that somebody who was in late position had open raised. So you've obviously missed that board, queen, nine, four. You check, and then the person bets. Folding there is not a bad idea. It's also not terrible to take one off, because you may have the best hand, and your opponent may give up on the turn, thinking that they don't want to put anything more and have you call them down, because they don't know you'll have ace-high. You may have a weak queen. You may be slow-playing something. You may have a draw that possibly the next card would have hit. There's a lot of reasons they will just check this down, and then your ace-10 high will win. So sometimes just that one call on the flop will win it for you. Also, you could hit something. You could hit the 10, which will then become the best hand. So even if they have, like, pocket sevens, or, you know, they could have a nine. They could have eight, nine suited. And then you'll get ahead of them with a 10. So there's a lot of ways you could end up winning this, even though... The truth is, this could be a hard thing to play, especially against a tough opponent on the turn and river, because no matter what you hit on the turn and river, when you've got ace-10 against queen-9-4 the board, you know, it's, you're, you're never going to hit anything wonderful. Even the ace may leave you behind. So it can be tricky to play against an aggressive opponent. So this is somewhat opponent-based, too. But it's not necessarily bad to call there. 
but what he's saying is that if you think that on the turn in river, it's just going to be very hard to play and you don't want to get yourself into that spot, that it's not terrible to fold there. Even if there's a slight advantage to calling versus folding, that you may lose that advantage if you misplay the turn in river, which can easily happen because those become more challenging in some cases. So he's saying that whatever slight bit of edge you get from calling versus folding is probably going to be wasted later because it's going to be very hard to play those later streets. Whereas a solver can play it perfectly, you can't. So it's probably better to just fold there. So that is a good lesson. That is a good lesson. And you, you do have to think about future streets. If you're just thinking about the street you're on when you're playing poker, especially No Limit Hold'em, then you're going to find yourself in trouble later. You always have to think, why am I calling now? What am I going to do next? And sometimes it's not obvious. Like It can be obvious if you have a flush draw and you think, okay, I'm looking for that draw to hit next. But even there you have to think, okay, well, what if I call and then they put a really big bet out next? What if they go all in next? Then am I still calling? You've, you've got to think, like, what am I doing down the line if this happens before you decide what to do? So with just ace high and no draw, that you do have to think about that. So this is good advice that you shouldn't, re- you shouldn't be relying on solvers too much when you're training yourself with a solver because what the solver can do is not what you can do. So if it's just a very slight difference between calling and folding, you're probably better off folding in those spots and avoiding a big mistake later. It's one of these things of make a very small mistake right now to avoid a big mistake later. That's basically what he's saying. And that's good advice. Not saying to always fold there, but just saying if you think it's someone who's going to put you to tough decisions later, don't have it be in this spot. It's not worth it. Just fold it. But Berkey focused too much on the 0.6 big blind thing. And it's not a 0.6 big blind mistake to fold there. It's just not. I don't know what it is, but it's not that much. So if you look at it in the context that I explained, and I'm not spinning this to sound better. This is honestly what he meant. But the 0.6 big blind thing was just a mistake. They just put that being too valuable. So anyway, I then gave my opinion on this and explained that if you just don't focus on the 0.6 big blind thing, then this makes sense. And Jonathan Little liked it. And then he actually corrected this himself later, explaining that, yeah, this wasn't a good example, but the concept still stands. And I agree with that. So this shouldn't have been that controversial. You know, at worst, you can say, okay, why would you say this is worth 0.6 big blinds? Because it's not. And the truth is, yeah, you shouldn't be making that big of a mistake. You shouldn't be making a fold, which is worth that much if it's a bad fold. But if it's a small amount, then yes, it's correct. But Berkey did not like this and made those comments that anyone who plays this way, he'll invite them to his home game and give him a 3% refund on their losses. Wow. So people fought with Berkey about this. And some were saying they've noticed that he's been picking on Jonathan Little for no reason. Some were saying this is good advice. Stop focusing on the 0.6 big blinds. Even Chris Brewer, who's obviously an excellent player, if you look at his results, said, example, not perfect, but the point's still fully reasonable. And then he asked, can I have a seat now, referring to the game? (laughs) So yeah, Berkey picked on this too much. It really looked like someone who's trying to pick on someone they just don't like. I don't know why he doesn't like Jonathan Little. Like, why would he not like him? He doesn't really do anything to make you dislike him. I just don't get it. 
Like, I'd understand, like, a very opinionated guy who writes things that rub you the wrong way, but this guy just kind of keeps his head down. He plays poker. He trains people. Who cares? Like, what's he doing that's objectionable? I can't see why you dislike him. Like, before he started listening to the show, before I had much interaction with him, I knew who he was, and I never disliked him. I was just neutral on him. I just, okay, you know, he's some guy who plays tournaments and runs a trading company. That was, like, all I thought of him. I never had, like, the slightest inclination to ever dislike him. Now, once I got to know him a little bit, I, I don't think we've ever met in person, but once I got to know him online a little bit, I, I got to like him, and he listens to this show, and I'm glad he listens to this show, but uh, I never disliked him. Like, I have no reason to dislike him. So it's kind of weird. I don't know what Berkey has with Jonathan Little that he doesn't like him. Well, Matt Berkey then doubled down on this by continuing to mock Jonathan Little with his own tips of the day, but these were sarcastic tips of the day. These weren't serious, but he would intentionally write ridiculous things as, quote, advice in a very similar style as what Jonathan Little had written. So he wrote tip of the day with a little emoji of a light bulb. Though ace-king is powerful, remember, it's a drawing hand. Rather than commit your stack pre, opt to call and see a flop instead. If you make a pair, you'll be way ahead. If you miss, you can confidently fold, avoiding those tricky turn and river decisions. Like and follow for more daily tips. And he put that same rising stock graph emoji. So you can see what he's doing here. Making fun of the folding so you don't have to have tricky turn and river decisions. And he said that you shouldn't commit your stack pre-flop with ace-king. You should call and see a flop instead. And that you'll always be way ahead if you make a pair which, of course, is the opposite of the right advice with Ace-King. Basically, with Ace-King, it is, in a way, a drawing hand, unless you're up against a worse non-pair preflop. If you're against a pair, you do have to draw to something to win. However, the thing with Ace-King is that you're not going to get that much out of it post-flop unless the effective stacks just aren't that deep and people have to get it in with any top pair. But if it's sort of deep, you're not going to get that much out of it because you're never going to get that big of a hand other than a straight. Even if you make two pair, you can be up against a set. There's a lot of things that can beat you if you're getting a lot of action with ace-king post-flop. So this is one of these hands that you want to get the money in pre-flop when you can have other people crushed. So the ideal situation is like ace-queen puts it all in against you when you have ace-king. That's what you want to see. Or you put pressure on someone with ace-king preflop and get them to fold. This way, if somebody has pocket sevens and you come over the top on them, they may be afraid to commit any further chips and throw it away, even though technically the sevens are ahead. Even pocket twos are ahead. So that's where ace-king, it's said that you need to put the pressure preflop, but you, of course, have to be a little bit careful that you don't put too much pressure and run into aces or even kings. So it can be a difficult hand to play, actually, in No Limit Hold'em. But, yeah, just calling and seeing a flop and then overplaying it after you hit an ace or a king, that's not the best strategy. In fact, it's a very bad strategy because you're just going to run yourself into trouble. So this is like a parody of what Jonathan Little had posted. So some people thought this was funny, and some thought, like, why are you continuing with this? Because... Berkey mostly got a negative response to the whole thing with Little. But just the next day, he just comes right out and posts this. And then he continued doing it for a number of more days. January 29th, the next day, 
Tip of the day, ICM, the independent chip model, is a complex and flawed way to estimate the value of one stack in a tournament. If you'd like to maximize your opportunity at the big money, and he put an emoji of a money bag, without slaving over ICM calculations, follow this quick and easy tip. And then he used the emoji of a hand pointing down, just like Jonathan Little uses. Cash out. You have half a million chips? That's a lot of money. For more daily tips, like and follow, and with that same upward stock graph picture. So, of course, you can't cash out of a tournament. That's the joke here. So, for a while, he just kept posting these tips of the day, which are obviously not serious, some more ridiculous than others, all to kind of troll Jonathan Little. Daniel Negranu decided to speak up about this on January 31st. He wrote, what Matt Berkey should have done. Treat Jonathan Little with respect and build a bridge that could help his own business flourish since Jonathan is incredibly successful in the coaching space. Jonathan has always been kind and willing to work with others and find win-wins for everyone. Instead, Berkey has been on a mission to mock and trash Jonathan every chance he gets. Every major training site attracts high-stakes pros to do content for their platform, and there are loads of talented instructors out there that can back what they say with proven results at high stakes. Jonathan has acquired several high-stakes crushers to provide content. Berkey has not. Jonathan has built a flourishing business from the ground up. Berkey has not. The obvious jealousy is understandable. It's probably too late to apologize to Jonathan and learn from him, but he should still do it anyway. The constant mocking is so uncalled for, and he's in no position to be an authority on what is good or bad poker coaching. He does not have the resume. I responded... I said 100% agree, but the truth is I don't 100% agree because I don't know if this is really out of jealousy. I don't know why Jonathan Little is disliked by Matt Berkey. It could be competition, but it just could be something that he doesn't like about Jonathan Little. It's something, but who knows what it is. So I can't say 100% agree because Negreanu was putting a motive to the whole thing, which may or may not be true. I just have no idea. I also think that Having very accomplished coaches, while it's nice for optics, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better training experience. It's really about who can teach well. Now, you need the person to have good fundamentals to teach, but depending upon what's being taught, if you're not teaching people how to beat super tough high-stakes tournaments, you don't need a top high-stakes tournament crusher. You just need someone who can beat those games and understands those games that you're coaching for. So if you're just trying to coach recreational players to do decently at local tournaments or to beat the 1-2 game at their local casino. You don't need some top crusher who's beating 100, 200 cash and who's winning 25K events. I'm not saying that would be a bad coach. I'm just saying that's not necessarily what you need. What you really need is someone who has the fundamentals to beat whatever is being taught and also is good at teaching. And being good at teaching is a skill that isn't necessarily connected to success at the tables. So that's what you need. Now, I will tell you that I'm not familiar with the teaching styles of either the people working under Jonathan Little or the people working under Matt Berkey. So I won't comment on that because I don't know. So I'm not going to tell you which service is better. I know both of the services have their fans. But from that standpoint, I will admit that uh, you know that part may not really matter. But the part that I do agree with, and I think that's more important, is that Berkey just shouldn't be starting up with him. There's really no reason to be starting up with him. And these poker coaching services just shouldn't attack each other in general. 
There should be some form of professional courtesy, even when you see advice you don't agree with. Now, if you want to respectfully discuss advice you don't agree with, like if Berkey were just to say, hey, you know, I can't see how ever folding where it's an 0.6 big blind mistake could ever be correct. And here's why I think that's incorrect. And if you say it respectfully, then Jonathan Little, of course, could provide his own rebuttals to that and people could decide who's right. Or you could just say nothing. But there shouldn't be like a tax on other poker coaches or poker coaching services because that's not a good look. That's not something that should be done. If you look at other industries, this doesn't happen either. So look at doctors, for example. Doctors have a legal right to insult other doctors and say, you know, this other doctor sucks, come to me, or constantly mock other doctors in the area. And the truth is, you know, there are some bad doctors out there. And unless you're warning a patient out of concern that, you know, they're going to someone who's bad and is going to harm them, aside from that, doctors usually do not comment about other doctors other than saying positive things. So they may say, oh, go to this guy, he's very good, the specialist in this area is very good, but you're not going to have doctors telling you, don't go to this one, he sucks. You're not going to usually see that because there's a professional courtesy where they don't criticize each other. So I wish that the poker coaching space was more like that, and there wasn't this attacking of others. And I've seen it before, not just in this situation. I've seen other coaching services attacking one another, ones that don't involve Berkey or Jonathan Little. So this is not the first time it's happened. And it may not be because they're competitors. It really could be just some personal thing that Berkey doesn't like about him. But I just don't like seeing this happen. This is different than bashing someone on Twitter you just dislike. Since they're actually competitors in this poker coaching space, they should just leave it alone, at least from this standpoint. If he wants to say something personal about Jonathan Little he doesn't like, then I guess he can, as long as it's you know not to try to discredit him professionally. But I didn't like the tone of that. I just didn't think it's a good look. And... Jonathan Little doesn't ever do it. If Jonathan Little put out jabs at Berkey or other coaches, and then this was Berkey's way of doing it back to him, okay, but Jonathan Little doesn't do this to anybody. So I agreed with Negreanu from that standpoint. And I said, Jonathan never starts up with anyone. He just plays poker and runs his training business, not understanding those that go attack him for seemingly no reason. Negreanu said back to me, the reason is clear, jealousy. I know saying that hits home and stings with Berkey because some part of him knows it's true. A bitterness because he believes he should be the successful one, not Jonathan Little. So he lashes out for years, mocking Jonathan Little at every opportunity. Haley Hanna said back, you can literally go back to Berkey's profile and search tweets toward Jonathan Little, and you can see he's been unnecessarily attacking him since as far back as 2018. I don't mind some of Burke's content, but when he starts acting like a bully who peaked in high school, it's just cringe then some people jumped on Berkey who just don't like him, like Dick Vertucci. So I, I won't bother reading that. I mean, this always happens on social media. It happened to me too last year. You know, Someone gets in controversy and then all their enemies and detractors pop up and slam them. So, And I'm not going to read all that stuff because it's not relevant. But anyway, I do agree that this just shouldn't have happened. So what did Jonathan Little do about this? Did he finally start attacking Berkey? Did he send his friends to attack Berkey so he doesn't have to do it. Because I don't think he sent Negreanu to do this, by the way. I think Negreanu just did it on his own. So what happened? Jonathan Little did have a response. 
the response he had was to say nothing and win tournaments. Yes, this sent Jonathan Little on a heater. (laughs) Jonathan Little went on to win two tournaments. He won the 25K Poker Go Cup for $453,000 on February 3rd. Negranu obviously noticed and commented. He wrote, congratulations, Jonathan Little, for winning the Poker Go Cup. Haters hate, winners win. Well done. And then he quoted something from Theodore Roosevelt about, uh, it's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. And then basically the whole point of this quote, which I'm not going to read, is those that are best are going to end up triumphing. Someone named Clayton Bury was not happy with Negranu using this win to troll Berkey. He said, why are you subtweeting in the middle of a congratulatory Tory posted Jonathan Little, completely making the win about your little bickering beef with someone else. You should have just congratulated Little and left it there. I don't know what happened to you over the past year or so, but it makes me sad. Negrano said, did you read the quote? It speaks to Jonathan Little's character and focus that despite being mocked by the critic, he was in the arena battling and ultimately lifting the trophy. It has to feel that much more special considering all the bullying that he's had to deal with. So a lot of people were happy to see that Jonathan Little shook off this attack and just went on to win a tournament. But he wasn't done. You know, he won 453000 in that tournament very shortly after all that criticism. Well, he wasn't done. He also won uh, 229500 on the 27th. So that was his second win, actually, the 453K. The first win was 229500 But that was before uh, Negreanu got involved. That's why Negreanu hadn't congratulated him for that one, too. But the timeline is that Berkey's tweet was on the 24th or 25th. Little won on the 27th. And then Little won again on the 2nd of February. <laughs> so Little won two tournaments for a combined like 700k since this whole thing started. Isn't that crazy? So, yeah, good job to Jonathan Little. Actually, to be fair, I'm looking now, I had the dates a bit wrong. It was on the same day that Berkey first brought this up that Little won. He did win after technically, like a few hours after. But, you know, maybe he wasn't aware of it cuz he was at a final table at that point. But definitely he was aware of it a few days later when he won the 453K, which is the bigger one. Now, the second story that sprung from this is that, as I was starting to read to you, he and Berkey were going back and forth here. And that became the bigger thing. Because, as I said, Jonathan Little doesn't fight back on Twitter, but Berkey does. So, since Negranu does too, they went back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth there. I'm not going to read it all to you. I guess this uh, kind of got going during one of Berkey's Only Friends shows. There was some hand in there that was analyzed, and Negranu thought that Berkey did it wrong. So he responded to the Only Friends tweet of that episode and then was explaining the way it went down. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
but it starts with, so I saw the clip of the Pocket Nines hand, and since you don't have access to any high-stakes tournament pros, which again is kind of a slam on Berkey's coaches that he has working for him, I figured I would take the time to teach you something about tournament poker since you don't play them. And then he went on with a whole explanation here. So then Berkey responded back, I can't believe you typed all that out instead of just saying I made an error. I even played along in the pod saying that you were committed to the bit to help you save face. The grounder said back, man, you really won't ever get it. Please come play these. My crossbook window is wide open. Crossbooking is where you play a tournament and then you will bet with someone else of uh, who's going to cash at this tournament for how much. And basically, whatever they cash over you, you owe them and vice versa. So if I'm crossbooking with John Smith and I don't cash, and he cashes 200 k then I would have to pay him 200 k And if the reverse happened, he'd have to pay me 200 k So cross-booking, there's a lot of variance to it, of course, at tournaments, because if you barely cash or don't cash, and they win it, you can owe them a lot of money. So he's saying that he would cross-book with Berkey if he were to come play the same tournament as him, Negreanu, saying this. This whole feud just kept the sniping between Berkey and Negreanu about various subjects, sometimes about poker hands, sometimes about Berkey's roster of coaches. They just kept going at each other. So one of these happened on February 2nd, where Berkey started off tweeting, not everyone has Negreanu's talent to ignore theory and trust ourselves in big money spots. If you're a mere mortal like the rest of us, let Mental Health Matt, who's one of his coaches, walk you through the power of HRC plus PIO when studying ICM in his new course. And then Negreanu responded back, makes perfect sense. Why waste time learning from proven high-stakes crushers like Jason Kuhn, Nick Petrangelo, Chance Cornuth, Alex Foxen, Justin Saliba, Phil Galfon, Dan Smith, Chris Brewer, and Darren Elias? Trust us, we don't play tournaments, but we know everything there is to know. Oh, dear Lord. Now, these aren't all people who work for Jonathan Little, but he's just mentioning, like, these are the people you sh- who provide training videos that you can learn from who crush high-stakes events and that you shouldn't be learning from people like mental health matt who don't really play in that realm katie stone who is an east coast player she got involved and attacked negranu she said i honestly can't believe that you're still going with this have you thought this through i can't imagine any scenario where you look back on this all and feel good about yourself you and your friends won't be able to spin this there isn't a singular outburst you've strayed too far past what's acceptable from a brand like yours Going after Berkey was a mistake. Anyone in your circle advising you on your brand or business who says it wasn't is very wrong and lacks the expertise to operate in this space. This space, which is small and niche and is good at, at fair catching outcasts in that realm. Poor decisions in this space are very avoidable. It's quite telling when you make them. So then DeGrano responded back saying, never apologize for sticking up for a guy for being ex- incessantly mocked. It's always the right thing to do. Little is a successful dude and never deserved any of it. I didn't become who I am today by shying away from sticking up for people when it's warranted. Berkey said, ironically, that's precisely how I feel, continuing to remind you that you are way out of pocket here. DeGrano said, who are you sticking up for other than yourself? I'm sticking up for Jonathan Little. Who are you sticking up for? So then Matt Berkey says, Matt Hunt for starters, referring to mental health Matt. Andrew Brokos, you and McNicholas, Landon, myself, and anyone else, your vindictive attacks may have affected neg- negatively. These are people who coach on his... Uh, training program, Berkey. 
We all know your MO. You use your platform to punch down and smash anyone who rubs the great poker the wrong way. You're such a fucking phony talking about standing up for people. You don't say a fucking word about community issues. Not a peep over GG's super user. Not a peep regarding security issues on a site you represent, let alone the rest of the industry. When was the last big issue you stood tall on? Gaza? Or was it when you all but single-handedly ruined Jamie Kerstetter's commentary career for simply existing? You aim your platform at whoever you decide to be dragged based upon your belief that you were judge, jury, and executioner. You don't stand for one single thing of substance, you spineless coward. As far as I'm concerned, you're just a more likable Polk. At least he doesn't attempt to hide who he is. Now, remember, Berkey and Polk hate each other, so that's why he was saying that. So that was a pretty uh, scathing response. So there was more of these. Don't think it ended there. Katie Stone then wrote... This has nothing to do with Berkey. It's 100% rooted in Dineg's own jealousy and lack of grip on reality. Here's why. The poker space is small. When you're in the poker bubble, it can feel like the only thing that matters, especially if you have a little notoriety. But it's not, and none of it really matters at all. In fact, it's a very small niche area of gaming that's no different to casinos than bingo. Dineg's was the big dog for a long time. That's his reality, that he's the big dog. But it's not the case anymore, and that's tough for him. He doesn't understand that he's the only one who cares about it. His entire identity is wrapped up in being known for poker. Something is likely happening on the back end we don't know about that's making him send walls of rage messages to Berkey and likely others. His friend should be concerned, or not. There's something wrong here. It's sad, but it's nothing to do with Berkey. So, Negreanu responded, You missed a pretty big step. Jonathan Little is the most successful in the coaching space of anyone. He posts stuff. Berkey mocks and attacks him for years now. I step in to defend Jonathan Little. Berkey goes on a podcast talking about how I made a mistake, referring to a mistake in a hand he played. I try to teach him. He already knows everything about tournament poker despite not playing them. So to be clear, Berkey, as he does, the center of every feud I've seen on here for a long time, had a game built around him with people who loathe him, mocked Jonathan Little totally unprovoked over and over again. I stood up for Jonathan Little because he didn't deserve any of this from Berkey. Then the shit hit the fan. I give precisely zero fucks, was bored, and said, what the hey, let's do a stupid Twitter thing. So, I didn't really agree with what Katie Stone wrote. I think Daniel DeGranu likes Jonathan Little. I don't know if they're friends. I don't know if they're just friendly acquaintances. Whatever it is, Daniel DeGranu likes him. And he also doesn't care for Berkey very much. So he sees a guy who he doesn't care for very much picking on a guy that he likes and also has noticed doesn't ever start up with anyone, which is true. So, of course, he naturally takes the side of the guy who, number one, he likes and number two, didn't start up. That's all this is about. Katie Stone was making this way more complicated than it actually is. It's just very simple. So I tweeted that. And Negranu, among other people, liked it. Because that's what was going on there. And you can say you don't agree that Negranu should have done this, he shouldn't have gotten involved, or he already had a bias here because he didn't care for Berkey. And, you know, I could understand that point of view. But this isn't Negranu doing it to be a bully or because he feels like his position in poker is fading or because he thinks he's the big dog and can just pick on people. It's not that at all. None of this stuff is true. None of this is true. He's not going through problems in his life to where now he's just lashing out. This doesn't look like lashing out. This looks like defending someone he likes. If he were lashing out, I'd say so. You know, I've criticized Negranu on here before. But this isn't lashing out. This isn't like, oh, we should be concerned for Negranu. He's freaking out. No, he's defending a guy he likes on Twitter. I mean, come on. This whole thing really became way too much. This whole thing just 
became a shit show. And some people didn't like it. Some people thought it made poker look bad, just like the whole thing with Phil Helmuth and Ike Haxton about the mask. But eh, the truth is, this isn't going to affect the casual player's view of the game. I mean, there's been bickering on Twitter for a very, very long time involving poker. This is just one of many. It's going to be forgotten about. It probably already has been forgotten about since it was uh, like two and a half weeks ago. But that's it. It's not more complex than that. And the people attacking Daniel over this and trying to make it about something else, that's not what it is. The only slight complexity here might be an existing dislike for Berkey and taking the opportunity to say something negative about him when he felt that Berkey had made a mistake. But that's what everybody does on Twitter. People do that to me who don't like me. People do that to Daniel who don't like Daniel. You know, this is what happens on Twitter. You see someone you don't like, you see them mess up, you point it out, and you try to make people notice. That's what happens, especially on Twitter. But this isn't about Negranu overstepping what he should be allowed to say or that he's got other problems going on. It's, it's not about that. It's just, it's just not right. It's just not correct. So this went on and on and on, and it finally died down. Berkey talked about it on his show. I'm not going to bother to play it. I was considering playing it, but I don't feel like playing it. I'm kind of done with this topic. My takeaway from this whole thing is that, number one, if there's someone who's non-controversial and doesn't start up with anyone ever on social media, just leave them alone if they're just minding their own business. If you're questioning some of their poker advice, then politely question it. But that's it. Don't, Don't mock them. Don't attack them because... They don't deserve it. Someone who just minds their own business and doesn't write anything controversial, unless they've done something actually wrong, you know, if you're calling it actual bad behavior on their part, if they scammed or whatever, yeah, call them out. But if they're just posting poker advice, which you think is bad, then either ignore it or politely disagree. Of course, when Jonathan Little posts anything, any kind of advice, People do have a right to question it, even other coaches. But if it is other coaches, they need to be respectful when they do it. Just because it's professional courtesy. They should. And I hope maybe Berkey took that away from this. I know the Negranu thing kind of may have been a distraction because then it became about the two of them fighting rather than about Little. But hopefully Berkey took that away from the whole thing. And maybe he won't do this with Jonathan Little, but he he continues to make these type of uh, sarcastic tips out there. In fact, Berkey seems to be posting a combination of real tips and sarcastic ones. Like, this is a new bit of his. I think more of sarcastic than real. So maybe that's what he got out of it, that he can post funny tips that aren't really tips. So I guess it's not going to end. I guess I'm being too optimistic. I just don't see the reason for it. I'd like to know one reason why just start up with Jonathan Little. Like, why do that? I just don't get it. Jonathan Little's not even someone who posts, like, provocative opinions and then blocks people who disagree. So it is possible to post, like, provocative stuff and then block anyone who tries to respond to you, and that's obnoxious. So if he did something like that, I could understand people really taking a dislike to him and trying to mock him, but he doesn't do that either. His whole presence on Twitter is just very harmless very non-controversial so like just you know, don't start up with him just there's no point 
even if for whatever reason you don't like him, unless he's done something to you. Like maybe he did something and I don't know about, but I don't think so. By the way, despite all this, even though I think Berkey was not in the right in this situation, I'm going to give him credit later in the show. I'm going to give him credit for something unrelated to this. It was a pleasant surprise, but that's not this topic. A party poker player claims that the site stole $707,000 from him and then closed his account. That's a pretty serious allegation. So is it true? And was the money really stolen or was it confiscated correctly? So let's discuss this. Because remember, every time a player has a complaint about an online poker site, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're in the right. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Whenever people come to me with complaints, I have a big list of questions for them, depending upon the circumstances. Now, this guy did not come to me. He came to 2 plus 2. I participated in the discussion, but he was already gone by then. But when others have come to me in the past, or when I've taken notice of someone with an issue and then I get involved, and then they start communicating with me, then I will ask them a lot of questions, and if I think they've been screwed, then I will take up for them. So, like, Mandy with her 250 k on Ignition that they weren't paying her, I determined from discussing it with her that she was getting screwed, and they were trying to not pay her. So, I got myself involved, and I got her paid. I've had other situations, like this guy on ACR last year, who was claiming that they confiscated his money for no good reason and they screwed him and he would not answer my questions i had some specific questions for him to answer to make it clear to me that he was really the victim and he was avoiding them so i determined okay well this guy is probably hiding something and i heard later from people involved with acr that he was and that he was totally guilty and that uh, they were kind of just waiting for me to jump on this one so they could throw it in my face that i was backing somebody that was full of crap, but they never got to throw anything in my face because I realized the guy was full of crap and I never took up for him. I'm not I'm not going to just take up for some random player who claims he was screwed. I, I got to get the info. And if it's looking like the player was acting shady, I'm not going to help because there are players that act shady. So I was interested in this one, especially given the amount of money involved, 707000 So here's what happened. A player named Exodus944, I don't know if that's his name on Party or if that's just his name on 2 Plus 2, but he showed up on 2 Plus 2 and he claimed that $700,000, $707,000 was confiscated out of his Party Poker account and that his account was closed and furthermore that none of the money has been distributed to his opponents because that's what they're supposed to do on Party if they confiscate money they're not supposed to keep it they are supposed to then distribute it to those he has played and won against and they'll just get this in their account with a notification as to why they're getting it they won't give too much detail but that's what they end up doing so here was the guy's claim and again this was on two plus two i'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very rambling and this guy has not the best English. It's not terrible, but uh, English is his second language. But I'll read you the important parts. He starts off with a quick summary. $707,000 poker winning seized from my account. 
not redistributed to players kept by Entain, which is the parent company of Party Poker. No proof or evidence of wrongdoing provided by Entain, a completely arbitrary decision. Given the runaround how to solve the issue, including Entain offering me a lower sum if they could keep a significant sum for their own profit, and then later withdrawing that offer, and Entain is not to be trusted, acting like an unregulated site, your money's not safe. So then he said, posting to raise this awareness about Entain brands, such as Ladbrokes, Party Poker, Party Casino, B-Win, Sporting Bet, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to read them all. Entain is a brand that until very recently accepted players using VPNs from a wide number of banned countries, including almost certainly facilitating and turning a blind eye to players from the USA playing on their dot-com poker network. I'm about to start legal proceedings against Entain. As my English is not very good, this post has been written alongside my legal advisor. The information within the post is verifiable and as accurate as my records permit. Backstory. I was a large volumes spins grinder on party poker. Now, let me stop right there. Spins is a form of a cash game where uh, every so often you will get to spin a wheel to win some kind of jackpot. So that's what spins are. It was actually invented on poker stars is what's called a spin and go. So it's it's kind of more of a form of poker that's aimed at degenerates who want to potentially, if they get really, really lucky, win a lot more money than just by normally beating people at the tables. Of course, this comes with additional rake in order to fund these spins jackpots. This isn't just money out of the site's pocket. You're basically uh, contributing to this with every hand. So if you don't win one of these spins. You you don't necessarily have to win a huge one. You can win smaller spins, but if you don't get enough of these big spins, then you're going to end up losing over time until you get one. So there is more variance to the whole thing. He said, I was playing part of the Team 651 stable of players who are a large part of the players on Party Poker's higher stake spins games. Now that's important too. What does he mean by Team 651 stable of players? I don't know what Team 651 is, but he was part of a stable He was part of a group of players that are basically funded to play on party poker and that are backed to basically all play as a team. This doesn't mean they collude or anything. This is just saying that the money's put up by the stable usually. They're not really playing with their own money. And then they get some percentage of the winnings. And that the stable is just a lot of players who are all playing for the same backer and that they're kind of seen as part of a a big team as far as making money. Again, not to collude with each other necessarily, but just as a big team as far as generating money. And this is a way to also bring down variance. Because if you have a big stable of players, then if some percentage of them is running poorly, then you also probably have a percentage of them running well, and provided all the players in the stable are good and they don't tilt, then that'll smooth out some of the variance. So that's uh, one of the reasons these stables go. And then the people play in the stables because they don't really have a bankroll to start off with. You know, in poker, it takes money to make money. So you could be a great player, but if you don't have money to deposit, then you're not going to get anywhere. So this guy was part of a stable, which I want to be clear is not against the rules on party as long as the stable members aren't colluding, and this is not being alleged, so we'll assume the stable is operating in at least somewhat of an ethical fashion. There's no collusion involved or botting or anything like that. He said, I was based in Romania originally and moved to Ireland. 
While in Ireland, I started to play on party poker as part of the Team 651 stable. I also traveled around Europe playing online poker and live cash poker, but still grinding spins wherever I could. I spent a considerable amount of time in Dublin, staying with friends and the people I met in the poker community there. By playing on party poker in Ireland, I was playing in a permitted country. I was asked to provide some documents to show I was in Dublin. I asked for help to get something, and my friend, who I was staying with at the time, said he had sorted it and provided me with an electricity bill for his premises, but in my name. In July 2021, I submitted this to Party Poker in good faith, and it was accepted. If at this stage, Intain had rejected my document, I would, of course, have rectified the matter immediately. Okay, so let's stop here. So, here's the guy's claims. He's part of this stable. He was actually from Romania, where you can't play on party. It's not regulated in Romania. They won't let people play from Romania. But he's saying that he was not playing from Romania. What he was doing is traveling around Europe in places that it was legal to play on party and then where party is licensed. And even though he's a Romanian citizen, he is allowed to play there when he's on the soil of these countries where it's allowed to play on party. So he claims that most of the time he was staying in Dublin, Ireland, and was playing party on there. And that he also played from some other places within Europe. And that he was asked in July 2021, I don't know when he created the account, but he was asked in July 2021 to provide some proof that he really is in Ireland. Why do they want to see this proof? Because maybe they detected he's playing on a VPN. Maybe they noticed that uh, he has a Romanian address originally. I don't know what it was. But for some reason, they wanted to see proof that he really lives in Ireland at the moment. Not that he's an Irish citizen, but that he lives in Ireland at the moment. So he admitted to something interesting here. He said he had his friend, who he was staying with at the time in Dublin, change the name on the electricity bill to his name. He didn't directly say he had his friend change it, but he said, my friend said he had it sorted and provided me with an electricity bill for his premises, but in my name. So that doesn't say my friend who had the electricity in my name who I was staying with. So, of course, it wouldn't make sense. Like, if you go visit somebody, you don't take the electric bill in your name. (laughs) That would never happen. It's one thing for people to move in together, and then one takes the electric bill. But if you're moving in temporarily with your friend who already lives there, you're not going to have the electric move to your name. It doesn't make any sense, especially not even as a citizen of that country. But he's not even claiming that it was originally in his name, just that... He needed something to send to party to prove that he was really living in Ireland. And they said, well, okay, we'll accept a utility bill. So his friend went and had the electricity bill changed to his name, which he then submitted in July 2021, and party accepted it. Now, first of all, this is not the spirit of what party's asking for. Party is saying, show us the utility bill to show that you live here, not show us the utility bill that your friend abruptly changes to your name. So you can prove it to us. Because that doesn't prove anything. Anyone can change any bill to anyone's name. The electricity bill they should actually want to see should be one dated prior to when they asked for it. So that's what they should want. They shouldn't say, show us an electricity bill that's about to generate a few days from now, or is going to generate a few weeks from now. But let's see the electricity bill from May 2021 in your name or June 2021 in your name. Just look at some point that they saw him playing on there, supposedly from that residence and say, okay, we want to see one dated then. So you can't go change the name now. But he just said the friend provided him with an electricity bill for that residence in his name. So basically the friend just changed it to his name, 
But then Party took it, accepted it, and let him keep playing. So he said, Between July 2021 and October 2022, I played on Party Poker and was never asked to provide further documentation. I deposited almost $100,000 during this period. I pretty much guarantee you that was the stables money. During this time, I carried on moving around Ireland and sometimes other countries, staying with friends and playing a mixture of live and online poker. On October 5th, 2022, so now we're more than a year past when he sent in that electric bill. He sent that in in July of 21. This was now 15 months later. October 5th, 2022, I won the million-dollar jackpot prize money on Party Poker's $100 spins game, beating an Argentinian player and a UK player in the process, both of whom won 100K each. At this stage in my life, I decided that I wanted to slow down my online poker play for a while and focus on traveling and playing live poker. So basically, whoever was at this table with him when the spin thing came up, I think the winner at that table, like a sit and go, is going to win a million dollars and the second and third place were going to get 100K each. And it was a $100 buy-in to sit here. So he says, at this stage of my life, I decided I wanted to slow down my online poker play for a while and focus on traveling and playing live poker. Sure. Okay. So he wins a million bucks. He finally does it. He finally gets lucky and wins the million dollar spin there after losing 100K pretty much to start off with of the backer's money. But okay, now he's up 900K and they pay him. They pay his account, that is. Right at that moment, he says, you know what? That's good. I think I'm going to focus on traveling and live poker from now on. That's it. I'm pretty much done here. Now, it's one thing to say you're going to take some time off from all of poker now that you've hit this and enjoy some of your winnings. But he's not saying that. He's saying he's just going to slow down his online play and travel and play live poker. Like, so what? He's suddenly going to play live now after he won a million bucks playing online? I mean, I guess it's possible, but that's suspicious. I wanted to return to online poker at some point, so I decided to withdraw my winnings in small increments. Ah, okay, yeah. What does that mean you're withdrawing in small increments? It'd be one thing if he said, I'm going to come back to party when I'm done with this break, so I don't want to take the whole million off. I'm going to take 90% of it off and leave myself with 100K. That would be reasonable. But to say he's taking off in small increments, why? why? Why small increments? Just take off what you want to cash out and leave whatever you need for a bankroll going forward. 100K, 200K, whatever, but you do it at once. You're definitely taking off the vast majority. You didn't need a million dollar bankroll to be there. Why would you do a lot of withdrawals in small increments? That doesn't make any sense, but it actually does. And I'll get to that. By February 14th, 2023, I had withdrawn $300,000 and had approximately $707,000 left in my party poker account. So we're all the way up to 2023 now. He won this million dollars in October, early October 2022. Here we are in February 2023, a year ago, and he still has only taken 30% of the money off. (laughs) You got to be freaking kidding me. You've got to be freaking kidding me. What could possibly be the reason for that? It wasn't that he wasn't withdrawing at all. He was withdrawing in small increments, so small that four months later, he's only taken 30% of it off. I was intending to withdraw the other 707000 As a stable player, I was owed a portion of my winnings to the stable. This amounted to 300000 
the remaining 707,000 was mine. So he's claiming that the first 300k he withdrew had to go to the stable and that the other 707k was something he could keep. He's claiming he was basically playing on a 70-30 deal for himself. So he's basically claiming that he got nothing out of this, that the 300k went directly to the stable, and just as he's about to start withdrawing his own money, that's when Party Poker put the hammer down on him. I like I like many others trusted Party Poker and their parent company intend to be a safe place to keep my winnings. In fact, at the time, I considered Party Poker was a safer place to keep my winnings than a bank or an online wallet. Well, you're wrong. It's not. <laughs> on or shortly after February 14th, 2023, I discovered my account was locked and inaccessible. I immediately contacted Team 651, my stable, who contacted their affiliate. And Tane and Party Poker never contacted me about the fact that they had frozen my account until over four months later when they finally answered an email. That part's kind of weird. I can't explain that. It was only after a conversation with my affiliate, who had in turn had conversations with Intain, did I find out that Intain had closed my account, claiming I had broken their terms and conditions by providing a suspected fake document. It is important to note that Intain had previously accepted the document as genuine and therefore permitted me to deposit almost 100000 It was apparently good enough to take money from me, but no longer good enough to pay out money to me. Okay, let's stop here. On the surface, this guy would seem to have a legitimate gripe. Basically, that he submitted this document and whether it should be good enough or not to prove he's in Ireland, that they were quite happy to let him keep depositing and losing with that flimsy document, but the second he wins something big, that now they want to verify him. Now, I can't say the second he wins something big, because he got 300k off, but in the middle of withdrawing it, suddenly they say, you know what, we're confiscating your money, your document's fake. So on the surface, that looks crappy. On the surface, that looks like they did screw him, and that they only care about scrutinizing you when you've won. But let's go on. At no stage during this whole period has Intain given me any detail or evidence about the document. They simply claim it's fake and based on their terms and conditions can apparently seize my balance with no due process or evidence supplied. I have asked Intain in multiple emails to provide evidence of the documents being fake and they refused. Their ability to arbitrarily decide whether a document is real or fake and apply it to such strict terms and conditions to seize money won is a huge red flag to anyone thinking or playing or betting with an Intain brand. Don't risk it. You have to ask yourself, if Intain is willing to seize money that belongs to the poker community, how would Intain be regarding seizing my own money that I won, which hits their P&L, meaning profit and loss, a big sports win or a big casino win, for example? So basically, he's trying to say, if they're willing to steal from me, they're willing to steal from you. The money seized is not a profit and loss for Intain. It is player funds. However, Intain wanted to want to and currently are treating it as a profit and loss benefit. So basically, he's saying they're keeping it. So let's stop here. I don't know if this electric bill he submitted was real or fake. And to me, it doesn't matter much. To me, it's the same thing if he takes an existing electric bill and forges his name on there with Photoshop or if the guy he was, quote, staying with in Ireland quickly changes the bill to his name, waits for it to generate, and then submits it for him or sends it to him to submit. That's the same thing. It's, a, it's basically generating a document that is proving nothing. Like, I could go tomorrow, change my electric bill to say Trader Ruski lives here. Does that mean he lives here? No. Has Trader Ruski ever lived with me? No. But I could make the electric bill say that. I really could. So that doesn't prove anything. However, 
if they say, let's see your true and correct electric bill from three months ago, and I show them the actual bill that came from the electric company three months ago, and that has Trader Ruski's name on it, and that he just started claiming today that he's living with me, well, that would be stronger, because that would show that uh, three months beforehand that his name was on the bill. But if I generate a new bill with his name, or if I just send in a bill which may or may not be real and could be forged, that doesn't prove anything. So I don't really care if the bill is fake or real. The point is, even by his own story, it doesn't prove he was really living there. And that's the whole point of what they're doing. They're trying to prove that the guy was actually there in Dublin when he was playing and not sitting at home in Romania where he's not allowed to be playing. That's the whole point of this exercise. The utility bill is just one method of proving it. So Party Poker would even have the right to say, okay, you submitted a current electric bill that could have just been changed to your name. This isn't convincing enough. We need to see more proof. Show us this, show us that. They have a right to go through a know-your-customer procedure to compel him to show them sufficient proof that he's really living where he claims he's living at the time he's playing on there. And if he refuses to or can't provide it, then that's pretty strong that he really doesn't live there. So as far as this situation is concerned, changing the bill to his name and sending it to a party, that doesn't prove anything. I don't care if it's a fake bill or a real bill that was changed for the purpose of sending it to them. It doesn't really matter. He goes on to write, Via my affiliate, I was told that Intain would pay out my balance if I provided new documentary evidence that I was in Dublin. So basically, it looks like they're saying, okay, we don't like this bill, whether it's fake or real, it just doesn't prove anything to us. So show us proof you were in Dublin when you hit this million dollars, we will send you the money. So he said, I did this with multiple documents, photos, and even a photo taken of my laptop screen logged into the Irish electricity account. The documentation was completely genuine and impossible to fake. I submitted this documentation again via my affiliate and found out that Antane had changed their mind. They would no longer accept it. During this time, I even cashed at a poker tournament in Dublin. Not sure how it would have been possible to fake that. So he's referring to the he was actually in Dublin and played and cashed in a poker tournament there. So obviously he's not just always in Romania. But that doesn't mean much. That's way after the fact. That's in 2023. He could have gone to Dublin... for this purpose, because it's so much money at stake. They could have flown to Dublin and uh, stayed with his friend and tried to establish things that he's at least there at the moment. Note, and Tain still were not corresponding with me directly. I received no detailed correspondence between the 14th February 2023 and June 23rd, 2023. They ignored me and only sent standard auto-reply emails prior to June 23rd, 2023. During this time, I was aware of and personally know at least five other players who were in exactly the same situation as me. Accounts closed due to suspected but not proven faked documents. However, each of these players was permitted to cash out their balance. There were five of them. One of these players is actually permitted to provide new documents and carry on playing. The only difference between my case and their case is with the value of the balance and Entain's desire to turn poker network player funds into a profit and loss benefit. So he doesn't give enough info there. What did these players provide afterwards? So they were accused of fake documents. He claimed that each of these five people were permitted to cash out. He's claiming that he wasn't because it was so much money. Now, maybe he's right about that, but maybe they sent in something else that at least established some reasonable doubt. And maybe he's right. Maybe the the value of the money was so small they decided it wasn't worth fighting about. 
But even if they let these players off, that doesn't mean they have to let him off. By his own admission, the amount of money is very different. So, of course, they're going to scrutinize a bigger withdrawal more. And he said one of them could provide new documents and carry on. Well, maybe that person really was where they said they were, or at least was good at faking it. So he still hasn't explained exactly what he submitted other than, quote, multiple documents and photos. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. And a photo of his laptop screen logged into the Iris electricity account that's in his name. Well, I believe they probably changed the account to his name at that point. But that, again, doesn't mean anything. A photo of a laptop screen with the electric bill in his name in 2023 when he won this in 2022. They're not looking to see if he would eventually move to Dublin. They're looking to see, was he in Dublin when he won that? He said, I next heard via my affiliate that Intain proposed a deal that they would pay out my balance minus 100000 which they intended to keep, to add to their profit and loss. I reluctantly accepted the proposal as $600,000 is better than zero. Shortly after accepting, I was told by my affiliate that the offer was being withdrawn, I suspect at that stage that if I'd gone back and offered 50-50 split, they would have accepted. However, even though I considered this, the fact that a large FTSE 100 index UK regulated gaming company was trying to create revenue for the profit and loss from poker player funds is something I was willing to fight. Now, by the way, that's not necessarily true. They may have offered this, but would have refunded the rest of this to players. We don't know. I did eventually hear from Entain with an email correspondence that properly stated on June 23rd, 2023, during which I questioned their process, the fairness of other players being paid out and asked for evidence that the documents were fakes and received very short shrift answers until they informed me that the matter was closed. I even emailed Entain's CEO at the time. However, I did not even receive a basic reply. I more recently emailed Group D Operations Director Peter Marcus, who also failed to reply. Well, that doesn't mean much. You email the CEO and big directors of these companies. They sometimes don't accept outside email. My only option was to appeal to ECOGRA, which I did and was eventually told that Intain had acted within the bounds of their terms and conditions. ECOGRA is like a middleman site that some sites cooperate with. They're kind of like an impartial middleman that mediates these situations. So he claims that ECOGRA sided with Entain. I have since been told that ECOGRA is funded by the large gaming operators and almost never finds in favor of the player. It is important to note that ECOGRA did not say I was using fake documents or that I had broken any gaming rules or laws. It simply said Entain's terms and conditions permitted them to do what they did, which is why the warning has to be taken seriously. Do you want to have money deposited with a company that has such one-sided terms and conditions? Okay. I don't know what he's claiming they said to him, but there's no way they said, well, it's in the terms of conditions that whenever party poker feels like it, they can just arbitrarily take 700K from you. <laughs> there's no way that occurred. So I don't know exactly what Ecogra wrote. I once dealt with Ecogra, not for myself, but I did it on behalf of a both listener to this show and forum poster. And I actually thought that in that case, the site was right, but the guy created enough reasonable doubt where I asked E. Corker to look into it. Now, he tried to have E. Corker look into it, and they ruled against him very quickly. And then I said, look, there are some 
mitigating circumstances here, and there are some things you guys didn't consider, so can you relook at it with the following information? And they did, and they came back to me with a very detailed and convincing report that really made me believe this guy was in the wrong. But I was impressed with how detailed the report was and how fair they were. The only thing was, originally when he went to them, they quickly dismissed him. They looked into it briefly and said, no, you were trying to cheat them, and you're not getting your money back. Now, that didn't end up being the ultimate conclusion. I think they were right. But I will say that they initially didn't put that much research into it. But then when I approached them and told them about poker fraud alert and all that, you know, given everything about me, they did a more thorough investigation for the guy. And then I felt a little bit stupid when it turned out that it looked pretty bad for him. But whatever. So some people are saying that Ecogra really doesn't help you that much. And it really is funded by the gaming sites and that they tend to be on their side. So I won't take up too much for Ecogra here, but it also doesn't look that great that they dismissed him. But I doubt that they said that just the terms and conditions allow them to seize your money for any reason. Now, I like this part. Although this period I have accrued debt and suffered hugely with my mental health, I played as part of a stable, so my first withdrawals were given to the stable. I did not profit a single dollar for my win. I have had to borrow money and get into considerable debt. This has had a devastating impact on my mental health, and I have been as low as to feel suicidal on a number of occasions. Now, I normally wouldn't make light of that if someone feels suicidal. And I do want to tell the listeners of this show, if you ever feel suicidal, like seriously suicidal, or you really think you might do it, uh, feel free to text me, 775-372-8355, and I'll talk to you. Because, yeah, it's a serious matter. But this looks like manipulation to me. He's trying to throw in that this was affecting his mental health. He was even feeling suicidal. It just really seems like he's trying to tug at your heartstrings here. I explained this to Antane, who failed to even acknowledge or offer her an apology. Well, yeah, if they think you were trying to screw them or play where you weren't supposed to play from and then send fake documents, of course they're not going to care. They're not going to care if you're going to write, oh, I'm feeling so suicidal. Well, they'll tell you to go call a mental health professional or they'll just ignore it. Like, you can't expect big corporations to care about your feelings or your mental health. This is a regulated gambling giant that doesn't care about players that have stopped playing. This is a gambling giant that once it realized I had stopped playing, decided there was no revenue opportunity for my balance, and decided to act regardless of the impact it was going to have on my mental health and well-being. No, see, this is where the guy really lost me. I was already skeptical, but this guy writes this stuff. He looks like he's just trying to emotionally manipulate the reader. Hey, you know what? I've been depressed before, too. Yeah, that feels really crappy, and wow, and Tane just doesn't care. Look, guys, I had about the highest level of depression and anxiety possible about five and a half years ago. Trader Ruski remembers I uh, talked to him during some of my worst times. And at no point did I ever blame a corporation or think a corporation would care. At no point did I think that, because they wouldn't. You're just a number to corporations. And you, you can't say, oh my God, the corporation doesn't care that I have mental health issues and I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. They, they don't care. That's right. They don't care. So that's not who you need to go to to care. You should go to friends or family or a therapist. That's who you should go to. You should not go to a corporation that you're having a dispute with and say, come on, I told you I'm suicidal. Why won't you give me the money back? That's not how it works. Okay, so you can probably tell already I'm very skeptical of this guy. 
Let me tell you what's really happening here, from what I can tell. Let's start with the fact that he is Romanian and moved to Ireland. Party is legal to play from Ireland, but not in Romania. He's part of a stable. And then he's supposed to give the proof that he was playing from Ireland. And the proof is an electric bill that was hastily changed to his name after they asked for the proof. That's no proof. That proof is meaningless. I don't care if it's forged or not. It is true that, uh, or probably true, that he lost around 100000 He says 97000 So Okay, I believe maybe he lost 97000 as part of that stable. It wasn't his money, but stable's money. He lost ninety-seven k prior to hitting that million-dollar score, partially because the rake is so high on those spin events. Then he finally hit that lucky million-dollar jackpot. So now he's way up, of course. So here's where it really gets shifty and shady. If he's going to quit online poker after that, I mean, that's already kind of strange for the reasons I said, but okay, fine. I can't tell you what's in his head as to why he would quit then. I have my suspicions, but fine. We're not going to focus too much on that. But then to withdraw his funds, his million dollars plus, in such small increments that four months later, he's only gotten 30% off. And I don't think they have any kind of limit as to what you can take off. I think you can take it off very quickly if you want. He, He didn't say they have any kind of limit. So... He said it was his decision to take it off in small increments, and the explanation made no sense. He's like, well, I might come back one day, so I took it off in small increments. And I'm like, what? What? That would make sense why you don't take off the whole thing, not why a small increments. Small increments does not make any sense. So why would he take it off in small increments that makes it so slow to get the money that four months later, only 30% is off, supposedly the part that the stable's taking? I'll tell you why. There's one and only one possibility why he did this because he was trying to stay under the radar the last thing a stable wants is to leave a lot of funds on there especially when they already know there's questions about where he's playing from even if he was really in dublin when he played and it was all fine he was asked for these documents they had to scramble to send the electric bill they knew that party was at the very least at one point questioning where he was really playing from the last thing they're going to want to do is leave that money sitting there so party can confiscate it for some reason. So the only reason not to immediately get that money off of there is if you do not want to attract attention. If you're afraid there's going to be new requests to prove where you are. So if you request it very slowly and maybe wait a little while after hitting the jackpot and then just start taking a little bit off at a time. I don't know what increments, but he said small. Maybe $5,000 each, maybe 10000 each, I don't know. Something he thinks is not going to really raise a red flag with them. Then maybe they can get the whole thing off without anyone ever asking any further questions. Whereas if you just smack a $900,000 withdrawal out there, they're going to start scrutinizing it real carefully. So it looks like he was withdrawing this so slowly in such small increments that he was hoping, and I assume the stable was hoping, that this would never be interfered with. And I guess for a while it was working, because he went four months doing it and got 300 k out of there. And then Party Poker must have audited something and said, whoa, 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 you've pulled 300 k off of here, and you know we haven't checked into your account that carefully, so we want to make sure everything's legit, so hang on a second. And then... They suspended him. They looked at the one document he sent, and either they found signs that it was photoshopped, or they just 
noticed that the date of it was after when they requested it. Whatever it was, they didn't like something about the document and didn't think it proved anything, which they're right. It didn't. So when that happens, let's just say he got screwed here. Let's just say he really was living in Dublin when he hit this. Let's say he was living with a friend there and he hit this. And let's even say that for the next four months while he was withdrawing, he was still in Dublin, which he's claiming. What do you do then if they don't like the electric bill? Why don't you offer to send them a lot more proving where you are, such as send them receipts for when you ate places there, you ate at restaurants in Dublin, or you went to some kind of other businesses in Dublin, you went to doctors in Dublin, you went to grocery stores in Dublin. Every time you charge something on your credit card, or you have receipts dated from those days, from those places, just anything you have. There has to be some kind of paper trail or electronic paper trail showing a lot of financial activity over that time in Dublin, because I doubt he was walking around Dublin for all that time paying cash for everything. I have a feeling that he did create some kind of paper trail. And you could even offer to have locals that are not affiliated with you to sign affidavits that you were there in their business or that you were living next door, whatever it is. Because this is a lot of money you're talking about here. This is $707,000, which he claims is all his. He claims the stable already got theirs. So why would you not go to everyone and everything and search all your records and all your credit card statements and just start hammering party with all this stuff? And if you need to send it through your affiliate who's advocating on your behalf, then do it through them. But why would you not be volunteering this stuff to prove that they're wrong? So you can say, okay, you don't like this electric document? Okay, no problem. Here's a ton of other stuff. Here's 100 pages of stuff proving I was in Dublin on that date and proving I was in Dublin after that date and before that date. So how about that? He's not saying he did that. All he's saying is he sent, quote, documents and photos and sent a picture of him at his laptop with the electric bill in his name. That doesn't mean anything. He should have a lot more than that, and he's not claiming that he submitted more than that, nor is he claiming that he did anything to prove that electric bill was really in his name other than showing in 2023 that it was. So this really looks like to me that maybe he didn't even actually change it then, and they only changed it after the fact once the account got closed. Maybe they forged the bill back in July 2021. It was accepted. They say, okay, cool, no reason to actually change it. And then once the money got confiscated, well, then they changed it. So I have a feeling that while he may have visited Ireland sometimes, that for the most part, he was there in Romania playing on a VPN or team viewing into computers that were in Dublin. He was doing something there through the stable, probably, to appear that he was in Dublin when he was really in Romania and that when he hit this million dollar jackpot, he was really in Romania and they knew at the stable that they couldn't treat this like a normal legitimate win because if they did, there'd be a lot of scrutiny. So that's why they went into hiding from being noticed mode and started doing these micro withdrawals to try to slowly get the whole thing off. And I guess it wasn't that done because they got 30% of it that way. It looks very clear to me that's what happened. Doesn't surprise me that when Ecogra looked into it, that Party Poker sent them a brief synopsis of why they thought this was all bullshit. And Ecogra's like, yep. This looks like a VPNer who's mad that he got caught. Okay, carry on. 
So why hasn't Party distributed the seized funds to the player base? He keeps talking about their profit and loss. Why are they putting it in their coffers and not distributing it to his opponents? Isn't that proof that they did this maliciously? No. He's been making such a big deal about this and pressing so hard that they probably don't want to distribute these funds until this is completely adjudicated. Because remember, he got an attorney. He's probably threatening to sue them. He's making a big deal about this to try to get that money. So they are probably just holding it up until there is something ruled in their favor to where they can feel comfortable distributing it to the other players and not have to worry about being ruled against in some way by some regulator and then have to cough up the money out of their own pocket. Because once they distribute it, then the money's gone. Then if it's ever ruled they have to pay it, then they'll have to pay it out of their own pocket. So they're just holding it right now. I doubt that a huge company like Party is going to just keep the funds to themselves. Now, what about the part that he's angry about that his electric bill, whether real or fake, was good enough when he was losing, but only got intense scrutiny when he won a million dollars and was trying to withdraw? So why is it only good for losing, but not good for winning? Well, at a glance, that would seem like he has legitimate gripe there. But look, it's either real or fake. If it's fake, or if it was changed hastily after the fact to prove something that wasn't true, then you were violating the terms and conditions. You were on Romanian soil or somewhere else you weren't supposed to be when you won this, and you don't deserve it. That's the bottom line. That's a chance you took. Now, let's say you got all the money off, and let's say you told a story about this. Hey, everybody, you want to hear about this? I used to be part of a stable. I was on Romanian soil. I was playing for uh, the stable there, and I won a million dollars, and here's what we did to avoid scrutiny, and here's the bullshit bill we submitted, and I got it all off, and I'm out of that stable now, so I can tell you guys, and ha, 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 I got away with it. Would I say this guy's an awful person? No. Would I be criticizing him? No. This is one of these things where it doesn't bother me that people get away with it, but I also need them to acknowledge their risk. It's an additional form of gambling. Looks like we're losing Trader Risky. It's additional form of gambling that they could possibly confiscate what you've won at any time. So the upside is you get to play somewhere that otherwise you don't get to play. The downside is that they can confiscate it if they catch you. So my attitude about this as an outsider Because this is like a victimless sort of thing. If this guy's playing on there, it's not really cheating anyone. It's just against the laws in certain countries, and it's against regulations. So I don't give a crap about the laws and regulations of certain countries. If someone wants to try that and they get away with it, okay, fine. You know, whatever. I'm not going to begrudge them for that. But if they get caught and it gets confiscated, well, I don't feel bad for you. In fact, that's why I don't play on Party with a VPN. That's why I don't play on GG with a VPN or PokerStars with a VPN. I could. I have the ability to do so. But I don't want to get my money seized. That's why I don't do it. So if you do it, fine. I'm not going to hold it against you. But if you get your money seized, too bad. That's the risk you're taking. So you can't complain about it. You can't cry foul at that point. Now... Their light verification to losing players, that is a question to ask regulators if they want to take a look at. That's something in general for party that maybe they should get in trouble for. Maybe they should get fined for this. If they're very lightly verifying those who are losing and then very 
heavily verifying those who are winning. I agree that's not fair. I think that should change. And that's a good reason to complain to regulators not to get your own money back, but maybe to get party in trouble. But if you were playing from a place you shouldn't be, then you should not get that money. That's the bottom line. And whether they overlooked this, he complained that they overlook others playing on VPNs, others who are playing from disallowed countries, they've paid these other people who didn't get as much money. Look, this doesn't matter. Just because things are being allowed for other people that are against the terms doesn't mean it has to be allowed for you. Something I hate that businesses sometimes say when they don't want to do something for you is, if I do this for you, I have to do this for everyone. That's just not true. And I've told businesses before when they try to claim that to me, that you don't have to. That's not true. Everyone does not have access to see what we're doing right here. And there's no law or rule that you have to do for everyone what you do for me. Businesses give preferential treatment for people all the time. Businesses make exceptions for people all the time. They have a right to do it. So they don't have to do it for everyone. It's not like this is being broadcast everywhere where everyone can see it and then complain later. So similarly, party does not have to give him his million dollars just because they have not been as harsh with other people. It's just like if you break laws in your locality and you get arrested, you can't say, well, the guy down the street did something similar to me and they never prosecuted him, so you can't prosecute me. And they say, yes, we can. Bottom line is you broke the law. What the other guy did and what we did with him is immaterial. So you don't have a right to break the law or break the terms and conditions just because others have. Now, if you want to make a general complaint that they're overlooking it for certain people, then yeah, you should make that complaint to regulators, but that's not going to get you off for it. You are taking a chance when you're breaking a major term of service on a site and VPNing in to pretend you're in a allowed location when you're not is a major violation. And I'm one who's not a terms and conditions monkey. I'm one who believes that you need to take a common sense interpretation. And if someone broke a ticky tack rule, you don't find a way to close their account and seize their money and punish them in some way. You need to look at these with common sense. Oh, look at this. Calwatt, hello. Thank you for replacing uh, the men's group guy. How you doing, Druff? Glad to have you on here. We're we're discussing the party poker seizures and uh, seizure, not seizures, but I don't know if you've been listening, but yeah, this guy, he, he VPNs in, it looks like, and they catch him when he wins a million dollars, and then he withdraws super slow so they don't catch him and gets away with about 30% of it, and they catch it, and they don't like the fake documents he sent in, and now he's crying foul. That's basically what happened. So I don't have any sympathy here. I'm sorry. This looks just like a VPNer from a place he shouldn't be as part of a stable. And the stable matters, too, because the stable's not against the rules, but stables are more likely to play fast and loose with the rules if it benefits them. Because what happens if he gets banned? I mean, yeah, they lost 70% of the money. I don't believe the first 300 k was theirs. I think that uh, yeah, maybe they have a rule that, they get their part first, but I, I think it's convenient that he's claiming that they just finished getting their part and he got it confiscated right when he was about to get his. But whatever it is, they basically do what overall they think is going to benefit them. So if they think they can get a lot of players that are winners from Romania to play, they will take a chance that some might get caught 
and because they still have a lot of players on there, they don't care so much if a few of them get removed from it because they can continue playing on the site. They don't love that they lose money that was seized, but yeah, it's part of the cost of doing business. So stables are less protective of accounts getting closed than individuals are because an individual loses the account, they're gone for good. So that's another reason why I think that this is more likely to be a violation among all the other things. Just a lot of these stories make no sense. A lot of the parts of the story don't add up. So anyway, that's the bottom line. He's focusing too much on what they allow for other people, and they look the other way for other people, and this for other people, and that for other people. Put all that aside. Did you break the rules? Did you play from a country you were not supposed to be in when you played and won the million dollars? And are you having a hard time proving you were in Ireland because you weren't in Ireland? If that's all the case, which I believe to be the case, then that's it. Matter closed. You lose. You don't get the money. That's it. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. That's really all I have to say about it. Now, I have one more thing I want to point out, though. Remember I said I'm going to say something good about Berkey? Well, i got to give credit where it's due. Berkey apparently learned about this story from me. Not directly. I didn't tell him about it, but uh, I tweeted about it and put a link to Poker Fraud Alert, which Berkey saw, and then he read the whole thing on Poker Fraud Alert, and this was what gave him the information to do the segment about it on his own show. And he didn't have to tell people that this is where he got the information, because it was all posted there on 2 Plus 2. It was just you know, a very, very long story and kind of convoluted, and I broke it down on Poker Fraud Alert with Cliffs, and this allowed him to digest it more easily, and he basically used my write-up as the guideline for the show that he did on that day. So he actually admitted this, volunteered it on his show. I'm going to play you the little segment there. So this is Berkey basically telling everybody that he got this from me yeah uh big shout out to dandruff um todd uh will tell us that was his summary basically that i was reading there's a long very 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 long two plus two thread that uh would take the entire show to get through if you guys are interested in that you can head over to two plus two and check it out but um i think todd does a pretty good job of summarizing it on his uh on his forum poker fraud alert um and yeah, it, it, it the fact seems that he's like keeping that much on on the site still is kind of wild. Well, he, so then Berkey gets distracted by this girl Melissa interrupting him and talking about the subject and not about him getting it from me. So he was going to say more. I was kind of curious what he was going to say more, but it got interrupted and he never came back to talk about me. But that's fine. I give him credit here for giving me credit because this was not a story originally posted on my site. This is something that he could have just read on 2 plus 2 himself, and even if I saw the segment, I wouldn't have said, hey, he stole this from me, because, you know, he could have just interpreted it the same way as I did. It didn't take a genius to interpret it this way. And it's also not like Berkey is dumb. It's not like I'm the only one capable of doing this, or I think he's incapable himself. He's very capable of doing it. So, I would not have suspected for a second that what he said on this segment, which I haven't played you, but, you know, it's similar to what I said, that this interpretation got stolen from me so i only know this because he said it himself and he could have just postured like he came up with all of this on his own and this was his interpretation but instead he gave me the shout out he showed a little 
screenshot of the tweet where I was linking people to it. He mentioned Poker Fraud Alert. So, okay, thank you. That was a, a class move there. I will say that in all seriousness. So even though I criticized earlier his behavior with Jonathan Little, I will give him credit here for being classy regarding the way he gave me credit for doing this. Because he didn't have to. He could have just read it on my site and pretended like he read it on 2 Plus 2 and never mentioned me. But he mentioned me and gave me credit for breaking it down well. Actually said Poker Fraud Alert. So, okay. Point for Berkey on that one. A pleasant surprise. A listener to this show brought my attention to it, and I went to go listen for myself. And I said, wow, okay. Thank you. So that's all I've got here on this topic. I want to play you something that was a pretty heated argument between Ryan Feldman and Garrett Adelstein on Twitter Spaces. Normally, I don't play Twitter Spaces stuff out here. There's a lot of drama on there and everything, but the signal-to-noise ratio on Twitter Spaces is very low. It's mostly noise. Occasionally, there's some entertaining or interesting elements there, but a lot of times, it's just a bunch of guys talking. It's kind of like an old-school party line in a way. So most of that is not very good to play back on this show. It's fine if you want to just kind of pass the time or shoot the shit with other people in the spaces and sometimes some big-name players come in there. So it's fine for that, but it's not really good for content of shows like these. But this is one of the times it is. And even though I kind of got burnt out on the whole Hustler Casino Live and Robbie Jade Lou saga, I did find this interesting and fortunately, someone recorded the most interesting part of this whole thing and saved it and made a YouTube video out of it. And the video is actually just audio, kind of like this show on YouTube. It's just audio with uh, not much video to it. But very interesting. And they really get into it big time. So this is a Twitter space that featured a number of people a lot of them were Hustler Casino Live guys that either play a lot on there or are friends with Ryan and Nick. Then Ryan and Nick themselves were there. And Garrett was there. But Garrett, and he even says this himself, is kind of walking alone on this one. He didn't have his buddies there with him. He didn't have his supporters there with him. So the other speakers that were present there... Because on Spaces, you can either be a speaker or a listener. The person running Spaces have to authorize you as a speaker. So the speakers here, for whatever reason, were mostly pro-Hustler Casino Live and anti-Garrett. And he kind of felt like he was outnumbered there and was really, at first, hesitating to even get into a debate there, knowing that everyone's going to crush him there. Which I understand. You know, it's very hard when you have the whole group there on one side against you. But eventually he agreed to do it if the rules of the whole thing were that everybody would agree to shut up and just let him go back and forth with Ryan. And some sparks flew. Let's take a listen. First take, uh, thank you for thank you for joining the panel, and I'll just let you guys go. Go ahead. By the way, that's Eden Rocks. We had him on as a guest uh, not too long ago. He runs a lot of these spaces, and that's what he's best known for is running poker Twitter spaces. He doesn't play a lot of poker. He actually came from a different community, like a gaming community. Very uh, unique and interesting guy, as you've probably heard from when he was on here. 
Eden Rocks and I have always gotten along. You know, we're not close friends or anything, but he's an acquaintance through Twitter, and we've always gotten along, and he's been respectful to me. I've been respectful to him. So he doesn't have that much of a role here, but he does kind of moderate the whole thing. And, you know, to be honest, he did a good job moderating this very crazy argument that you're going to hear. Thank you. Hey, uh, I, I only have uh, a few minutes. I don't That's Garrett. really want to go back and forth, resort to more personal jabs with Ryan like he took at me here in the beginning. Uh, I just want to give him an opportunity to answer the questions I tweeted about. It's pretty special to me that I tweeted just a few really easy questions, and yet he hasn't answered them. So, Eden, all, Eden, all, all I would ask is... Okay, guys, I'm here finally. Uh, all I would ask... Uh, Eden, is if you wouldn't mind just muting everyone except Ryan and I, because obviously this everyone on the panel for sure uh, is an extremely pro HCL crowd. So I just kind of want to have like a one on one with Ryan specifically. And again, all I want to do before I hop off is is just get his answers to this, the questions I asked. If if you'd be okay if I right, ask him on the space, I'm gonna allow that. The people want one v one Ryan Feldman Garrett uh, so bear you thank you for joining the panel because Garrett's here if you wouldn't mind just waiting a minute I I do see you apologize to you bear you thank you for joining us I'm going to allow Garrett and Ryan to have a conversation whatever you guys got the floor go thank you okay so that's a good decision on the part of Eden Rocks to grant Garrett the ability to just talk back and forth with Ryan Feldman so there's no unfair ganging up on Garrett. On this one because Garrett's right if the people who were there that could speak were mostly friends of Nick and Ryan's that is not really fair to him if they're going to have some kind of debate this bear Jew they're talking about is one of the Hustler Casino live friends so Garrett definitely didn't want him speaking and Eden knew that and said okay you know we just put you on as a speaker but don't speak until after all this, because we want it to just be one-on-one. So good job with Eden there, and Garrett's request was very reasonable. Thank you. All right, yeah, so, I mean, just the, like, I'm literally just, like, going to repeat verbatim what I tweeted, which he has not responded to. And so the first one is, like, did I ask you countless times every time uh, there was a game where Luda was talking about playing? And also, to be clear, Luda played in many, many big games as well and you'll notice i never once played in a single one of those let me stop here and let you know what he's talking about there's a guy who plays as luda or luda chris and he was a roommate of ryan feldman's and there was some controversy surrounding him and i told you that in 2022 a guy approached me at the world series of poker And it was someone I didn't know, but who knew who I was and wanted to tell me a bunch of stuff about Ryan Feldman. And basically, the guy told me that Ryan Feldman put Ludacris into the Live at the Bike games and that Ludacris, who was previously like a nit and a mid-stakes player, was all of a sudden playing at high stakes, playing a very wild, aggressive style and just crushed it there. And there was a lot of suspicion that Luda was able to know the whole cards in some way and that Ryan had arranged that and took a piece of it and that there was such heavy suspicion of this that this is why Ryan was let go from Live at the Bike and eventually the bike entirely. And that's what led him to start his own at Hustler Casino Live. That's what this guy told me. Now, the guy could not provide me any proof of it and I didn't know him. I even asked him how he knew me and he said he doesn't really know me, that he just knows what I look like and had heard of me but that his friend listens to this show all the time and his friend told him to go find me and let me know about this. 
the problem was the guy couldn't give me any proof of this. So I didn't tell anyone about this interaction. Even after the whole Robbie J. Lou thing happened, I didn't tell anyone about this interaction. When I told people was when this actually came out on Twitter and Ryan talked about the whole story. I think it first came out on Reddit and then on Twitter. Ryan actually gave an explanation to this whole allegation because it came out elsewhere. And at that point, I said, oh, that's funny. That's exactly what someone told me at the World Series of Poker who actually found me during a break and talked to me about it. So this was one of these things without any proof. I wasn't going to just go make allegations against Ryan like that. But since it was brought out publicly and Ryan addressed them, I did address it and talked about how it had been told to me. And I gave my opinion at the time. And I read Ryan's defense and all that. We did it on a different show. So this topic has come back up because Garrett and Ryan and Nick, you know, they don't get along here. Just the HD, the HCL people just really with Garrett, they have a big beef at the moment. And this was brought out by Garrett, the various suspicions about Ludacris that he just felt were really never fleshed out properly, basically trying to show that Ryan Feldman is shady and has been avoiding this and has been avoiding answering to this. So that's what he's referring to here. Just wanted to remind you guys. This part's not new. You know, this is stuff that has been alleged now for a while, ever since the Robbie J. Lou thing happened, and we've discussed before on this show. I just wanted to remind you. Ryan knew exactly how I felt about it, and I asked him countless times, is Luda playing on this day? And every time he would just confirm no. And before Ryan answers, I just like want to point out that I am painfully aware that Ryan and Ludacris have always been, at minimum, extremely close friends. So like where he tries to like tastelessly like post that screenshot or whatever, like what did he think like I was going to say about Luda? Like I'm never going to say anything negative about Luda to Ryan, knowing how close they are. So anyway, the question, Ryan, is did I ask you many times, is Luda playing before I would play in a game? So before Ryan answers, just quickly to say what he's talking about here, there was a screenshot Ryan posted showing Garrett complimenting Luda, saying that he was a very good player. And so Ryan's defense is basically, you're saying Luda couldn't win without cheating. Well, look, here's you yourself saying that Luda's a very good player. So why are you so shocked that he did well? And Garrett's saying, well, I just said that to be polite because I know you two are very close. So that's that's what he's saying. So again, he's he's asking, Ryan, can you verify that I was refusing to play in games that Luda was going to be in because I didn't trust the whole situation? Uh, I would strongly deny that. I even went back and tried to find old text to see. Ryan, Ryan, stop twisting the words. I asked many times in our verbal conversations. Okay. I do not remember that ever happening. Um, I'm being honest with you. I'm not saying it didn't. I don't remember that ever happening. Um, And that's not the case that I never, you know, I don't ever remember you saying, oh, is Chris playing in this game? Okay, fine. Then I'll play. No, that's not how it worked. He didn't want to play with you because he knows you're a great player. And, like, he likes playing in fun, soft lineups. Like, that's the truth of the matter. It was never a thing where you chose not to play in games. Like, no, the only Fridays he ever played is if you were out of town or if it was a special game. That was yeah, it. There was never an option for both that's, to play. Yeah. I, I will, go ahead. Sorry. I'll go to bat on that. Yeah. Uh, no, that, I wanted to let you finish. Yeah, no, but we're saying the same thing. You know, you're saying Luda didn't want to play with me. I'm saying in no world was I ever willing to play with Luda, something I made very clear to you despite your close friendship. Yeah, what I'm saying is that I was never aware 
or at least fully aware that you felt that way that like, oh, I'm not going to play with him because of whatever. Mm. No, it was just never an option or never a discussion because you guys were just, yeah, the fans wanted you guys to see the player, but to play together, but it was just never an option because you guys played in different kinds of yeah. games. All right, let's go to the next one. And, 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 and he didn't really play, and he didn't really play big that often. He played, you know, Tuesday game, five, five, 50 or whatever. And you played hundred. Right. Again, but there was, there was several out. exceptions to that in the HCL library where you can see he played in big games, but how many times did he play? I, I have no uh, idea, but like th these things are so inconsequential. Like I said, I want to keep invited. this brief. He, he played, he, he <clears> played in the Keating game twice that you weren't inviting to. And he played once in another Friday game that you weren't in town for. Yeah. That's it. Okay. And then, uh, so I guess this is technically two parts. Did you hide from anyone HCL ownership, uh, no, sorry, HCL ownership, sorry. Uh, live at the bike minority ownership, and I'm not blowing up anyone's specific spot here in any way. I'm just naming a few of the minority owners of Live at the Bike at that time. That would be Evelyn, that would be JJ, that would be Dan, Zach. Did you not reveal to any of those people at any time that Luda was your roommate? Um. Okay, I would say that I never like specifically intentionally for any malicious reason lied or hid that fact from anyone i didn't go and announce it once we started being roommates i didn't go and post it like hey guys like just letting you know because i didn't think it was that big of a deal but i never maliciously hid it from anyone yeah and i think this is like and, and so this is me interjecting an opinion it's not a question this is where i think uh the audience needs to utilize some critical listening skills you'll see ryan dance around the truth all the time in spots like this it is it would be ridiculous for the other owners of hcl not i'm sorry i keep doing that <laughs> uh the other owners of live at the bike to not know ryan and Ludacris are roommates when as ryan self-proclaimed 10 okay. wait, let me finish 10 minutes ago luda was the quote garrett of tuesday like it's just so fucking egregious and to pretend as you do with so many things that it was just an oversight is just so absurd and i before you finish that i also just want to make make very clear what i'm doing is a far far cry from accusing ludicrous directly and that's why so many other people that have been brought up in this conversation or whatever refuse to do that as well we see what happens in Jack 4, where the the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming, and you will be crucified for life for that, right? Which is why I think someone else asked at the beginning of the space, like, why, why didn't Garrett mention his concerns about Luda in 2017? It's very, very obvious. Again, even... No, see, I got to stop here. This is where Garrett loses me a little bit. The, the stuff he was saying before was very reasonable, that... He was claiming that he was refusing to play with Luda back on Live of the Bike. Ryan saying, no, Luda was refusing to play with you. You never told me that you didn't want to play with him. And then it kind of seemed like they ended that on a draw that no one could really show that the other was uh, lying there. Then Garrett brought up a good point that Ryan didn't tell the other Live of the Bike owners that Luda was his roommate when he was having him put in lineups. And Ryan admitted that and said, well, I didn't intentionally withhold it. I just didn't mention it to them because I didn't think it was important. And that is a little bit questionable. Now, that doesn't mean Luda was cheating. It could have just been that Ryan was afraid they'd say no to having Luda on the show and Luda wanted to go on, so they just intentionally didn't tell them. But you know, I admit that Garrett got in a good point there. However, right here, he's kind of losing me a little bit 
because he was claiming there's overwhelming circumstantial evidence about Robbie Jade Lou and the Jack Four. There really wasn't. It, that's what was so fascinating about it. Is it was so hard to tell if this was just like a donk play that happened to win money or if she was cheating. And I still can't figure it out to this day. It's very hard to figure it out. And people who still come up and ask me about it, they assume I would have all the answers. And I say, sorry, I'm going to disappoint you, but I don't. I'm still kind of on the fence on this one. So this wasn't so obvious. Garrett always says it's so obvious. It wasn't so obvious. So that's the first thing. The second thing is he wasn't crucified for having this opinion. If he hadn't taken the money from her, if he hadn't taken the money that she had won off of him to neutralize the hand as if it hadn't happened, or if he gave it back the next day or something, or even sometimes shortly afterwards saying, sorry, I shouldn't have taken this, uh, then he wouldn't be crucified. He was crucified for taking and keeping the money and justifying keeping the money without any kind of smoking gun proof that he was cheated. That's what he was crucified for, not for the opinion that she cheated. If he gave back the money or never took the money and just kept saying, yeah, I think she was cheating, there really would not have been many haters on him for that. And my criticism of him was for that part of taking the money and keeping the money, not for suspecting cheating. I understand why he was suspecting cheating. And as I said, I'm on the fence whether she cheated or not. So he might be right. So I don't think he's being paranoid here. I understand why he thinks he was cheated and it's reasonable. It's not a proof. It's not something he should be sure of, but it's reasonable to suspect it might have happened and to voice that suspicion. But to take the money, I didn't think it was right. So that's why he was crucified. So he, he's skipping something very important there, and I don't think that's very honest. Then in Jack 4, with outrageous amount of circumstantial evidence, you're still going to get absolutely burned at the stake for that. So again, I, I didn't say anything one way or another in my tweet, but in, I am not directly accusing Ludacris of cheating. I am simply like stating a series of like factual things that happened uh, and like, and just looking for Ryan to answer the questions. Yeah, I, I understand the yeah. question. And so anyway, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I get yeah, what you're saying yeah. about optics. And obviously, like looking back on it, like a year after that, I was like, well, that was stupid. Like, why, why wouldn't I just like put it out there if I knew that people felt this way or, or whatever. But I know that there's nothing malicious about it. So in the, in the moment, I didn't think it was a big deal. You, why like i'll turn it back on you why didn't you go and like tell people or publicly that there was a player playing in friday games sometimes with you that was living with you for a while living with me no one has ever lived with me in a friday game not even close a players never a play no poker players ever stayed at your house for weeks no absolutely not all right well that's not what I'm <laughs> yeah uh i'm a 37 year old man like who's lived alone and then with my wife exclusively since i moved to la 13 years ago so all right well let, i mean we're we're uh, really like grasping for straws here bro i'm not grasping of for course straws, dude that was your whole that, interview like, with vertucci man like i'm really gonna try not to get into this too much but your whole interview no, is, is you act like you act like you act like you're this like saint that hell no bro i actually right I, I think the exact opposite oh in God. fact that's what i'm so tilted up about man is like jack four went down and like i was just like deemed like this like hero when like i'm not a hero i've never been a hero like i play poker well and by the rules and beyond that like i'm no hero okay that's a weird statement too 
I don't really hear people saying that Garrett's a hero. I hear people saying that Garrett's an excellent player and that he's like a legend of these streamed games. I don't hear people saying, oh, what a hero. <laughs> Even people that were on his side about the cheating don't feel he was a hero. They just feel bad for him that he got cheated because that's their opinion. But I never hear about hero. He's like, no, dude, they're saying I'm a hero. And I'm like, I don't deserve that. I'm not a hero. Come on. That's like, which one is it? First, he's saying he was persecuted. And now everyone's saying he's a hero. Neither of these are true. Let's go on. It's just like that simple. And and I never claim to be holier than now in any way, shape or form. But all right. Dude, you you had very close relationships with a couple players that you played in games with on the show. I don't have... I'm not going to, like, speculate anything about how close that relationship was, but I'm just saying, like, people are friends with people in poker. People have, like, it's just, like, don't act like you're, like, holier than everyone and that, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's ridiculous. Like, Let me stop again. I, we're never going to get through this with me interrupting so much, but there is a big difference between Garrett having friends in the game and Ryan having roommates or close people in the game because Ryan is running the game. So when he's running the game, then there's much more of a potential to cheat for someone that's close to you than if you're a player in the game where your only way to cheat is collusion, which is pretty damn hard to do when it's a stream show. So there has to be much more concern showed when people very close to the ownership are playing than when people who are just regular in the game have friends in the game with them. So that's not really a very good rebuttal by Ryan. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I, the deflection was like, I don't know, blocked, buddy. Like what you're saying has no fucking it's not deflection. merit. It's true. I can, I can fucking show. I can get people up here to like say that they like know who those people are that you had very close, possibly financial relationships with that you played. Listen, with. listen like, to the words you're saying, bro. Very close, possible. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're gonna have someone come up here and say that like I had a friend in poker. And possibly we had a financial arrangement. Like, it's such a joke, bro. Like, you're grasping for straws that are grasping for straws. I'm not grasping for straws. It's fact in the community. Everyone knows in the, com- in the high stakes community, everyone knows that. All right, yeah. So I'm just saying that, like, you're, 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 you're telling me you're trying to, like, insinuate that I did something malicious by being friends with someone and living with them for a year. Like, that's just, like, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about some really, really different things here. But, all right, anyway, so the, the next question... Um, um was um did you break down in tears when you pled to the former ceo coo of the bike uh when trying when trying to remove the ban that had been placed on luda so you just gave a really really (laughs) clean cut story that omits like 90 percent of like what actually happened in terms of that situation where ninety no, percent of what happened? Okay, so so let's go in order. Let's I let's go, let's story. just go in order with like what you said. So the first thing you said was uh, you and the other owners of Live at the Bike couldn't decide what to do, as if what it was some sort of split. Is that right? Is that what you're insinuating? Yeah. Okay. Who was on your side? Name another owner who was on your side who thought it was best that Luda continue to play in the games. Uh, Brian and Evelyn both did at first. They were both on my okay, side. Again, you see, even like that at first, you know, and, and these things are, well, we, we had, a, we, you're not there. We had a conversation. We had probably four 
long conference calls about yeah. this. Like, what, what I was they, privy was, to is several people that I'm close with who are former owners giving me word for word how those conversations played out, you know? So, so that's again, and this is why I, okay, well, you can, believe, well, this is why I wrote that in my tweet again, which is, this is secondhand information on my part. Again, I mean, I don't know why, I, I don't know why this is relevant, but if you want to ask me what happened, I'll tell you what well, happened. If you want to call me a liar, call me a liar, but I'll tell you what well, happened. Well, it, it's relevant because like, you're not giving people the full story and basically the, the questions so that what are you insinuating? You're starting to be fucking annoying. What are you insinuating? If you're not calling Chris a, a, a cheater, and what are you insinuating? So what? Or he was close to him. Wasn't close to him. What's your fucking point, bro? You're starting to be annoying. So that's Bear Jew who just decides he's not going to be quiet anymore. He was told not to interrupt, and he just decided, no, I'm going to defend my friend Ryan. Yeah. All right. That's getting tagged in here. I'm going to allow it, Garrett. It's up to you how you want to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to have a one-on-one conversation with Ryan. <laughs> like, I know you do. You always want to set the scene. Elder, just, you jump, Elder, just jump, yeah, you're just jump little, in. You want to your rules so you could chew him up, and you yeah. don't want to hear from anyone You're else. being a little conceited. You're, you're trying to play <clears> by your rules. Oh, I just want to say what I want to say, and then I'm going to step off. But then you go in the back. Oh, you listen to Nick's show. You listen to. You spend all this time listening, and then when you talk, you don't want people to say shit, and then you want to jump off. Yeah, it's, what are you insinuating? Okay, so you're, you're saying he's not a cheater, and now you're trying to prove that he was close to Chris. What's your point? No, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. So what are you saying? I am not it's, stating a clear opinion on it. I'm pointing out a series what, what, of factual things that went down what? that are. What's your point? But then what, what's, the, your what's point? the point of all this, Garrett? If you're not accusing me or him or anyone of anything, we can't have a two v one. Let's go, Garrett and Bear Jew. If Garrett allows it, we got to keep it one v one. Though I have no interest in Eden. Like I know you're trying to run a show, and I know that that would be like sort of interesting. And Bear Jew saying some salacious things. I get that. I just wanted to ask these. Ryan, these questions real quick. Sure. He so hasn't. Ask me the last uh, question, and then I'll, I'll let. I, I got to. You won't mind waiting. Sorry, guys. Garrett, I got to commentate in seven minutes, so we'll wrap up and then let whatever Eldar or whoever else do their thing afterwards. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, so did you go to the former COO on multiple occasions, pleading to like remove the no. ban? No, that, you, no, that's, that that's never that's happened. happened, and you yeah. never went to her in you, tears. Just, will, will you let me just explain what happened? Or do you want to just try to jump no, that, in? Like, dude, that's the whole reason I asked. Go for it. Okay, so let okay. I, I just told the whole story exactly as it, as it happened. I don't know how you want me to prove to you that that's the truth, but it's the truth. What I just told you is the truth. Is there other things that happened? Obviously, yes. But that is the story of what happened, okay? We had, a, we had many com- multiple conversations, long talks. I remember at least one of them being like an hour on the phone with the five owners talking about what to do with it. We're yelling at each other. We're going back and forth. What do we do? Some people are flip-flopping. Some people are, have strong opinions. Obviously, I have a strong opinion. Obviously, JJ had a strong opinion. Obviously, Dan is trying to be logical and be, you know, like the Switzerland, not Switzerland, but like the mediator or whatever. Um, but he sided mostly with JJ. We had those conversations for many hours and multiple talks, okay? We were at a standstill. We couldn't agree. Like, if the other four owners said, oh, we don't care, Ryan, like, this is what it's going to be, then they would have overpowered me and it would have happened. But that's not what happened. That's exactly what happened, right? Because Luda did get banned from the show no. despite your best efforts. No. Did Luda, we, get, ba- did did ban- Luda get banned from the no, show? No. We did not ban him as a live of the bike. Live of the bike did not ban him. All right, him. then we, need to, we just need to change the word. It's pretty funny that we're ironically I, going back to the word I, ban I, here. I, I, did I, I, Luda I, 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 stop playing on the show? 
Yes, because we left it up to the casino. They said yes, and they let him play for the longest time, and there was nothing that happened in that time. And then for whatever reason later, Michelle one time saw me and Chris both playing at the same table before the show, off camera. And she walked by, and she called me and said, hey, what, what did we decide, like, two months ago or whatever? Like, I thought we said, like, but he wasn't going to play anymore or whatever. And I was like, no, you, you and um, Mark, God rest his soul, said no. Like, And Mark was the one leading the case. Mark was the one who was... And Mark was on mostly on uh, Chris's side about letting him play. Yeah. And Mark said, no, let, let's just let him play, but just try to scale it back, like have him play once or twice a that's, week instead of like two or three that's times. That's awfully convenient. The guy who's passed away was on his side. That's beautiful. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, okay, so you're going to call me a liar? Like, I'm telling you the truth right now. You want to call me a liar? Call me a, I, I, You're asking me for what happened. I'm telling you what happened, okay? All right. Eden, I, I think yeah. that, that's all I got. Go well, ahead, Ryan. So I'll finish. Yeah, go ahead. So, so, so that's what Mark and Michelle said. Well, let him play. Just let him play less. Okay, fine. He played less. Like this was now that was like October. Now this is like December. Michelle sees him, whatever, playing in, in there. She pulls me aside. She says, "Hey, what what happened? What did we decide?" Like, blah blah. blah. And we're like, "No." Mark said that just to have him scale him down, like play once or twice a week. That's what he's been doing. And she's like, "Oh yeah, like I don't know. I think it's like bad optics." You know, since you guys are, you know, close and he's playing on the show, like, let's just have him not play anymore. And I, yeah, initially I was arguing with her. I was like, what the hell? Like, you said, you just, you guys just said two months ago it was fine. Like, what, why? Like, what changed? And she's like, I don't know. I just think it's like a bad look. Like, it's just safer this way. Whatever. We talked for, I don't know how long. Obviously, I pleaded. That was it. Yeah. We said, okay. I said, okay, Michelle, you got to tell him, though. Like, I don't want to be the one to tell him. Yeah. She, so yeah, 100% I was upset about the decision. For Why? Sure. Like, Why be I, so devastated by that? I don't think I was devastated. I argued because he, if somebody banned you from the show for, for cheating and I knew that you didn't cheat, you don't think I would be upset when you were the, like a popular player on our show back then? Like, yeah, come on, I mean, like, you're, you're I'm running a show. Com compare, putting shows you're, you're trying to like sell people that like the eyeballs were on Ludacris okay, in 2017. They obviously were not. And, and I think it reminds me of another, another thing you said like in your podcast. And it was just like, I mean, it was just such a chef's kiss, bro. Like you were making a comment about like how you don't get involved in these sort of things, like whatever. And you go, there's one exception. Like when it costs me money, you're like, anytime something's going to affect huh? my business, then I'm going to hop in on Twitter. Then I'm going to say something. And like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what you said on Nick's podcast, you know, but alluding, uh, referring to what? You don't get involved in social media drama, this or that, unless it affects your bottom said. line. I, I said, no, that's, that is not what I said. Go pull up that clip. That is 100% yeah. not what I said. I said, I don't get involved unless it's factually wrong. Just like, just like the other no, clip that you're like, that said. you're like, no, I didn't say no, that. No. And then I literally gave you the exact timestamp where you try to do the standard, like misinformation thing where you go, people okay, think, people think Garrett stole the money. Okay, like Garrett, how much do you want to bet that I didn't say anything about bottom line or, or making money? I said, if it, I said, I don't care anymore because nothing that anyone can say hurts our business. Our business is putting together shows. Yeah. We still have a popular show. That's the point. Yeah. Nobody that some random person with 10 followers says on Twitter doesn't affect whether or not people are watch our show or not. That's our. Let me stop you for a second here. It's going to get really heated very shortly. It's got five and a half minutes left in this clip. That It went a little longer here, but this is the clip that was put up on YouTube that I could access later. So anyway... 
it's going to get really heated very shortly. And right now what they're arguing about isn't very important about what Ryan said on some podcast of when he gets involved and when he doesn't get involved, but this is going to escalate very soon. Our business. Yeah. No, I didn't say anything about bottom line or dollars. Go That's find a quote in there that I said right. that. All right, so, so I just like, I know Ryan has to go, and then I know like his minions like need to pile on. So just give me one more second here, Eden, and then I'm just going to hop off. You know, I was asked like, what is the point? Like, what am I doing here? Basically, the point is, here are the facts of the thing that happened in the ludicrous uh, controversy, right? I think that's an extremely fair word, given there were, as Ryan said, four meetings, and he ultimately did not play on the show after that. I'm giving the poker community that information, and they can just do whatever they want with it. Period. That information out on. But why is that important years. to you in relation to whatever the? You know what? It's funny. That's a, you're, you're like making my point for me. It isn't important Good. to me. It, it does. Why would you it doesn't. It, it does not serve my business interests why whatsoever. You, why would you randomly bring it up out of nowhere? Nobody asked. Bro, for because comment. I why, get why? so sick of your misinformation campaign. I get so but sick. But I didn't post anything either. I, get, <laughs> I didn't go on Twitter. Garrett, I didn't go on Twitter and post anything about you. I didn't comment on whatever the thing happened. Oh, yeah, night. okay. I didn't how about, anything. How about, did you have a meeting with Nick Airball before he went on Doug's platform, which is a megaphone of several hundred thousand people, and literally go over talking points about what he would say to Doug the next day? Did that happen or not? I don't fucking know. Probably. Probably. Like, wait, oh, well, you act like you're like the innocent victim here. And you go, I don't know anything. I'm Garrett, Mr. Nice Guy. Like, do with anything. Nobody asked your opinion on some hand that you came out at, on your own because you wanted to chime in and said, this hand has nothing to do with Jack. Ford. Yeah. And then you just totally changed the subject to something completely different from four years ago. Why? What is that is an interesting thing that came out here. And it apparently did happen. That if you remember Nick Airball was somewhat involved in that whole uh, Jack Four scandal. And some people forget that because he's kind of made a name for himself in other ways since then. But that he went on Doug Polk's show and discussed it, and apparently Ryan Feldman coached him before coming on. I don't know exactly what he told him to say, but I guess that got back to Garrett, and then Garrett just accused Ryan of this, and Ryan basically admitted that he coached Nick in what he said. Interesting. The, the discussion was ludicrous, and I stayed right on the topic of ludicrous. Period. But why? What, what is the point of dragging somebody down? What is the point? This is information. Why, I think the why, poker why, why, community why, why, deserves to know. Why do so. you have like a grudge against him or us? Like, is it because I went on Nick's podcast? I, I don't get yeah. it. It's all right. You don't need to get it. Uh, Eden, I, I think so, that's. So just, I think that's all I got. I mean, like I said, Ryan, if you have like another question or something for me, real quick, I just. I just can't be like doing one on nine here, and and I know the the wolves of no, the, the ACL echo care. chamber are awfully hungry right now. You know, I want to I want to let him eat here. I don't go on and and I, I typically don't go on and say shit like this Ryan. Stop, bro! You just admitted you gave Airball the talking points for Doug's podcast, and then it's so funny when like people in the points. comments after are like, "Oh shit, Ryan's story mirrors Airballs in regards to lineups," which is like. Dude, the story's so tired, man. You didn't win anyone over then, and you're certainly not winning anyone okay, over so, a year and so, a half so, later so with it's that. Out of line for, it's and then out it's, of line it's for also super it's cute. Out, it's out of line for. 
hold on. It's out of line for me to talk about factual things that are. Do whatever true. you want, bro. You're allowed to do whatever you want. It's just super cute. So okay Bertucci comes in here and he goes, you know what's, but it's not okay. you know what's so funny about that screenshot? Like Ryan posted a screenshot and on accident, it shows the rating scale. Like, I mean, who are we fooling here? You got to be dumb as fucking rocks to not understand like their elementary strategy to like try to make me look bad on the internet, you know? Yeah, I'm dumb as rocks and you're the guy who accidentally banned yourself from playing on shows and like you're yeah dude because you and i are you and i couldn't be more the opposite dude i don't give a fuck about money i don't give a fuck then why did you fucking take one hundred thirty-five thousand from because if you don't care about money you fucking because it's obviously the fucking right thing to do because i was fucking cheated in the hand dude it's okay to take money from people get the fuck out of here dude we all knew exactly what happened with postal and when she offered me the money which you damn well know happened that that was the moment that like i realized this is the only opportunity like justice will ever fucking be served here you know that i know that the two things have nothing in common and this dumb accusation like oh garrett's stupid garrett's so, stupid so he cost himself money. money get the fuck out of here money, obviously i could have played God. this differently maintained a relationship with hcl and kept playing on their games i just didn't give a fuck anymore period so anyway, this whole thing is getting like super off the rails. So, uh, Eden, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hop off. You don't care about money when you took 135,000. Wow, dude. That, what, right. a, what a brilliant comeback, dude. Exactly. Yeah. That's why like I put. All right, Garrett, thank you. Thank you so much. Sorry to cut you off. Just a quick thing. We're going to leave it at that. It, uh, it's up to Garrett if you want. Yeah, there he goes. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett. <laughs> Why did Eden Rocks do this? Why did he cut off Garrett? He's in the middle of, of ranting there. Let this play out. Come on, God. Uh, I forgot about that's how it ended. I listened to this once before I played it to you guys. I forgot that's how it ended. Uh, you don't cut something off when it's going. You know, you let it play out. So that's the clip I wanted to play you guys. Very interesting, huh? A lot of bad blood between them. The reason this all started all up again, all this time later, is because Ryan came on Nick Vertucci's show and said some things that pissed off Garrett regarding that situation. So this was Garrett then trying to hit back at him and say, hey, look, Ryan, you're going to talk shit about me. We haven't discussed enough about the whole ludicrous thing that happened back at Live at the Bike and which eventually led to you being gone from there. So that was Garrett's point, and he was trying to hammer Ryan on that. And then they had a big argument about the money that Garrett took from Robbie, and then they were really shouting at each other. So I found it interesting. And most of this stuff has burnt me out by now, but that... I thought you guys needed to hear. That occurred in early February, by the way, just very shortly after the last show. We've lost uh, Calwad in the meantime. I guess he didn't come on at the best time because I was just playing something and commenting occasionally. But I'm going to give you an update on the Jacksonville Jaguars situation and their employee, Amit Patel, who stole $20 million from the Jaguars and then chunked it off mostly on daily fantasy sports sites like FanDuel. 
So we covered this before, and apparently this Amit Patel, who worked for FanDuel, somehow had access to a lot of funds there, was using company funds to mostly compulsively gamble with on high-stakes daily fantasy sports contests. And there's a lot of skill in that. So if you're not a good daily fantasy sports player, you shouldn't be playing against the high-stakes crushers. But that's what he was doing. And he was doing it really poorly, too. He wasn't just running bad or just unable to compete with the very best. He was considered the worst high-stakes player of all time on high-stakes daily fantasy sports. He was just mind-bogglingly bad and just made egregious mistakes. And people wondered, like, who is this guy who's just losing so much money, and why does he even think he has a chance? So we talked about this before. The update to the story is that the Jaguars decided to go to FanDuel and say, we want the money back. This guy stole money from us to play on your site, and you guys did nothing to stop it. You were never suspicious of anything. So because of your negligence, this guy was able to just keep stealing from us. And we want you to pay us back. And FanDuel is currently saying no. So Jacksonville Jaguars officially asked FanDuel to reimburse them. It's not clear if they're asking for the whole $20 million back or part of it. But FanDuel says they're not giving anything. Amit Patel has already pled guilty to stealing $22 million from the Jaguars. And about $20 million of that was chunked off on FanDuel itself. He had a VIP host on FanDuel. He also lost about a million dollars on DraftKings, which is the other big daily fantasy sports site. The popular opinion that I saw on Twitter about this is that the Jaguars are being unreasonable and that it was their fault for not having better controls of where that money was going and who was spending it and that this isn't FanDuel's fault. And the fact that he showed up on FanDuel and lost it, obviously they can't take it back from the winners because it was players who won it. FanDuel didn't gain very much from this. It was mostly the opponents who gained from it, just like in poker. If someone steals money and plays against uh, good players and chunks it off. So FanDuel, according to people on Twitter, should not be responsible for, for this and the Jaguars are really reaching. But it's not that simple. There could be a reason that the Jaguars could be legally liable for this. And there are actually current discussions between FanDuel and the Jaguars regarding a, quote, settlement. Supposedly, someone told ESPN that someone at the Jaguars said to them regarding FanDuel, the way they see it, we got this money fair and clear. It's not our problem that we have to forfeit it back to you. So it's said that FanDuel is unlikely to give any of this back. Though, as I said, there are still some talks about maybe some kind of settlement. Even though Patel pled guilty to the charges in federal court, he is basically broke and will not be able to reimburse this money himself. Especially, I can't picture anyone hiring him after his prison sentence is over. He hasn't been sentenced yet. FanDuel were the ones who told the NFL that something weird was going on 
when he placed some regular sports bets in Tennessee. These were not daily fantasy sports bets, but they, he placed some regular sports bets in Tennessee. And it's not known why this particular series of bets triggered the investigation. But they told the NFL that something suspicious was going on here. And then seeing that he was a Jaguars employee that made the whole thing fall apart. Until the Jaguars were notified, they had no clue any of this was going on. They may or may not have a legal claim against FanDuel. So I'll tell you why. It is true that casinos, both brick and mortar and online, are required by law to do extensive know-your-customer and anti-money laundering checks on high rollers. So if you just show up at a casino or you sign up for an online casino and you're betting a lot of money, if you're playing at very high stakes, they do not only have the right, but they're instructed to, they're required to go to the person who is betting so much and say, prove to us that you got this money legally. Prove to us that these are not illicit funds, that you're not a drug dealer, that you're not laundering money, that you haven't stolen this money. We want to see proof that this is your money to gamble with. And they are supposed to stop the person from gambling until they can see that proof. Now, this doesn't apply to low or mid-stakes players. So you don't have to worry about this happening to you next time you show up to play blackjack for $100 a hand in Las Vegas. This is for people who are betting a whole lot of money to where there can be questions. Where can you come up with that much? Like the guy lost $20 million on FanDuel. That's a ton of money. Just about nobody has $20 million to lose anywhere. So if someone is losing at that rapid rate, it's, it's the requirement for the casino to verify the source of funds is legitimate. So with that information, you would think that 100% FanDuel is responsible because he even had a VIP host there and they never asked any questions. It was only after he placed these bets on NFL games traditionally without being part of uh, daily fantasy sports that for some reason that triggered an investigation and the whole thing fell down. But that was after 20 million got lost there. So how come this guy shows up is the worst player of all time, loses 20 million and they don't ask any questions. That is a good question for FanDuel. However, there is a problem. The problem is that this was lost mostly on fantasy sports, which is not a regulated industry. So there's currently debate whether the know your customer and anti-money laundering requirements apply to daily fantasy sports. So even though FanDuel also allows you to bet on traditional sports betting, since almost everything he lost was on daily fantasy sports, they can say, hey, we didn't violate any requirements because there are no requirements for daily fantasy sports. That's something we just don't have to do, so we didn't do it. And once we saw something in sports betting we thought was suspicious, well, then we did it. Because at that point, this was something we had to be concerned with. But at the same time, the Jaguars can come back and say, look, forget what's required of you. But what about what is ethical? How could you believe this guy had $20 million legitimate dollars to lose on there? Especially playing really badly. Like... What made you not want to stop and look into where this is coming from and what this guy's background is? Because he didn't make anywhere near that type of money. He wasn't making huge money. 
So a very, very cursory investigation would have shown that it didn't make sense that he had this type of money to lose. So why did you guys, a regulated and licensed sports book that also offers daily fantasy sports, because that's what you were originally doing, why would you not have said, let's look into this guy? Why did you just keep your eyes closed because he kept chunking it off to your high rollers and you were making rake off of him? So that's what the Jaguars are asking. They're saying it's not even just, a, was there a regulatory requirement, which may or may not apply to daily fantasy sports. There's still debate about that, especially sites that do both, daily fantasy sports and sports betting. But why didn't you guys do it? Was there big-time negligence here that you should have known that this had to be stolen money, or there was a good chance of it, and you guys just chose not to do anything? You looked the other way. That's the point the Jaguars are making, and FanDuel saying, look, you can think that, you can think we were unethical, but we didn't break any regulations or laws, so F you. And the reason that they wouldn't give this back to the Jaguars for optics is because most people don't care. People care if players get screwed. They don't care so much if the Jaguars get screwed. So FanDuel will sometimes be overly generous when a story blows up in the media about something that happens, even if they were in the right. They'll sometimes be overly generous to the players. They're not going to do it here because the Jaguars are not a player. They're a team. And nobody really cares if they lose money. So they're just digging their heels in. In a December court appearance, Patel said that he has a gambling disorder and is seeing a therapist weekly for his treatment. He also claimed that he underwent alcohol and substance abuse treatment from March to June 2023. His attorney said that he did not fund his lifestyle with the stolen money and claimed that the home and car that he bought were bought with either money he made at the Jaguars or family money, that the only usage of the stolen money was on the gambling sites. He said Mr. Patel did not use the Jaguars virtual credit card system to fund his lifestyle, but in a horribly misguided effort to pay back previous gambling losses. That was basically what they were trying to say to make him a more sympathetic criminal, saying that he was really just stealing this money to chase previous gambling losses to put it all back. That he wasn't just spending lavishly on himself. Because it's alleged that he was not only wasting the money, but that he was using the money for just luxury items that he wanted. It's alleged that he chartered private jets, stayed in luxury hotels, bought a number of vehicles, bought crypto, bought a country club membership, spa treatments, and a $95,000 watch. So this does not correspond with how much he was making with the Jaguars. So I have to imagine that this really was stolen money. So even though he pled guilty, when it comes down to sentencing, the sentence will be much harsher, it's believed, if it's really thought that he just coldly stole the money to live a lavish lifestyle and to gamble, rather than he was just a sick gambler who was trying to chase losses. Both are stealing, but one is more sympathetic than the other. Now, he definitely lost the vast majority of it on FanDuel, so it is true that most of this went to gambling losses, but... It does look like he just felt like he was flush with cash and get away with it and was just spending it on lots of stuff. He just was spending the most on gambling because he was a very addicted gambler. So we'll see what sentence he gets. I have a feeling it'll be pretty stiff because of the money involved. But that is the update on that, and I don't think FanDuel is going to pay. And if I had to guess, I don't think they'll be forced to pay. 
but maybe there'll be some settlement just so this doesn't drag on through court and all that. Okay, so now let's talk about burgers. I want to talk about Whataburger. Whataburger is a chain of burger places that began in Texas and is currently headquartered in Texas. Whataburger goes all the way back to 1950 when two guys, Harmon Dobson and Paul Burton, wanted to open up a hamburger restaurant. And Dobson said he wanted to make a better burger that took two hands to hold and tasted so good that when you took a bite, you would say, what a burger. So they established what a burger. And the first location opened in Corpus Christi, Texas. Then the two of them didn't get along regarding the pricing of the burger. Dobson wanted to charge 30 cents for the burger and Burton wanted to keep it at 25 cents. So they actually split up their partnership and... Burton ended up uh, taking some of the franchises, and I guess Dobson took some of the others. They expanded in the 1960s to Florida and Tennessee, and also within Texas. I guess it was Dobson who was doing the expanding, and Burton just ended up with certain franchises. And it kept growing. In 1980, they had their 300th location. The first 24-hour Whataburger was in Corpus Christi, the same place the first location was. That happened in 1982. And then they actually had a life-size statue of Harmon Dobson in 1999 when they opened a shoreline version of Whataburger that was 6,000 square feet, their biggest store ever, and... It was on Shoreline Boulevard. It was called Whataburger by the Bay. And Whataburger also appeared in King of the Hill, which took place in Texas. You know, that animated show from the 90s and 2000s. In 2000, they had 575 stores after operating for 50 years. And they actually had a bill passed in 2001 that proclaimed that Whataburger was a Texas treasure. In 2007, they got up to 700 stores and were in 10 states. And currently, they have about 1,000. They started to expand more in the 2020s. They showed up in Kansas City, in Wichita, and also St. Joseph in Kansas. They also opened in... uh, Middle Tennessee and Nashville. They opened in Atlanta. So they kept expanding, but the one place that they weren't was in the West. There's no Whataburger in California. There's no Whataburger in Nevada or Arizona, Washington, Oregon, Utah. Didn't have Whataburger. I don't know the farthest West location, but... There was none anywhere near where I lived or frequently visited. I had a Whataburger in 2008 when I was visiting the Houston area. I was visiting somebody through the forum, and this person insisted that I try Whataburger. In fact, they were surprised they hadn't heard of it. They didn't realize that it hadn't expanded out west. This person was in Houston, or the Houston area. 
So they insisted that I try Whataburger. So I did. I tried Whataburger, and my opinion was that it was good, but not great. So I enjoyed the meal, but it wasn't something like, oh my god, I am so sad I can't ever have this again because I'm not in Texas or near Texas. It was like, okay, yeah, that was pretty good, but like not super memorable. That was my 2008 impression of Whataburger, the one time I had it. I did not go in the drive-thru. Or I went through the drive-thru, and I did not eat within the store, so I can't comment on how it looked or anything like that. We just got it through the drive-thru, and I ate it somewhere. I forgot even where. But the reason I'm talking about all this is because Whataburger is now in Las Vegas. It is the first Whataburger in the West. And not only is it in Las Vegas, it's right there on the Las Vegas Strip. They opened basically right in front of Aria. It's not part of Aria, but it's right in front of Aria. There's also a CVS there. So it is right along Las Vegas Boulevard. So if you're walking along Las Vegas Boulevard and you're walking on the west side of it, the side where the Aria is, then you will walk right by Whataburger. So it'd be very convenient to walk in there and eat. And you don't have to worry about what time it is because it is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is not an automatic in Vegas anymore because there's a lot of things in Vegas that now close. Used to be the 24-hour city. It is not anymore. There's a lot of things that close even within the casinos. A lot of casinos have no food options at times like 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 4 a.m., and some of them have very, very limited food options. You don't have the 24-hour coffee shop in most places anymore. So having a 24-hour burger place right on the strip is nice to have. The problem is because of its location right there next to the Aria, there is not room for a parking lot. So you can't just drive up to Whataburger and park and walk in. There is no drive through It's just there in front of the Aria on Las Vegas Boulevard, and you have to find a way to get in there. The closest place you can park to it is the Aria. But because the Aria is large, and because it's not set right on the strip, it's behind the strip. You know, you drive on the strip to get there, but it's not hanging over the strip, especially the parking lot. So you've got to walk some time. It took me like five to seven minutes to walk from the self-parking over to Whataburger. And of course, if there's traffic on the strip, that becomes a pain in the ass too. There wasn't when I went there. But I'm going to give you my review of the whole thing. Because I went there on Super Bowl Sunday at 6 in the morning just so I could come and report this on radio and give you my review of the Las Vegas Whataburger, which just opened. It opened on February 7th. Fortunately, when I drove there, there was no traffic because it was 6 a.m. So I got there pretty quickly. I pulled into the Aria. I was able to park for free because I have pearl status at aria which is the second lowest card but it gets you free parking you can get pearl status too if you just get the mgm credit card that's how i got it you'll just be pearl for as long as you have the card so that's nice if you go to mgm properties i would suggest getting that card it has no fee either anyway i park at aria i walked about five to seven minutes you do pass the poker go studios along the way you just walk towards Las Vegas Boulevard. So it's pretty easy to find. And then Whataburger is located right there on Las Vegas Boulevard. 
I walked in there, and it was a nice, clean place. Of course, it just opened February 7th, so everything looks very new. It's laid out a little bit strange, but it does look clean and nice in there. The menu confused me somewhat. So I was interested in a burger. You can get breakfast there. You can get check-in. I wanted a burger. So I looked under burgers, and there's six combos you can order. One, two, three, four, five, or six. But you can also order the burger a la carte. So you can say, I want a number one a la carte. So it's not really a combo. It's the burger from the combo without anything else. Or you could get what's called what a meal. Now, what a meal comes with fries and a drink, medium fries, medium drink. And then you can upsize it if you want. These are not particularly cheap, especially if you only get the single burger. But I'll get to the prices shortly. They weren't really expensive, but I didn't find it cheap. But I didn't expect it to be cheap. It's right in front of the Aria. So the pricing structure was a little bit strange. The meals, which came with the medium fries and a drink, the what a meal, were $4 more than the a la carte burger. But the medium fries themselves are $5. So unless you're not going to get fries, there would never be a reason that you'd get the a la carte burger. Because if you want a burger and fries, it's actually cheaper to order the what a meal and get the drink with it. It's a dollar cheaper to do that and get a drink than to just order the burger and fries. That's the first time I've ever seen that. I've never seen where just the burger and fries is more expensive than a burger, fries, and drink of the same size. But that's the case here. So be aware of that. So the single burger, fries, and a drink was $12 plus tax. However, it does get a lot more reasonable when you go to the double and triple burger. Because the double burger is only $10 a la carte and 14 for the meal. So that's only $2 more. And the triple burger is 11 a la carte and 15 for the meal. So that becomes a much better deal. If you get a triple burger, now you're getting a triple burger by itself for 11 or part of the whole meal for 15 is all plus tax. So you're basically getting triple the meat for $3 more. It's $8 for a single. It's 11 for a triple. Now, fortunately, as you guys know, I have a big appetite and I was hungry. But I did want to know how big each patty was. So I asked the guy who was at the cash register, I said, how big are the burgers? And he tried to show me with his hands how big a patty is. <laughs> that doesn't really help me. So I said, no, no, I mean, what's the weight of the burgers? What's the pre-cooking weight? Is it like a quarter pounder? He says, uh, what? I said, well, what's the weight of the burger that tells me how big it is? Oh, no, I'm showing it. He's like showing me the, with his hands again. I go, no, no, <laughs> I need to know just what the cooking weight is so I can compare it to other burgers I've had in other places so I know how much to order. So, you know, I was nice about it, but the guy clearly wasn't getting it. So he went and got his manager. His manager came over. I was sure she's going to tell me what the answer is. She comes up and says, what's the question? I said, yeah, I just want to know the size of each patty. Is it like a quarter pounder? Oh, um, yeah, I don't really know that. I don't think anyone here knows that. But it's a big burger. Don't worry. You know, it, it'll satisfy you. It, it's a pretty big patty. <laughs> so I, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to have this argument. They don't know. They don't know. I remember from back in 08, they were fairly big. But you know what? Screw it. Getting a triple is so cost effective because it's 
$3 more to get a triple versus a single and $1 more to get a triple versus a double. So what's the right thing to do here? So, of course, even though I didn't necessarily need a triple burger, especially if it really was a quarter pound like I remembered from more than 15 years ago, and I'd be eating three quarters of a pound of a burger here, plus fries, plus a drink. So I don't really need the calories from this. You know, I need to lose weight, not gain weight, but how could I resist? I mean, yeah, I could eat fewer calories, and it'll be healthier for me to eat single. I might live longer if I eat a single. But how can I get a single for $8 and the triple's 11 Just wouldn't make sense. So, a certain part of me couldn't allow that. So I got a triple. I just gave up trying to figure out the weight of the burgers, got a triple. Then I had another question. I figured if I'm going to gorge myself, I might as well really gorge myself. So instead of just a triple and a medium fries and a drink, why don't I get a large fries? So I asked, how much is it to upgrade the fries only? I don't need the bigger drink, but how much is it to upgrade the fries only to large? So I figured the answer is going to be like two or three bucks. So she didn't have the answer for that either. She said, I don't know. And it wasn't anywhere on the menu. So she said, okay, well, let me just try it in the cash register and see what the difference is going to be. (laughs) Now, keep in mind that the triple meal is $15. That's a triple burger, medium fries, and a medium drink, $15. So I figured if I upgrade the fries, that it'll probably take it to about like $17, maybe $18 plus tax, which starts to get pretty pricey. But I was willing to do it, as long as it wasn't ridiculous. If they told me it's like a $5 upgrade, no. But it's like two or three, I'll take it. So remember, the Original price before upgrading is $15 plus tax, which would take it to, yeah, about 16, 16 something. So I'm waiting to have her upgraded and I'm waiting to see something like it's going to be 18 something or 19 something for this upgraded meal. And she puts it all in and says, okay, yeah, that'll be (laughs) $14.69. And I said, but what? She said fourteen sixty nine. I'm thinking to myself, what? How's that possible? How did it get cheaper? How did upgrading make it cheaper? So I said, so this is a triple burger, right? She said, yes. I said, it's a triple burger, a large fries, and a drink, right? She said, yes. I said, and it's fourteen sixty nine, right? Yes. Like I didn't want to say this is wrong because I didn't want to be charged extra. Like if they're going to be charging me less, I am not going to question it. I just want to make sure I'm getting the right thing. I'm not sure why this is happening, but I'm not going to question it. You know, like it's the uh, don't ask, don't tell approach, just like on those GT poker skins that were having people from the U.S. play on there through a VPN, just like Bill Clinton and gay people in the army in the 90s. That's all the same stuff. Don't ask, don't tell. So I did the don't ask, don't tell approach at Whataburger. I just had to make sure I was really getting the thing I was ordering. But she said, yes. I said, let's do it. I paid fourteen sixty nine. saw it on the receipt, and sure enough, on the receipt, it said triple burger. It said large fries and medium drink. Correct. Now, I did not get cheese. I thought maybe that's the difference. Maybe I'm getting a discount for getting no cheese, because some places will do it. Some places will automatically knock the price down a bit if you take something that normally has cheese and say no cheese. However, I was ordering 
just a triple meat Whataburger that does not come with cheese. So if you wanted cheese, I believe that's extra. So I just wasn't understanding. And even if this did come with cheese and I was getting a discount, that was just way too much of a discount. Fourteen sixty nine was about like four or five dollars cheaper than I was expecting to see. So I couldn't be getting that much discount for no cheese, right? Whole thing didn't make sense, but I wasn't gonna question it. So I paid the fourteen sixty nine and I waited for my food. So I sat there and waited for it, and the food came. Now, before I tell you what came, the way I ordered the burger, and I got some criticism for this on the forum, the way I ordered the burger was totally plain, that's just meat and bun, large fries, and a tomato on the side. Now, I've talked many times about my tomato on the side. I get that at Subway. I do get it at burger places. Basically, I like tomatoes. I like tomatoes a lot. I usually just don't like them on things. I just like the tomato itself. I especially don't like tomatoes on burgers. It just seems like it doesn't fit. To me, that just makes it soggy. It makes it cold. I want to eat a cold tomato separate from the warm burger. That's just me. And I don't like lettuce. I don't like pickles. especially don't like pickles. And I don't like mustard at all. I hate mustard. I do like ketchup a lot, but I like putting on my own ketchup. Meaning, I get the ketchup from them and apply it myself. So I just get the burger totally plain, and then I get ketchup myself and put it on there. Whataburger makes its own ketchup, so they're not carrying Heinz or anything else. And they come in these like square packets that you peel off from the top. They have at least two varieties, maybe more. But I got the regular one. I saw there's like some jalapeno one. I didn't want to mess around. I just wanted ketchup. And so I got their custom ketchup, their uh, regular Whataburger ketchup. And it was good. I'm not sure how it compares to things like Heinz, but I, I like the ketchup. So I put the ketchup on my burger. I had my fries. But you know what was missing? Yes, the tomato on the side. Now, are we going to have another Subway story where I have a big battle with them about a tomato on the side? No. But something unexpected happened. I was sure they forgot it, because that's pretty common. Sometimes I go to burger places to get the tomato on the side because it's unusual. They forget it. Okay, that happens. I just ask them to give it to me, and that's that. I mean, this happens all the time. I was sure that's what happened here, but it's not, that's not what happened. <laughs> so I went to the counter. They bring it over to you. You go sit down with a number, and they bring it over to you. But they didn't actually bring this to me because I just happened to walk over to the counter to see if it was ready, and it happened to show up right there, so I just took it. But there was no tomato on the side. So I sat down, saw there was no tomato, walked back over to the counter, which is very close. And I said, oh, yeah, you guys forgot the tomato on the side. Can you please give me a tomato? And the woman that I was talking to said, we don't have any tomatoes. (laughs) And I was shocked to hear that. I was like, wait, you're completely out of tomatoes? And she said, yeah, we're waiting for a delivery. Sorry. Really strange. How does a burger place not have tomatoes, even temporarily? They should be overstocked with tomatoes, but they did not have tomatoes. So, you know, I accepted it. I I was in a calm mood, you know, like I I wasn't in the mood to argue. That's why I backed down about the whole thing with the size of the burger that they couldn't answer. Like, I'm okay, they can't answer, fine. Whatever, I'll just get a triple. They don't have the tomato. I'm not asking for anything to compensate. I'm not saying, well, give me some more fries or give me more of this or that. No. Okay, you don't have the tomato. All right. I'll sit back down. That was it. I was going to drop the matter. I went to go sit down, and 
eat my tomatoless meal. By the way, in case you're wondering about the drink I got, it was a Fanta orange that I got. Anyway, I sat down, was starting to eat, and then the manager I spoke to, the one who couldn't tell me how big the burgers were, came up to me and said, yeah, if you can wait a few minutes, I'll get you your tomatoes. Now, I thought they're waiting for a delivery, but uh, somehow she could find some tomatoes. Maybe she was going to grow them in very rapid fashion in the back of the Whataburger. So I said, yeah, I can wait a few minutes. Yeah, you know, I can just bring it anytime. I'm eating here. I'll just you know, I eat it separately anyway. So whenever it comes, yeah, I'd appreciate that. And she said, okay, well, I'll bring it to you very shortly. So she walked away. And yeah, about two minutes later, she brought me a small bag with three tomato slices in it. And these didn't look like beat up or old tomatoes or anything like that. They looked like they were new. They looked fresh. They were cold. So I don't know where these came from when they were out of tomatoes. I really have no explanation how they can go from, well, we don't have any. We're waiting for a delivery of them to, oh, here's three slices. But that's what they did. Maybe they were holding back certain tomatoes and preserving them. But she said it'll be like a few minutes, which is weird. Like she didn't say I'm going to get it right away and bring it to you. She said it'll be a few minutes like she had to dig them up somewhere. So maybe they had like one or two tomatoes still back there and she went and quickly cut one up and gave it to me. Very strange. But I appreciate it. I said, thank you. I don't think they were messing with me. I think they really believed they were out of them and that somehow she found some. Just kind of weird. Like, how do you just find tomatoes? And the tomatoes were good. I liked them. Anyway, despite all the cluelessness that I ran into there, the staff was very nice. So everybody encountered there was pleasant and friendly. And that's a rarity in fast food nowadays because it started to get harder and harder to hire people. So they started tolerating a lot more bullshit. Now, there's a little less of that now, since there's not as much of a worker shortage as there was a few years ago. But still, you know, like the standards kind of relaxed and never quite came back in some places. So the restaurant itself inside is very nice and new. It's oddly laid out, but it is nice. The employees were all very friendly. The weirdest thing there is that there's no place to dump your tray at all. The employees actually come around and take your tray and your trash when you're done, which just feels weird. I just want to take my stuff and dump it. I just feel weird just leaving this tray with all this stuff on it. These used ketchup packets and everything else that came with the order. I just feel weird just like walking away and leaving it there. But that's what you're supposed to do. There is no place to throw things away. It's very strange. I think there may be like a tiny trash can, but I did not see anywhere that's big enough to dump your tray. And they just take it from you when you're done. Or if you walk away, they take it. Kind of strange. I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure if all the Whataburgers are like that. So how was the burger? Well, just like I remembered in 08, it was good, but not great. I keep going back to this ketchup. I think the ketchup did enhance it. I think I like the ketchup better than just the regular ketchup that fast food places give you, even if it's Heinz. The fries, I thought, were good. The fries were not quite memorably good, but they were very good. I liked the fries a lot. I was glad I upsized it. How big were the patties? Because this can vary. For example, In-N-Out's patties are one-seventh of a pound. So that's why you really need to get a lot of patties there if you want to have a large meal. I usually get four patties there which is more than half a pound. 
but it's not like the three quarters of a pound that I would have gotten here if they're a quarter of a pound patties. So were they quarter pound patties? Answer, yes. They looked like quarter pound patties. They were big. They weren't thick, but they were big circumference wise. So I'm pretty sure it was a quarter pound. So it looks like I did have three quarters of a pound of meat, at least before cooking, and a large fries and a drink. So that 1469 was a pretty damn good deal. It wasn't a tremendous deal, but especially for where I was getting it. Remember, it's right there on the Las Vegas Strip in front of the Aria. And I got a triple quarter pound burger, meaning it's three quarters of a pound, and large fries and a drink for 1469 after tax, meaning it was less than 14 before tax. Now, before you run over there and do this, I have something to inform you. That somebody informed me, who's a listener to this show, they had a picture of themselves with a thumbs down in front of this exact Whataburger. And this person texted this. They texted this while I was doing the show, but I held back reading this text because I wanted to get to the segment. He texted, The Dandruff Special Triple Meat Whataburger Large Fries Medium Drink is now correctly priced at $16 plus tax. Boo! Source, me currently in Vegas, who refused to pay a penny over fourteen sixty nine, so I walked out. <laughs> this guy would not pay the 17 whatever they wanted for it, which I'll tell you, if it really is 16 plus tax, that's not bad, because that means they're only upcharging you a dollar for making the fries large. That's still not bad. So this would have ended up like 17 something. It's not terrible. Not fourteen sixty nine, but it's not terrible. So thank you for that report. Sorry you had to walk out. Sorry that you had to go through the trouble of going to Whataburger for this 1469 dandruff special, which they have eliminated. This might be my fault. This is maybe one of these cases where you keep your mouth shut. Because I tweeted about this review that I wrote on the forum, which is similar to what I just did here on the radio. And I put at Whataburger. So I wonder if Whataburger clicked on it just to go see what I wrote. And they're like, oh, shit, we're mispricing this. And then they put it back to the right price. It's either that or she just entered something funny and I got it too cheap. She wasn't trying to give me a discount. I don't know how you enter this exact meal in there and it comes as 1469 because it's the computer that determines it. But I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I paid 1469 and I got a triple burger a large fries and a drink, and that's what it said on the receipt. So she didn't even just like give me something better than what was on the receipt. I, that's what was on the receipt. I'm, I should have saved the receipt. I don't know why I threw it away. So this guy walked out from the 646. I did not walk out. I, in fact, would not have walked out even if they charged me 17 or 18 bucks. I would have stayed. So would I go back to Whataburger? Answer, yes. But it has to be convenient. Because of the hassle getting over there, you have to drive on the Strip, deal with any traffic that's on the Strip at that time, park at Aria, walk several minutes both ways, mostly outside when the weather may not be great, you know, maybe cold, maybe hot. It wasn't that bad when I walked there. It was cool, but it wasn't that cold of a day in Vegas. I had on a jacket. But, you know, think about the summer. It's 115 degrees. Do you really want to park at the Aria and walk outside both ways? But, you know, if I'm in the area... I'll probably stop in again. Let's say I'm at the Aria. Let's say I'm close to the Aria. We're walking over there isn't hard. Yeah, I'd probably do it. Or if there really is nothing else open that's in the area that I want, then maybe I'll go there too. So if it is at a really funny time, maybe I'll go there as well. So that is my Whataburger review. 
feel free to go over there and try it for yourself. And you can text me how much you enjoyed Whataburger there in front of the Aria on the Las Vegas Strip. And we will move on. Got a text message from the 507 referring to the Garrett and Ryan Twitter Spaces segment. This segment is great. I hope we get more of Twitter Spaces stuff. Okay. Noted. Maybe I'll do more Twitter Spaces stuff. I just find most of it very not appropriate for radio, just in the way it all plays out. I just find it's one of these things that's okay to kind of have on in the background, but just isn't good for a show like this with organized topics and commentary. It's just kind of people shooting the shit. But, you know, maybe the next time we have two known names going at it, this could be interesting. I was a little worried it was too long, which is funny to say on this show, which is always too long. But I was a little worried that it was too long since it was 24 minutes plus all my commentary. And it was not really all that new. It was from a few weeks ago. But I said, you know, it was interesting enough to where I wanted to put it up here. So I'm glad I got a positive reaction. By the way, you can always text me if you like or dislike segments we do. And then I'll consider it. You don't have to be afraid to say you dislike something. You don't have to be afraid to say you like something. I'm interested in feedback. I'm not saying I'll necessarily take action on what you say. But I will always consider it. It'll always go into how I feel about something for the future. Finally, we're about done here. This is a long one. Because I only took one break, and I started at 1040, and it's 848 in the morning. So we're 10 hours in, but we're going to have some edited out from the break, and also just, you know, whatever fails occurred and stuff that I always edit out. But, you know, it's going to end up a long show. It's going to be a two-parter, I can promise you that. So finally... The judge in the case which is currently going on involving the Borgata has made an interesting ruling regarding how much a casino can be deemed responsible in compulsive gambling issues. There are some people who believe that the casino should be legally liable regarding allowing compulsive gamblers to keep losing money at their properties. That once they identify compulsive gamblers, that they should stop them. And if they don't, that they should be legally liable. This came up originally, probably not for the first time, but it was a high-profile discussion in 2007 when mega whale Terrence Watanabe lost $60 million at Caesars and then took out a marker for $60 million more and chunked that off before it was discovered that he was broke and couldn't pay that marker. And so there was a lawsuit on both sides. He wanted money back because he said that he was given alcohol and just kept really drunk, and that's what caused him to lose all the money and his inhibitions. And I think he also alleged they gave him pills and other stuff he requested. And then They said he took out a marker that he knew he could never satisfy and that he owes them 60 more million. So they basically ended up settling where both just walked away, where he didn't get any money back, but they waived the other 60 million that he lost. But there was a discussion at the time whether they should have been legally liable. Now, Nevada Gaming does 
require them to ban compulsive gamblers. And that if there's a belief that someone is a compulsive gambler, they need to remove them. But of course, that's subjective. So they didn't get into any kind of regulatory trouble here. And that was pretty much that. But this was 17 years ago. But this segment is not about Terrence Watanabe. It is about Atlantic City. So a self-described problem gambler accused the Borgata of sending him tons of offers to get him down there when they knew that he was a compulsive gambler. So this suit was first reported on in 2022. And this man was from New York City. His name is Sam Antar, A-N-T-A-R. He says that he's a compulsive gambler and that he chunked off a lot of money to the Borgata during a nine-month span. He said that the Borgata was very aware that he was a compulsive gambler, and instead of trying to stop him, they kept giving him generous offers to come back. He filed a lawsuit accusing the Borgata of fraud, racketeering, and other transgressions. He also did a lot of online playing and claimed that he was winning hands and then was disconnected from the online platform. And then when he reconnected, the hand was just wiped out like it never took place. His lawyer claimed that, in fact, he had disconnected about 50% of the time in those nine months. And that he lost, quote, easily hundreds of thousands of dollars during that time. So this is kind of a dual lawsuit regarding the reason he was suing. Number one, he was a compulsive gambler and they weren't stopping him. And number two, they were having all kinds of technical issues, he claimed, which made him lose a lot of extra money there. The online partner that was providing the online casino for Borgata was Antane. Remember, we talked about them with party poker in that story. So they're involved here too. But the lawsuit is against Borgata and their parent company, MGM Resorts International. So this was filed in September of 2022 in Middlesex County. Now, don't feel too bad for Sam Antar because Sam Antar is a convicted scammer. He was convicted for a scheme where he cheated friends and relatives for money that he used to feed his compulsive gambling habit. And he did plead guilty to that for theft by deception. And he was going to be sentenced in November of 2022. I don't know exactly uh, what he got sentenced. Also, do you remember Crazy Eddie? Remember Crazy Eddie electronics stores? The East Coast? Those are pretty famous. Tell me if you remember these commercials, or at least heard of them. It's Crazy Eddie's greatest stereo sale ever. Get anything and everything in stereo equipment. Get it all now during Crazy Eddie's greatest stereo sale ever. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. Get those earmuffs off and listen to this. Crazy Eddie's Christmas blow-up list is going on now with the lowest sale prices ever on receivers, speakers, turntables, compact displayers, stereo rack systems, anything and everything in audio equipment. Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold. And we mean it. You don't have to ski cross-country. 
at the lowest sale prices on audio equipment because Crazy Eddie's Christmas audio blog list is going on now at a Crazy Eddie superstore near you. Crazy Eddie, his prices are... So these ran over the years. There was kind of a rip-off version of Crazy Eddie in L.A. called Crazy Gideon. This was an Israeli guy who would destroy items and said he was crazy and his prices were insane. Or I think he said that his prices are even crazier than he is. I forgot the tagline, but those are the commercials I saw. But Crazy Eddie also was convicted of fraud. He defrauded investors out of $74 million. His name was Eddie Antar, and he was the uncle of Sam Antar. So I guess scamming runs in the family. The guy you hear in the commercials is not Crazy Eddie himself. That's why the person kept saying his prices are insane. But this was very known in the New York area. Eddie Antar, Crazy Eddie, died in 2016. In 2013, Sam Antar, the one we're talking about now, was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison for taking $225,000 in a fraudulent investment scheme. Sam Antar said to the Associated Press back in September 2022, I've been in prison once, so I'm probably facing prison again. This is referring to the money he stole from family members. And it all had to do with me not being able to admit to myself that I was a compulsive gambler. When I look at what I did, I'm sick about it. A lot of people have this problem and they need help. So in his lawsuit, Sam Antar claimed that he let a lot of employees know that there was a serious recurring problem with the disconnections, but that they kept knowingly keeping the malfunctioning games available because they didn't want to take him down and lose the money. Now, to be fair, I have not heard from other people about a massive disconnection problem on these sites. So this really may have been on his end that his phone, his computer, whatever he was using to gamble with was just disconnecting. Maybe his internet wasn't good. His Wi-Fi quality wasn't good. Who knows? And he just may not have understood that these disconnections were on his end. It's also possible that he was doing this on purpose and that this was his way to think he could get some money back. So I don't know what he was playing, but maybe in the middle of what he was doing, if something wasn't going well, he was disconnecting. Like maybe he was in blackjack hands and then he's dealt a hard 16 and he disconnects then thinking it'll reset the hand. So maybe that's the thing he was doing and then maybe he'd come back and it'll just somehow make him lose or something like that. I, I don't know what was happening, but I haven't heard of this problem before. If you guys have heard of this before, of massive disconnects, he claimed like 50% of the time he was being disconnected, and that's what made him lose so much. So it was like a combination, he's suing them because of the disconnections, and also because of he was a compulsive gambler and they knew it. He said that they gave him about $30,000 a month, which was spread out mostly daily, to keep him playing and to entice him not to report problems with the games to the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement. He said he never did contact that enforcement division. I don't think they gave it to him as a bribe to keep his mouth shut. This is just his claim. I think he was just offered this because he was chunking off a lot of money. Apparently, he played live dealer blackjack and online slots. I don't know which one had all the bad disconnections. He sometimes played for 24 hours straight. He said in his lawsuit that he one time bet more than $5 million in a 16-day period in January 2020. 
That doesn't mean he lost $5 million, by the way. This means he bet $5 million, which doesn't mean as much because the way that casinos make money is by attrition. And, you know, you're winning some, you're losing some, but you're losing more than you're winning. And just a few percentage points can be a huge edge to them in just a short time. So if you're winning 48% of the time and losing 52% of the time or 49-51, that'll eventually eat you. So, of course, there's a lot of wagering being done there, but those aren't losses. That's just money cycling through there. He says that employees acknowledge problems with the system, and he showed a July 17th, 2019 conversation where one of the employees was telling him that other players are not getting anywhere near what you're getting as far as compensation for being kicked off. So I wonder if that's what he was doing. I wonder if he was disconnecting and then demanding compensation for when the hand just wouldn't continue. Maybe that was the scam he was running. I mean, this guy was obviously a a fraudster. He's been convicted twice since 2013. So maybe he thought he had a little trick he could pull where when he would be dealt a bad hand in blackjack, that he would just disconnect and then come back and the hand would be gone. And he'd say, hey, you know, uh, I automatically lost from disconnecting, so give me back the money. And maybe they did it because he was overall losing anyway. So this probably wouldn't be a good advantage play, even if it worked, because they probably would look into it more carefully if you weren't uh, getting beat here. He also showed a text message from October 8th, 2019, from an MGM rep that said, okay, let's do this. I need you to email to me that we are closing the case and that you will no longer contact the Borgata president or the Division of Gaming Enforcement about the case. And he claimed that he had to agree to not contact the Borgata president or the gaming enforcement about this. He said, I just needed to keep gambling. But there is a reason they could ask him to agree to this, and that is they were asking him to agree to this if he wanted to keep gambling. So it's possible the position they took was that he kept complaining about all these disconnections and he wanted the president of the Borgata to acknowledge this and gaming enforcement to acknowledge this, even though he apparently hadn't contacted them. But maybe they said, look, either take our games or leave them. Don't keep hassling us about this. Stop bitching about the disconnections. We don't see anyone else having this level of disconnection. So either tolerate it or don't, but nobody else is having the problem like you. So we're freezing your account. And when you agree to stop hassling us about this, we will re-enable it. But we're not going to have you hassling it about us disconnections every day that nobody else is experiencing. It's just a drain on our business. I could see that. I mean, I would probably do the same thing. You can't just keep this customer forever while he hassles you and claims about disconnections and wants compensation for it. So I have to think these disconnections were bullshit in some way. It's possible he really was getting disconnected, but then it's possible that he was learning that this could be a way to exploit the system and lose at a slower rate. I do believe he lost money here, but this may have been his sneaky way to keep in action longer. Who knows? Anyway, there's a ruling on this whole situation. So the ruling involved... On January 31st, 2024, U.S. District Court Judge Madeline Cox Arleo dismissed the lawsuit and said that 
the rules in New Jersey and the regulations in New Jersey do not impose a legal duty upon casinos to cut off compulsive gamblers. New Jersey casino law, quote, pervasively regulates the responsibilities of casinos as they relate to compulsive gamblers, but is notably silent on whether casinos or online gambling platforms may induce people who are who present with compulsive gambling behavior to patronize their businesses. That's what she wrote in her decision. So basically, she's saying that New Jersey casino law just doesn't state any requirements about this. There's just nothing in there about having to kick out compulsive gamblers or not send them offers. She also cited two previous New Jersey court cases where a compulsive gambler had sued and lost. So there was case law on this already in New Jersey that one who was a compulsive gambler and the other one who lost money while drunk with alcohol they got in the casino, both of them tried to bring lawsuits against these New Jersey casinos and both of them lost. So she said, even based on that alone, based on the existing case law, that he really had no standing to sue. That was it. So that's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that New Jersey is different than Nevada in that casinos there can just do what they want regarding compulsive gambling. They don't have to care. Someone's compulsively gambling, they can keep compulsively gambling, either live or online. If somebody is drunk while gambling, they can just keep gambling while drunk. They do not have to eject them. They do not have to watch for this. As in Nevada, they do. Now, whether they can be civilly liable back to the patron, that's in question in Nevada. But they are required by Nevada law to not allow people to gamble when they're in a state where they can't think straight or when they have a compulsive gambling problem. Of course, this is very subjective, but they are supposed to remove problem gamblers. And in New Jersey, apparently, they're not. New Jersey, that's just not in the law. So this guy lost. Now, I don't feel bad for this guy. This guy seems really shady. This guy is committed fraud twice since 2013 and probably more than that but that's what he got caught and convicted for and there was something weird going on with these disconnects because believe me I would have had a lot of people coming to me about this by now if they had a chronic disconnection problem where like half the time you get disconnected from New Jersey online casinos we would have seen this also all over social media if this were the case if they had a massive disconnect problem so This was something either wrong with his setup or he was doing it on purpose. Had to be one of those two. And his evidence about them acknowledging it is pretty thin. It looks like they're not even going to look at that because it was dismissed based upon no law requiring them to deny him service. And it looks like they were giving him the money back a lot of these times anyway. I don't know if they gave all of it back, but it looked like he just kept requesting refunds because he would disconnect and then claim that uh, his hand disappeared and he automatically lost. Looked like they were giving it to him. But I guess he was such a compulsive gambler, it didn't matter. He kept losing. That's probably why they didn't stop him. They only stopped him when he was too much of a pain in the ass and threatening to report them to gaming. And maybe what happened, I'm just theorizing here, but maybe what happened is after he asked for too many of these, they're like, no, there's something weird here. We're not giving any more of these. You're asking for way more of these refunds than anyone else is getting. 
So no, you know, fix the problem on your end or stop playing, but we're not giving you more refunds. And then he started bothering the Borgata president and started threatening to go to gaming enforcement. And then they probably froze his account. And then he came to them and said, hey, what will it take to get my account unfrozen? And they're like, okay, well, stop hassling us. Stop hassling our president. Stop threatening to report us to gaming. The problem's on your end. So either stop playing or deal with it. And he probably said, okay, fine, I'll just deal with it. <laughs> and just get playing and then eventually sued them. That's my guess as to what really happened there. So that is it. We're done. So thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I'll try to get part one in the archives by... say like maybe tomorrow morning the 18th right now it's the 17th at 9am I will not get it in the archives anytime today but maybe sometime on Sunday you'll have it part 2 probably a few days after that I knew I would be doing a long show this time because there's a lot of long topics built up I saw them coming. I saw more and more coming. I'm like, I gotta stop this. I gotta do a show before more and more topics build up and I'm gonna end up doing a 12-hour show. 13-hour show. So that spurred me to do this even though I wasn't feeling perfect. But I think I got everything here, right? Old and new topics, I think I got it all. Just like last time, a lot of stuff happened in the days coming up to radio. So it wasn't all stuff that like happened right after the last show. A lot of it was pretty new. When I edit this, I usually keep it mostly in order of the way things aired, but once in a while I will move things around if there's something that I think is more timely to listen to and I don't want it getting too old. Some of these things, it doesn't really matter when you hear them. And other ones, they get old very quickly if too long of a time passes. So I don't know exactly how I'll split it, but that's a possibility. I'll try to look into whatever's going on there with the player. I'll try to fix that permanently. I'll try to get that done before the next show. Sorry for that situation. Good day, good night, and shalom. Shalom.